0: So she goes, let's look at this. You get stopped, right? You're restless. You're irritable and discontent. You're not putting anything in your body. You're full of fear. Can't seem to be a real help to other people. Pray to misery and depression, right? When I look in the mirror, I don't like what's looking back. I should be funnier. I should be better looking. My hair should be thicker. Whatever, right? I, I'm looking back. No one likes me. And, and all of a sudden, my head starts spinning. It feels like a tornado. I feel like I can't breathe, right? Your head's spinning. All of a sudden, you go, right? You fight it off. You go, the anxious feelings hitting and you gotta, wherever you're at, you gotta be somewhere else. Like I should be somewhere else. Right. Like, and, and then like, you're just, nothing's good enough. And uh, And all of a sudden this little voice comes in and says, Hey big guy, I know last time this is what happened, but just take a little bit. And then we'll be back at dealing with our problems tomorrow. And I fight that off. I go, "No, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. But like so many do, we succumb to the urge again. And that voice comes back in and says, Brad, I know last time you, you became a liar, and thief, but it's not going to happen this time. Here's why. Because you're not going to do the hard stuff. You're just going to drink a couple beers tonight. And you'll be back at the problem. That's how I know I'm an alcoholic. That's why I qualify for Alcoholics Anonymous was because that was always my baseline. I'd go back to having a couple beers and I would always end up somewhere, right? So what happens is I buy the lie. And when I buy the lie, I put it in my body, I set that allergy off again, that chemical reaction happens, I have to have more. Same part of my brain that asks for water, air, sleep, food, right? It's releasing that chemical, I gotta have more, gotta have more to be okay. So I gotta have more, and I go on these runs, more bad stuff happens, I get stopped, I'm never doing it again, I don't take care of my spirit, restless, cerebral discontent, buy the lie again, I put it in, this goes on and on and on and on. And she tells me this, I look at her, I go, I, I literally hopped up out of my seat, I go... I go, I'm, I'm screwed. She goes, welcome. Welcome. From here, you you got a shot.
1: Welcome home, friend, to Sober Shares, episode 28. This podcast will highlight alcohol recovery stories via the real life experiences of our guest and provide you with a front row seat to the recovery journey. These deep dive talks are guaranteed to inspire and entertain you. My name is Michael and I'm an alcoholic. I've been sober since October the 10th of the year 2000. I'm a member of the world's largest 12-step recovery program. Sober Shares is in no way affiliated with Alcoholics Anonymous. We speak only for ourselves and have no interest in outside issues. This podcast is not affiliated with any politics, organization, or institution. We hope to be of great service to the world when it comes to documenting recovery stories from the disease of alcoholism. I'm glad you were here and I hope you find what you are looking for. And now, it's time to meet our guest. I will turn it over to them so they can introduce themselves and give their sobriety date if they choose to.
0: Hi, everybody. My name is Brad Sullivan. I've been sober since December 6th of 2006.
1: Cool. And that's a blessing. How many years is that? That's a little over 15. 15 years. 15 plus years. Congratulations. Brad's a friend of mine that I met a few years ago at uh, my home group here in the North Texas area and uh, always liked him and respected him. And every time he talks in a meeting, I'm like, okay, this is going to be good. And then after he finishes every time talking in a meeting, I'm like, that was good. So I'm super excited to have him here. Even though we are not Alcoholics Anonymous or affiliated with Alcoholics Anonymous, I want to read something. This is called the AA preamble. I just want the people to be able to hear what this sounds like because there's some pretty cool information in here. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is the desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution, does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. Okay, Brad, so can you start out by telling us a little bit about the early years of your life and what did your family look like and where you were born? I grew
0: up in Buffalo, New York. It is about 10, 12 minutes from the border of Canada, so it's up there. Snow country. Grew up on the lake, one of the Great Lakes, which is a real cool experience. A lot of people don't realize it's almost like growing up on an ocean. i've had people come visit maybe fall asleep on the plane you can wake up bring them to the lake they think they're next to the ocean that's how big it is really yeah it's one of those things you can you can get on a boat and go three hours in one direction you don't hit the end right so it goes from buffalo and you go right take it right to cleveland if you want it if you're on a boat so real cool deal kind of growing up there it's a blue collar town it's real rust belty uh it is the epitome of. Old steel workers, you know, work there, a lot of factories. So, growing up in a blue collar place, it has a different vibe than North Texas does. You know, North Texas is kind of pronounced with capital and, and a lot of uh, economic thrive. But there is just a lot more, you know, being grateful for what you have, hardworking folk. My father is a, um, he's electrical engineer, so a lot of stuff's black and white to him, you know, he's, he's one of those guys. His life's been a trip, and he's got some great stories, and he's a great storyteller, which is maybe where I get it from. But but Dad is he's been through a lot, and so he's he's actually the older I get, the more I realize how much of a hero he is to me
1: you know like what what's he been through that's been through a lot like was he in the wars or was he doing some crazy stuff no it's a great question um i think just growing up
0: in extreme poverty and early on being a product of divorce when divorce wasn't a thing wow i mean now it's a coin toss right but back in the early 60s he grew up with a single mom little sister and trying to figure it out you know three bucks between them and, and trying to figure out how to eat for the week type stuff so my dad's story of like growing up in a projects type place or growing up real, real tough, like, and having to figure it out, you know, it wasn't normal for, uh, you know, families back then. I think uh, a lot of women or couples were just willing to put up with crap and not get divorced, but my you're grandmother this, was different. So are the
1: second person in a row, I uh, guess 20, uh, episode 27 with Mike, uh, Mike M., he uh, spoke of the same thing. He is a child of divorce in the early seventies in the North Texas area. And he said that my parents got divorced when that wasn't a thing and people weren't really doing it. And he talked about the struggles that he went through being a child of divorce when really most people were not getting divorced back yeah, then.
0: Absolutely. And and so I, I could tell how that shaped him and good, good, bad, right or wrong. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. things that happen to us in life are often going to project us forward and mold us and turn us into the people that we are today. And, I will say some of the stuff that you know that that that's created in my father has been good, and some of it's been you know a little tough. Mm-hmm. But all in all, like I said, the older I get, the more he's just really become a hero of mine. Which is, if you knew me 15 years ago, that wasn't the case, right? So it, it was hard for us to speak a lot and get along, and and uh, we butted heads a lot. But really, it's just because we're so similar, you know, type one of those deals. Uh, it's like the one day you turn around, and you're like, oh, I am my dad, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know, one of those things. So. It's funny, you know. I I spent most of my uh, teens and you know early twenties being like, I'm not, I'm never gonna. And then every day that goes by. Uh-huh. start looking more like i was I'm about to say try. do you look like him? oh you're, yeah yeah, yeah you're
1: a big guy how tall are you
0: uh, I'm about six five
1: yeah okay i'm six four i'm two um two fifty i'm, I'm embarrassed but i'm two fifty six four how, do you want to yeah. see how much you like?
0: i'm about i'm about six five and a half about 280 okay i'm a big i'm a big boy so you, my my dad's not that big he's a six he's like six one and, yeah. um I, I got a brother he's big too but uh so yeah my dad's kind of he's just been an inspiration i think he he grew up just having to make it happen, you know, for himself. So he's going from that to working in the steel plant, pushing rod, like they they like to say, you know. I've mm-hmm. um, never heard that before. Yeah, so it's a uh, you know it's that slang, but uh, so you got that, and then he you know put himself through school, and then became an electrical engineer, and uh, he just retired last year, which I'm very proud of. I think you know for last seven years, that's all he's been talking about is retiring, and so a year ago he was able to retire from a nuclear power plant where. He was a principal engineer, and and he took a lot of pride in that, and I have a lot of pride for him for that. My mother's a business owner. My mother is half Sicilian, half Puerto Rican. Um, <laughs> Spicy. Well, you know what? She loves hard,
1: so I, you know it's one of those
0: things. So I've I've been I've been fed and slapped at the same time, which is real confusing growing up. You know, uh, she's a great woman. I think, uh, like I said today, I'm. I'm so blessed that you know my parents are still together and that they uh still a part of my life in a real in a healthy supporting way i uh, know it's not the case for everybody and so i don't take that for granted right i have a lot of friends their parents are gone i have a lot of friends uh, that their parents were just unhealthy so unhealthy that the boundaries had to be set where they can't be around them and that sometimes is the best for the situation but still unfortunate That's sad yeah know? so uh with Ma, you know, she's just a fierce protector. I mean, there's just, you know, those old Northeast, you know, Italian, Puerto Rican women. I mean, there's more around than you think. It's not a real unique blend, but they're out there.
1: Yeah, I agree 100%. I've lived all over the country, all the way from the Hawaiian Islands all the way to Boston. So, pretty much East Coast, West Coast, the whole way. And I want everybody to know that if you've been in one part of the country for your entire life, I'm so glad that you're listening. And I'm speaking to Americans now because we're here, we're heard all over the world, but it is different everywhere. You mentioned the term New England, okay? When I went to New England to go to college in Boston, Massachusetts, it was nothing like Dallas, Texas. And I got to learn about a whole new array of ways of looking at the world and and people and their lineage and and, and and basically just how it was very, very different. And then I moved to Nevada and then I moved to California and then I moved to Hawaii and they were all very different. So there's many beautiful parts of this country. Uh, I want to ask you a question about the Buffalo Bills and the Bills Mafia. Are sure. you are you a member or a fan of the Bills Mafia or is your dad? <laughs> and I want before you answer, I want to say that uh, I love, I believe his name's Josh Allen. Yeah. He's the quarterback of that team. Oh, my God. I watch him on TV. I've never seen him in person, but I recognize athletic grace and talent and skill. And that quarterback for the Buffalo Bills, Josh Allen, is, to me, super impressive. He's one of my probably top ten favorite players in the league. Do you like the Buffalo Bills? Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, I don't know anyone from Buffalo that doesn't like the Bills. And um I, don't know, I think we're a little overboard with it, but I wouldn't have it any other way. We're we're completely obsessed with, with being where we're from, loving the Buffalo Bills. Josh Hill and the kids a stud. You don't get a thoroughbred like that, and I let him out the barn. So, did you
1: that, guys draft him. And did you know he was going to be that good? Was no,
0: no yeah. and anyone that said that, you know, they're they're full of it. However when you look at a kid and evaluate, you know, I've I've a background in coaching college
1: football. So Oh yeah, I forgot, you football coach. Yeah. I forgot.
0: So when you when you look at that and you evaluate a kid, you see there's a lot of upside. But just like in anything else in life, right? There's a lot of potential, a lot of upside. Like this kid's got the stuff, right? He could do yeah. it. But it doesn't mean he will do it. Yeah. And so, and just like in just like in sobriety, right? It doesn't mean like a lot of people have it in them. It doesn't mean they will do it. This kid had it in them. You know, in a windstorm, he could throw 80 yards on the money, right? So you you just don't find that you just don't find that and He's 6'5", 248, and he runs like a gazelle. You, you don't, you don't yeah. find that. right?
1: And there's some kind of magic in him. Yeah, like there's some kind of driver magic in him when the, you, he gets the ball on his own five yard line with less than a minute left. I'm like, he's going to score. I look he's, at my kid. I'm like, he's going to score he's it got all. A shot. He's going to figure this out, and then he does. The magic comes through the television with him and his teammates. Uh, Cole Beasley pa- plays there. Oh yeah,
0: he got released this year,
1: but did he? yeah. No. He was yeah. Cole Beasley was a trip. I just know him because he was a Dallas Cowboy. He also played locally at a college named SMU, which is. Southern Methodist University. and Played for the Cowboys, and then he went up there to the Bills. So shout out to the Bills Mafia. What about the uh, hockey team up there, the Buffalo Sabers? Oh Are people, man, people into that. Well, one more, one more thing. One more thing on the on
0: the Bills Mafia before we move on. Yeah, uh, that is something that just kind of spawned out of. You know, it's not like my whole life there's been this thing, Bills Mafia, with a label and okay. how, jumping through tables
1: and stuff. Yeah, I want to ask you about um, the jumping through tables next.
0: Yeah, well, that that is just, that's something that's come, you know, last several years where people have gone nuts. I was actually a part of a group of guys uh, called themselves the Bills Army. They bought an old uh, <laughs> school bus, right? And okay. So they would dress up in Army fatigues and they had season tickets and go to the game. And this was back when mm. the Bills were terrible. Yeah, winning three games a year, no one wanting to go, but we don't give up hope. That's one thing where we're stupidly loyal in Buffalo, right? I mean, they give us no reason to go cheer, and we'll give them our money and go. Yeah, and uh, and I love that about us. Yeah, but uh, Bill's Army was a thing first, and the whole stick to it was right before the game. One of the kind of lead members of it would dress up in a Hulk Hogan uniform and he'd get up on top of the bus and you can see this around, it's on YouTube. You can Google it. Oh my God. And he'd play a song and then he would dress somebody up in the opponent's Jersey (laughs) and do the Hogan leg drop before the game and then get everyone juiced and then they go into the game. So, uh, oh yeah. The members of that group, some of my friends, they, they were the first people ever have, bands lifetime bands from the stadium Be just going into cranked up so <laughs> cranked uh, yeah i mean that was obviously before i got sober doing that stuff i mean i've i've had cops hold my legs while i did keg stands you know with, <laughs> with back then so it's a uh, parking lot in the parking lot so people people always it blows their mind how it's like a college tailgate when you get there
2: mm-hmm.
0: people get there friday night yeah in the RVs and they start partying. So come Sunday at one o'clock, they've been there for 48 hours drinking. It it really turns into a bizarre place. So I've, you know, I grew up down the street from the stadium. So I've, I've spent many of many of that time there partying and doing that stuff and uh, acting a fool. But uh, I mean, that's when it was still fun though. You know, like that's when I was still having fun with my drinking and using the Sabres is a different deal. I think the, I mean, everyone in Buffalo—it's a rite of passage to love the Bills, and the same thing with the Sabers. I've spent many a nights, obviously, since there's so many more Sabers games. It's kind of it's, there's a different feel to the Buffalo Sabers for me than the Bills, right? Like the Bills was always like this big event, and it's and it's once a week, and it's like your whole Sunday. But Sabers games were always kind of on while I was doing homework, you know? Like you're doing homework and you got to watch the Sabers, and sometimes a an overtime game would would be on and we'd be playing uh, the Habs or something back you know, back when they were good, Patrick Waugh. Mm-hmm. And um and I remember just being able to stay up with my brother and watch those games or uh there was a game where Dominic Hasek used to be the dominator, you yeah. know, best goaltender all time, in my opinion. Yeah. Um there was like a seven overtime game, you know, that was played against, uh, New Jersey. And I just, and it was like a one nothing game yeah, and yeah. it was like a playoff game. Yeah. And I remember I couldn't, I was young and I couldn't fade. I just, I passed out. My brother stayed up for the whole thing. And really? Still a story he'll tell today. But like, oh, I stayed up the whole, you know, yeah. I don't know if he did or didn't he, he may have taken a couple cat naps in there. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, the Sabres is different. My grandmother loved the Sabres and, uh. So the sabers would always be on. She had a little my grandmother had this little TV on her kitchen table. She spent a lot of time in the kitchen cooking. She's a mm-hmm. little little Italian lady, right? So she would always have the sabers on and she loved the sabers, you know. And you would hear her Ah you know, kinda of, you know, throwing her hands up, cussing a little bit, and you'd go, Grandma, you run running, what what happened? Yeah. Ah yeah. It's two nothing. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she, so I have this different experience and uh, I mean I grew up hockey's in our blood up there. I grew up with kids in my neighborhood, they would They would make the backyard ice rinks, and, you know, we played. Snow would fall in the street, and we'd get out there and play in the street and just beat each other up and play hockey. So I've I've spent a lot of my life playing both sports and being in both, and they're both very special to me.
1: Can you tell our listeners that have no frame of reference or no idea what you're talking about when you say that you had friends that built ice skating rinks in their backyard? Can you talk about what that looks like?
0: Sure. It's a real cool deal. So this is back before everyone was just obsessed with privacy, right? Obviously, there's no social media, nothing like this. So we're talking late 80s, early 90s to mid 90s. Before everyone was getting privacy fences with their house. So you used to just have just backyards that just ran into your neighbors. There was no fences. And the people that did get fences, you kind of judge them. You're like, look at these guys. Too good, you know, yeah, too or, good for
1: us. What are they doing in there? Boxing <laughs> us
0: out. and uh, Or someone had like a chain link fence, you know, maybe they had a big dog or something. But for the most part, there was no fences. So if you picture looking out your back window... And you have your backyard and everyone has it fenced in. Well, it was just open. So you could run into the neighbors. Well, back then, I mean, it was just a different time. I don't know how anyone else grew up. I knew how I grew up. Now I grew up, you could just walk into your neighbor's house. And you walk out, walk into the neighbor's. Many times have I come downstairs and my neighbor was eating chips, you know, from, from the cover. And that wasn't a weird thing and no one cared, right? I mean, we were very open like that. So with that being the mindset and kind of how it is, There's been uh, cold weather and snowfall from, you know, sometimes Halloween to Easter. So what people would do before that happens, they would prep. and They would go out and they would put some uh, two-by-sixes. They would basically frame out as big as they could, maybe between one, two, three backyards. Wow. An ice rink. And so they'd frame it out with, uh, you know, two-by-sixes. Or they'd even go up. They'd try to make somewhat of a board. But sometimes it wasn't past shin high, you know. I mean, it was just Mm -hmm. what you could do, right? You would lay down some tarp. You'd get the tarp tight. You'd pull it tight. Sometimes you would hammer it. You would wrap it, and then you would kind of tack it in, hammer it around. And then once it started getting cold enough, you would start laying down. Um, you would just go in with a hose. With your garden hose. Yeah, and just start laying down, just putting water in there. and okay. just make. So by the time it would freeze, because it gets, I mean, obviously, you know, it would be one degrees up there. So anything you're putting down is going to freeze. Um. And water lines are dug underground up there. So you could still pull water, you know. Um, So sometimes you'd have to run it from your basement. Uh You'd put a hose hook up in the basement, you'd run it out the basement window and just (laughs) fill it up. (laughs) But anyways, you you would have this great thing. And and instead of a Zamboni, you had someone out there with a shovel, and they would shovel off the top layer, and you would play. And then when you were finished, you know, the thing you would do when it was finished, if it wasn't snowing hard or pitch black, Mm -hmm. is you'd put down some more. You know, you'd put, bring the hose out. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of games, real cool, real cool deal. Now they make, now they make stuff you could buy to do, uh, yeah, which is popular kits. But back then it was, you know, and some were, you know, some were raggedy, some were uh, janky, you know, some were on like a tilt, <laughs> you know, what it was in all of it. But it was, a, it was a really good time, real, real cool place to. So I mean, that's kind of uh, how we grew up up there, but. Um,
1: that's awesome thank you for sharing that i grew up in dallas texas so i have no frame of reference for any of the things <laughs> yeah. that you just talked about but i've definitely heard about them and i read a lot of ice hockey magazines and in the back of them i see them selling the kits and stuff and i've heard people talking about oh we used to my dad used to make a rink in our backyard and we would just skate back there and i'm just like golly what's that like yeah yeah let's go back to your family of origin uh brothers or sisters you mentioned your brother a second ago Sure.
0: yeah so um i have an older brother and um That's, you know, my brother Ross. Him and I are best friends. He actually works uh, in this field. So he's an addiction doctor. So he's board certified in addiction medicine. He is a a proud supporter of recovery and and helping folk like myself and yourself. And um, I don't take any credit for it, but I think him watching... 15 years ago kind of what I was going through and he was in med school you know as as all this was unfolding I think it motivated him I think he saw some things he didn't like and thought he could make a difference now it took him a little bit it wasn't his original board certification but I think as he moved forward he said hey this is a this is a problem I would like to to solve so uh, my brother's my best friend we talk every day I'm, I'm just, uh, sometimes I'm in awe of them today. I'm proud, you know, of the relationship we have. And it's taken a lot of work from this program. I tell people that and they say, Oh, I wish I had that. And I said, well, it took work. Right. I mean, this wasn't, I just didn't get sober and everything. Oh, you're back. I love you. You know, there was damage there and damage that wasn't healed just because I went and said I was wrong. Yeah. Here's how I've harmed you. Right. I mean, it took, time you know i had to give time time on that but i'm proud that i've stuck around long enough that i've seen the fruits
1: of of doing the work and giving it time is he kind of like your dad does he see a lot of things in black and white
0: oh yeah now i will say working uh in the recovery field the last several years because he runs he's a medical director of a big treatment center yeah uh in the northeast so this has kind of changed a lot of the black and whiteness, right? I mean, because he's a doctor, <laughs> everything was like, well, you know, this is what's broken. Here's how you fix it. Mm-hmm. That was his personality for a long time. And now he's starting to see that's not so much the case, right? Like
2: mm-hmm.
0: dealing with us is dealing in the gray. A lot of times. They're, Do you think he'll listen to this podcast? Oh yeah. gonna You Go Give
1: him a shout out and tell him you love him. Oh yeah. Big bro. I love you. What's his name? Yeah. Ross. Ross, your brother loves you. No, oh, Hundred percent.
0: hundred percent. But yeah, I mean he's a classic overachiever. It's yeah. hard to grow up with someone that's like that. And I've yeah. told you know, he knows all this, so this isn't a hard thing. Yeah. But he's uh he's one that I would show up in the classrooms because he was older than me like, oh, after him. Oh, and they'd no. be like, Why don't you be more like him? But I was real Yeah, my mom always said, Oh, this is the kind one. When, <laughs> when they would this is the sweet one, when they would introduce us, right? Yeah. My brother was real yeah, he was running for mayor since he was five years old, right? <laughs> Me, I was a little bit more reserved, and I my mom always said, "This is the sweet one," you know. And so when I would show up in classes, I was more concerned with people. Yeah, I was more concerned with, you know, creativity and what was going on. And then why wouldn't you be more like him? Mm-hmm. And I think that was a big trend back then of like you should be more like that. And uh, and it you know that that wasn't healthy for a developing mind. You know, well, not that it's blame, but it's just some kids aren't like that. Right. Yeah. So, but, uh, so that's the fam.
1: I like what you said about um, it took years to repair the relationship with your brother. I want the listeners to know that, you know, just because you've been sober a year or two or three, it doesn't mean that you're all the way healed and everything's all the way good and everything has been all the way fixed. It takes time, time, time. In years and sometimes decades to repair the relationships that were damaged due to our active uh, drinking and drug addiction. And uh, when you do stay sober long-term, not all the time, but most of the time and a lot of the time, and in my case, you get to see the fruits of longevity and long-term sobriety, and you get to see relationships that were damaged, repaired, and uh, flourish. And you change as a person going forward through your sobriety walk, and then all of a sudden you are reliable and trustworthy and accountable and available to be a good little brother or in my case to be a good son or in my case to be a good older brother to my younger sister or to be a good husband to my wife and so as we walk down this road of long-term sobriety there's just so many gifts that just bloom and blossom in front of us as we walk down the road it's just a pleasure but give yourself the gift of time get into sobriety if you can Start working with a sponsor. See if you can get the steps going and see if you can get some long-term sobriety going and start to reap the rewards of it. Sure.
0: And, I, and, and not to even, that was real positive and
1: wonderful, but it doesn't always work that no,
0: way. No, It doesn't always work. And, but there's also another flip side to it. I've actually repaired relationships and had it go great in year five. And by year <laughs> 10, stuff's changed again right because that's a that's a common deal people are always changing
1: yeah you and, and them
0: me and them so in the world i've had relationships that have been repaired and been great and then for some reason several years later uh, yeah. either grown apart or people changed or or maybe they done something where you had to be like oh i need to set this boundary now with yeah. them or you know maybe you change so you're like i'm not there anymore and this person although It's been a part of my life here, but like where we're at now, I've had to say, no, like there's a boundary. I've had those relationships too. That's some real high level stuff. That's some real mature stuff that there's no playbooks for that, right? No one's, no one gets to talk to you about that. Everyone always says, you know, do the work when this happens. So, you know me, I like to keep it real. And I also like to talk to people that have been sober a while, right? Because it's not always newcomers. It's, it talks about the alcoholic that still suffers it doesn't say newcomer It doesn't say day one right mm-hmm. and i've been sober at different year points and i've suffered yeah and i've always you know everyone was always talking to the newcomer and, and i my ego was in the way and i couldn't be like hey i need help you know so i've, I've been in those positions too and it could be year nine yeah and you're sitting there and, and you tell yourself oh i should have this why would i end up here again it's because you know life is what it is, and we are alcoholics, so I just wanted to kind of throw that in before we moved on because I, I feel that I feel that I, it's important to speak to all people that that are afflicted by this deal, not just newcomers
1: yeah, and there's thousands of people that are going to hear this episode, and what's so cool about it is that they all come at it from different points of views and different lanes they've been traveling in in life and different experiences from the past and that's one of the reasons I started the showcase of this show because I wanted to so I wanted to show people. Uh, that have this, this disease of alcoholism and are in the process of recovering uh, from it through the 12 steps and show that we're not all the same. We're varied like a rainbow of flavors or a bag of Skittles. We're just so different. Some of us come from abusive homes. Some of us come from great homes. Some of us come from homes that uh, our parents drank every day. Some of us came from homes that our parents never, ever drank. I mean, I don't, I've seen my dad drink maybe drunk maybe once and maybe my mom once ever yeah, never I yeah. never saw them drink but I'm full blown alcoholic yeah. full blown drug addict. I did not need their I did not need them to demonstrate to me what it looked like or anything like that I just when I started drinking at 13 man I just felt it come up inside me like a fire you know I was just like oh my god I like that fire water Um, so let's talk about spirituality a little bit let's talk about um, maybe religion spirituality what you were thinking as a child coming up were you exposed to any kind of spirituality or religion
2: sure
0: Um, so growing up I grew up in the south side of Buffalo it is the Irish part of town right so all the there's shamrocks cut out shamrocks hanging from the the light poles and stuff and bars called Doc Sullivan's and O'Malley's but one thing that is sh- you know surely plentiful in that neighborhood is you know Catholic churches I grew up uh my grandmother um went to St. Tommy's right which is right down the street you can walk there so part of our thing is the grandchildren is we would walk her there right and when your grandmother said you know well, walk me to mm-hmm. church you walk her to church. So non-negotiable, and and nor was it something that anyone would ever say no to. So my my real first experience that I remember is going to that church with my grandmother and doing it for nothing more than just making her happy. Right? I was at a not at a place of understanding, but as a place of like, well, you do what you're told. Mm-hmm. That's how I grew up. Do what you're told. Kids didn't have a say in anything. <laughs> you know, I mean, go in the other room. Do what you're told. So when something, you know, when that happens or your mother says, oh, we're going to, you know, you go, you know, begrudgingly maybe, but at the end, at the end of the day. So that was as much as I knew of it. And then as we started to grow up, we went to our own, we kind of moved to a different area of Buffalo. So we started going to another Catholic church where I had my first communion and all that stuff. And one thing that I did, uh, there was always, I always felt like I was being yelled at or I always felt like I was doing something wrong. You know, and I don't believe there's nothing inside of me that believes that that is God or that's God's message for his children. Um, Just like any children, you're a parent when your child doesn't act right. You got to have a little, all right, this ain't right, you know, but it's all done in love, right? It's done out of love and like here, I want to help you be better and I want to help your life be easier and happy, joyous and free. But growing up, that wasn't that. It was like, "Don't do that. You're that's stupid. Don't say that. Don't act that way." Who was telling you that?
1: The people at the church. Yeah, or just everybody, everybody. Everybody.
0: I mean, it was like the priest is yelling at you. Yeah. The lady doing a. Uh, Doing Sunday school, you know, for the kids, like the yeah. little Bible study Sunday school. She's yelling at you. Yeah. The neighbor's yelling at you. Mm-hmm. You know, and then your mom's mad because them three are yelling at you. Now she's yelling at you. So that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Growing up in a Catholic church was a lot of that. It's kind of like a dungeon in some of these Northeast Catholic churches. They're scary. Mm-hmm. Priest comes in, swinging the deal. and <laughs> You know, and, and next thing you know, you're getting, you're kneeling, you're standing, you're kneeling, you're standing, you're singing. Yeah. You're saying words. Then you go up take the body of christ you know like that whole thing and it is and then you got this old lady up there banging away on the organ you're like yo it is a real creepy deal right and about the very little sunlight goes in there and you feel like a vampire right i mean it's just a straight there's a lack of uh you know sometimes when i think of god and i think of this spiritual deal i think of light right like there's a lot of light but the light in like we need light got to bring stuff out of the darkness into the light there's no light in these places. <laughs> There's none at all. I mean, I, I, and I think some of the reasons all the windows are stained glass, no light actually gets through, you mm-hmm. know? And I understand that for some people that that's calming and you can go in and pray and it's kind of like that, but that was the extent of it. Now I had family members that are very religious and, uh, God bless them. I mean, uh, but I think so much so, you know, that it's even just caused problems in their life, you know? And, um, I'm always at awe with people who have these diehard beliefs and just, you know, they are unshakable in them, you know. But when it leads you to do extreme judgment towards others or a lack of love and kindness to others, I have to question that, you know. And I've had family members get in trouble for, you know, going after abortion doctors and, you know, being a part of these religious cults and stuff i mean just just real deep stuff uh but taking it back to like my grandmother of her just being like an old school catholic you know there's a lot of what i witnessed growing up was uh just a lot of fear-based living and and that's just kind of how the generation was that grew up it was oh this ain't gonna work i I need to light my candles i need to pray the rosary and then my grandma would clean and she would scrub there was this uh laminate countertop, and she had scrubbed the lacquer off. You could see this big circle where she would do the circle motion. So she would light the candle, pray the rosary, and go scrub her counter. And to me, when everyone always said, uh, when I was first trying to get sober, and they said, you need to believe in God, that's what I thought of. I go, well, that don't work. You know, I love my grandma. She's my favorite person ever. I mean, she's the most important person, one, one in the top to me. But I would watch her do that, and I didn't feel like there was any – you know i didn't feel like there was any medicine in that for her you know she always just seemed
1: were you believing scary. in the bible and the story and the book and jesus and god or were you like 50-50 or were you all in what where were you on the believability scale no i didn't
0: i just thought i just thought the story seemed crazy and i just thought um i was more concerned with fitting in and my own insecurities to worry about yeah the bible or christianity or if the, or if jesus was a thing so for me it was you know was just like oh that stuff's stupid don't yeah. work and and like i said before when i felt like i was getting yelled at all the time that's not something i want to believe in or even care about right so yeah. everyone that did i was like oh that stuff's stupid yeah you know as a kid growing up you're like oh i'm not those aren't the cool kids yeah i want to be the cool kid
1: i appreciate you sharing that cuz thousands of people are going to hear this episode and there a lot of people are going to be like that was me i relate i relate not everybody some people are going to have totally opposite experiences with sure. that but i'm trying to profile as many people as i can to get your story and document what you were thinking at the time. Um, tell me more about your childhood. Was it a struggle? Was it fun? I mean, it sounds like you had a pretty good time.
0: I kind of riff on this a little bit. So actually childhood was pretty, I look back now and a lot of wasted hours and, and pain and insecurity in my childhood. It wasn't a lot of fun actually. Um, there was moments that I cherished, but for the most part, there was a lot of pain.
1: Um, Pain due to what? Well. Just worry?
0: Now, you know, I I want to kind of say this in the least victimy way possible, but it just so happened that I found myself in multiple places where I was made fun of a lot, where I was put down a lot by not only kids my age, but adults. Mm-hmm. And I went through uh, abuse from adults too. So growing up in a place where I never felt safe to just walk out the door and be me, Uh, leads to a lack of, um, you know, leads to just a lack of joy and a lack of freedom for a kid to be a kid, right? Mm -hmm. Kids should be digging holes, getting dirty. Mm -hmm. And so kind of like where I grew up, one of the things, and not to speak bad about her, but my mother kind of, being a fear-based person it was i wasn't allowed to do a lot i was shelter like oh don't go do that oh you can get in trouble or you can get hurt uh-huh. she'd watch all those shows you know <laughs> kids getting abducted and stuff so it was yeah she was very con- controlling and overbearing I, I even lost friends uh due to that growing up and they'd say oh you know why we don't hang out anymore like your mom yeah you know and it didn't dawn on me until friends would say that and and it would you know that would hurt. You know it would hurt my feelings because because of, of that. But yeah, I will say I was I grew up I was I was real short and real overweight and kids can be cruel. So I grew up in a place where my mother, you know, really pushed me to just hang out with family instead of have friends. I found myself alone a lot growing up. Uh, I was like a little loner kid. I didn't really have a lot of friends. I was always chasing after my brother and his friends to hang out, and uh, my mother would be like, "I'll take your brother." She so it's kind of a different time where like, oh, he's got to go with you, you know, like mm-hmm. take take your brother. And and some of those are my most cherished moments, but some of them are stuff that I, you know, I seen stuff at a young age that I probably shouldn't have seen around, you know, being attracted to girls, trying to make out with girls, you know, drinking a beer and stuff like that. But there's a certain age where your brain's just not develop enough to, to understand or handle that. And there's a big difference between a 13 year old and a nine year old. Or a fourteen year old and a ten year old, right? I mean, all of a sudden puberty's hitting different stuff's going on, a thirteen year old, like my brother's age at the time, and stuff going on with me, and I was trying to fit in and and be and be. But those were the only kids that accepted me at that time, right? It was my brother and his friends. I was I was a little guy and I always tell the story as we went to this house party. This kind of spawned um, the, the dawn in the beginning of of kind of this chase of drugs and alcohol for me. So I would say I'm about 10, 11 years old, maybe 10. My brother's about 14, 15. So it's in, you know, in that time, it's the nineties. And, and uh, during the summer up in the Northeast, people would turn their garages into like little party palaces, right? So you need to be able to buy this screen and you, you would screen in your garage, keep the bugs out. And then people would put kegs and couches in there and you would sit in there and, And that's how you would enjoy your summer evenings. So one of the neighborhood gals, you know, around the way, parents were out of town. So they were having some party that my brother and his friends were going to. They're all 14, 15. So this was like, oh, we're going to have this little summer party and drink off some half a keg that's been left over for two months, you know, sitting there all warm and skanky. But that was the plan, and that's what they were going to do. And so I heard the plot going on, right? I overheard my brother and his friends talking. So, I, you know, I did what any little brother would do is I blackmail. I'll tell Ma that you're going unless you bring me. So he had no, he had no choice. So he brings me and we go to this party and I can still remember it. You know, there's some Nirvana playing in the background on, on, on a, on a mixtape, you know, that was made and, you know, guys in one part of the garage, girls in the other, and no one's talking to each other. My brother's friend's like, go talk to him, you know, pushing me to go talk to him. Cause I was the little brother that would do anything and, and um someone stuck a warm solo cup of beer in my hand you yeah. know at a young age and so i went over there and talked to these girls and like you know young girls do they kiss me on the cheek or something i'm holding this beer i take a sip of this warm beer that was disgusting you yeah know. And, <laughs> and, and, and i'm almost wanting to spit it out but i want to seem adultish to yeah. these girls so they kissed me on the cheek you know like rubbed my hair and, and like i was celebrated by my brother's friends like oh you're the man <laughs> and uh you, you know dance. i chased that feeling yeah. it's it's funny some people don't like i chased that night in that feeling i think i maybe drank another two beers i think i felt the, probably the slight, you know the slightest teeny buzz and mm-hmm but it was the whole thing right it was the attention from the women it was the celebration of these guys mm-hmm. and really what it told me was i i was i was accepted i was good enough and i wasn't feeling that way so to to get that get that feedback and it all came with booze was part of it right i mean yeah. so drinking was part of it so that night was something i've chased for a long time you know i mean i think Years later when it was like, why are you doing this stuff? And it was, you know, kind of boiling it down in a simple way, which a lot of it is, it is it was that, you know, so.
1: I wonder if, I wonder if Ross remembers that night.
0: I, you know what, I've, I've asked him about it. And he, he said it could have been a number of any nights. Right. So, he's like, I
1: don't know. Dude. Yeah. He was like, he
0: was like, you know, I, he's like, I I remember like those summer nights. Right. Yeah, so yeah. he like, he remembers that summer, yeah, but not that specific night because for him it was just yeah, whatever. Yeah. Right. But for me, it it was profound, and that's the difference, right? So to a 15-year-old mine, yeah. it's just a summer night. But to yeah. a 10-, 11-year-old mine like that, it was profound. So uh, kind of going on, it was just tough to to make friends. I was bullied a lot. I was beat up a
1: lot. Um, kids are tough up there, man. Kids are tough, and it's a tough- <laughs> Physically thing. tough. They don't just talk, they hit.
0: Yeah, so I mean, I've I've just been in fights, you know, where like- your dad watches and you're fighting again and then like when it gets too much they break it up and they're like all right you know then your dad's oh, yeah. disappointed in you because you oh, didn't throw yeah. well you know <laughs> i had one you know that i held on to this for my brother a long time where this dude was just whooping on me and you know it was winter time and i couldn't get my mitts off and, mm-hmm. and i'm trying to punch the guy and he's on top of me and i'm you know weakly doing it and this kid was like my this was my bully this was the kid that tormented me and and um I couldn't get him, you know, and so my brother, instead of like hopping in and, and this kid was two years older than me and it, and like two years younger than my brother. So he was right in between us. Yeah. So this kid's beating on me and I'm trying to get my gloves off and I couldn't. And so my brother, instead of hopping in, comes and takes my gloves off so I can hit him better, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and the kid beats and, you know, he thought he was doing what was right. And my friend's dad had to come out of the house watching and broke it up. like, All right, boys, you know? But that's the type of stuff, you know, that I grew up with and kids were tough, but also guys in the neighborhood. I mean, I was grown adults and it's a funny story about this guy, but this, there's one adult in the neighborhood that years later, I find out that he's one of us, but untreated, you know, but as a kid, you know, he would oink at me, you know, call me a pig, he'd spray me with the hose walking by. And so, you know, it's one thing when kids are doing it, right? Because you're like, all right, kids are cool. This is. I Growing up in this neighborhood, like this is what it is, right? You yeah. gotta be tough, yeah. But it's another thing when adults are doing it, right? And so, when adults are doing it, like there's just no excuse for that, and uh, so that was real tough stuff. But you know, growing up there, that's kind of how my childhood went. It was, it was, you know, instead of being made fun of and make and feel like you're less than and not accepted, I'd rather just hang out alone, I'd rather just be alone. And I had a couple little friends, and you know, they were everything to me and I'm grateful for those couple friends. I didn't have growing up, but it was really tough, man. And in the abuse from those adults in the neighborhood, um, you know, it was really, it was just tough stuff. It was hard to get over that stuff. I mean, yeah. it, it took a lot of work. It took a lot of work in this program to get over that stuff.
1: Yeah. Um, I was going to say there's a lot of tools that we have available to us in the program and they're all spiritually based tools and, to, to be able to, to deal with those kind of things. sure. On both sides of the coin, whether you were the perpetrator of those things or you the receiver of that kind of abuse, there's ways that we can look at um, and I won't go into ton of detail right now but if you're in the program, you know, and if you're coming into the program, you're going to find out. But we have a lot of spiritually sure. based tools to deal with resentments, to deal with the regrets and, and, and um, make amends to people and all kinds of uh, really cool tools that my mom and dad didn't teach me, and I never got a book about them. I had to learn them from me within the four walls of Alcoholics Anonymous and have another man, who I call my sponsor, run me through the steps and teach me uh, ways to deal with um, childhood trauma and even adult trauma, whether I was the perpetrator of those events or the victim of those events or just someone who watched, you sure. know, somebody that was in the area. Yeah. yeah. an innocent bystander or an active bystander. Um, that's one thing I like about being sober is, we've all been through a bunch of stuff and uh, the program is set up to be able to help all of us overcome our past. If we choose to, we might not do it early in recovery. It could be, it could be a couple decades in before we remember something or we cover something, but there's, there's always time for, for healing and recovery. So let's, I got a good idea what your childhood looks like, or a pretty good idea what your childhood looks like. Let's talk about, um, your your first few drinks after that or maybe when you started drinking on a regular basis and what did alcohol do for you
0: sure so i like to kind of give a little like lead up into it so
1: now as you get into the teen years uh i
0: found myself being
1: very angry uh, okay. a lot and were you showing it or were you, was it manifesting itself or no, were you just holding it inside i just held
0: it inside so Here's a, here's a big thing. I like to tell this story because it's, it's important. It's an important story in my recovery and I I like to loop, loop back around to it. So helps me to kind of stay linear with this. So a few years after I'm about 13 years old, I'm in, I'm in middle school. This is before, you know, I'm really doing anything. Those couple drinks that I had with the summer thing, it was just always a memory, right? Something I wanted to get back to, but it wasn't, I wasn't thinking about doing anymore. So I'm about 13 years old, you know, I'm in middle school at some point and um it's halloween time so i'm hanging out with some friends and at this time i'm, I'm acting up i'm doing weird shit you know i'm shooting cars with bb guns and, <laughs> and doing stuff like that uh you know rambunctious stuff but so we find this there's this giant pumpkin i mean it, it I, I could barely get my arms around it to pick it up off this dude's porch so i go and i pick it up and i and i we slam it on the ground we break it that's what you know kids were doing breaking pumpkins and this guy comes out and he was all drunk and and uh you know, he tuned me and a buddy up. I mean, just in the middle of the street, dragging us. You know, he,
1: he, he, y'all hit were me. supposed to run after you break the plug. Well, we did,
0: <laughs> we did, and we ran, but like we ran a few doors down. Then this guy came out, and then, you know, sometimes like one of adults, like screaming at you, I don't know why we just stopped. I mean, we're kids, you know, so we didn't think this was going to happen. So, <laughs> you know, he kind of rubs us both up. And I go home and I tell my mom, you know what happened my mom right away goes well you need to go upstairs you know so i'm like oh okay and so 13 year old boy only wants one thing right he wants his you know my dad's gonna go be chill you. you know my dad's tougher than your dad type stuff so all the only thing i wanted was it was someone to go stick up for me right so i'm waiting up all night and my mom's trying to get a hold of my dad and and i and i tried to stay up i tried to stay up and who knows what time it was when i fell asleep maybe midnight but my dad had never came home i never heard what happened and my family had this uh my family had this incredible ability just not to talk about stuff like i don't know about you but in the house i grew up in my family something bad would happen the next day it's like hey how you doing you know it was just we didn't talk about stuff again when stuff was happening in the moment it would be discussed and maybe exhausted but then all of a sudden it's like it never happened so the next day it was like nothing you know my dad you okay yeah all right cool and like nothing happened all the stuff so so at the time uh, when this kitchen table, my dad was going to get his master's degree. Uh, he was doing night school and stuff, so always all these papers on on the table and stuff. So, and we would do our schoolwork there. Our whole kitchen table was just inundated, you know, with these papers. And so, like, I don't know, three weeks or so, four weeks have gone by. And now, mind you, I'm coming off of a lot of this abuse and being made fun of. I feel terrible about myself. I'm feeling very alone. I feel like no one like loves me, supports me uh you know like i said I'm about 12 or whatever it is and so uh and this thing still go every time i we drive by this guy's house so obviously i think about it right and just a real unsafe moment for a kid so i keep waiting for it to be talked about this is never talked about so i find this letter it's like in this stack of paper but it wasn't on the top you know so i'm like eating cereal some lucky charms or something in the morning before school waiting for the bus and I find this, this letter and I pull it out. And my dad had written this letter to the guy that he had never sent. It was a threatening letter, but he just, like, I never sent it. And I remember at that moment thinking to myself, if I'm not even worth enough to send a letter for, then, then like, you know, no one, must, no one must really love me or care about me. And it was at that moment I I, I cried uh i was actually i was 11 actually now i'm thinking about it i cried i was 11 years old i cried about it and i didn't cry again for another 11 years till i got sober i stopped i stopped crying and it was i was hurt so bad by it that i felt like because i was just coming off of all this abuse and coming off all this being made fun of and being beat up and you know kids would take my shoes and i'd have to walk home barefoot in the snow type so i was coming off of just years of this and no one protected me right was coming off years of this and then this happening i go oh no because it was always this thought like maybe you're not good enough maybe no one loves you and i was always fighting it i called the great science experiment you know and the alcoholic knows what i'm talking about every situation i walk in i'm it's the science experiment am i good enough does this person like me am i lovable whatever it is right and i'm and i'm keeping score oh mike was nice me all right i must be good enough or, well, I don't really trust it. I'm gonna come back and test it later, right? And it's like what we do. And so in that moment I made the decision that like only I'm gonna take care of myself. You know, and right after that I started smoking cigarettes when I you know, started stealing drinks and that propelled me, you know, moving forward. All of a sudden I started getting in trouble. All of a sudden I started getting suspended from school. I mean, that hurt was so deep that I made a decision that propelled me over the next bunch of years. And that it was like a fork in the road. And I went the way that I went Mm -hmm. based off of that information. So I remember the real first time that, uh, drink profoundly affected me. Uh, I was up in Watertown, New York on a white water rafting trip with the boy scouts uh, I was in Boy Scouts. I am an Eagle Scout. And so, my, yeah, and my brother was there. I want to say now, this is a couple of years after, after that, where it was like the first drunk, actually. I, I was, like I said, I was 14, maybe a freshman in high school at the time. I had sneaking drinks and got a little buzz. This is the first drunk that I had. And, um, I remember my brother's friend, Jamie, you know, great guy. You actually guys share the same last name. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that was one of the first things I was drawing to you. You kind of look like him and remind me of him a little bit too. But we're all up there. We're, I mean, we're just drinking. Yeah. We had this great time. It was just a great time. Like everyone was just part of the guys. We were playing. We played football. We went on hikes. We you know, smoking cigarettes and just being one of the guys. And I remember uh, carrying that stuff, right? I told you, like, I didn't cry. I had this, like, big profound thing where I just felt not good enough. And I remember taking those drinks. All that went away.
1: All that emotional turmoil
0: just went away. Just went like I, in those, in that moment, in the communication with those guys, there was no concern whether or not I was good enough. The science experiment stopped. And I don't know if you're anything like me, but that science experiment of testing every situation, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. Yeah. And it's painful. It could be real painful because me, you know, I'm, when you're there, it's not optimism, it's pessimism, right? So I'm, I'm obviously judging myself at losing every time in that science experiment. Oh, they don't like me. Ah, oh, I'm not as funny as I think. Oh, I'm not as good as I think. and And so you feel that day in, day out. I mean, to get a break from that, that's everything, right? I mean, and so that's the medicine of drugs and alcohol for me. It's a break from that. It's a break from that thinking. It's a break from that tornado that's in the brain so you know exactly what what happened that night was nothing profound it wasn't like uh you know it wasn't like oh it, was, it was like winning the super bowl or anything it was just a break it was a break from from that craziness in my head you know and then at that age you got to go back to school you know and like now okay the weekend's over you went and now you're back in school and you're like oh this sucks i can't wait to do that again right because then you're back to this you're back to it you're back to the trying to fit in you're back to trying to be the chameleon you're back to you know, avoiding situations where you could be found out or made fun of. So, you know, those years of middle school and in high school were just, just terrible. Right. So, uh, come to the end of my sophomore year of high school, I'm, I'm about five, nine and a half, 260 pounds. So I'm shorter and I'm overweight. And I remember it's stuff like I would ask a girl to the end of the year dance as a sophomore. She would say, no, you know, I, I, I literally got shot down one time because a girl said she was doing her hair. Right? So, <laughs> that summer i go on this trip to new mexico boy scout trip and i grow from uh five nine to six five wow in about five in about five six weeks I mean, it was quick congratulations and i shot up really big and i and i thinned out and all of a sudden i got handsome <laughs> uh and, and so i all of a sudden i sh- show up back to school and everyone treated me different yeah so before i've made fun of a lot know, and, and like i had a couple of good friends and like thank god for them. and there's still some you know we may not talk like regularly or anything like that but i love these guys you know and, and i'm grateful for them but like I, the people weren't nice to me all of a sudden i get half handsome and i shoot up a, you know, almost a foot and all of a sudden everyone's like hey man you want to come hang out at the party oh hey man you want and that same girl that turned me down all of a sudden wanted to go to homecoming with me right i mean so it was just a weird thing and i learned this weird lesson that people suck right i mean that was like the lesson at that that's the lesson
1: you got from that yeah i was like people suck man they're, really? they're mean to you until
0: they're mean to you and and, uh, and mind you like I, my whole childhood was being made fun of for the way i look right being short and fat and picked on and all of a sudden i hit this girl spurt and everyone's nice to me and i'm like these motherfuckers <laughs> so then it really wasn't about who i am my character it was about how i looked right
1: yeah and if you look a certain way then you're okay kids are shallow like that not all of them i'm not shooting down all no it's been but, but a lot of them back in our day we like i think it's better now i think it's better now i think it's better now from all the news reports i hear and from what my kid tells me they're not allowed to bully anymore um, i mean in the 70s and 80s they're like get it dog you yeah know, like you said people would just watch but i don't think they're really allowed to do that i'm sure it still happens all the time but it's not socially accepted like it was and i don't think it's as cliquish as it was and I think that children are being parented differently and told differently. And I'll give you a real life example of what I mean by that. Like I've mentioned my son almost every episode. So here we go again. When my son's 12 and he is in um, fifth grade right now. And when he was in fourth grade, it was either third or fourth grade. I was driving him to school one day and he was talking about bullies. He was talking about bullies and this, that, and the other. And I told him, I said, listen, man, here's the deal. I want you, because he's loved and respected and he's a bigger kid and people like him, he's a leader. The reason I'm telling you that is because there are other people in his school and in his class that are not loved and respected and and are leaders. And and those are the ones that get picked on. So what I told him when he was going to school one morning, him and I were driving there, I said, uh, hey, Michael, on the playground and stuff, what I want you to do when you see other boys and girls getting bullied is to intervene. I want you to step in and become a protector of whoever's getting bullied for whatever reasons. And I gave him some different tools and ways to stop it, diffuse it and get an adult involved and let him know that I wanted him to uh, not participate in that and try to diffuse it and stop. And if it continues to happen, let me know about it and I'll step in uh, or we'll get parents involved or we'll get teachers involved And his school takes it seriously. So it's just kind of it felt good to instruct my kid to um, be a part of the solution versus a part of the problem, you know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, parenting makes a big difference, right? And, and I think information makes a big difference. I, I don't think anyone goes into it being like, can't wait to ruin this kid's life, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's everyone trying to do the best they can or people just being sick themselves. So I think it's real important that th- this stuff gets addressed, you know, and I talk about it as a man because I'm a big man. And a lot of men don't like to talk about this stuff and how it hurt their feelings, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I think now more so than ever, we are, in an era, we are in an era where recovery has become cool and supported and mainstream, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, so even when you and I first started, it wasn't. Nowadays, it's like, oh, you don't drink? Like, nope. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. yeah why not? You, you got a problem with it? Yep. Been mm-hmm. 15 years. Congratulations. I mean, it's real just like, it's chill now. Yeah. Compared to, I mean, I think if some of those guys got sober in 1980, I mean, what what was thought of them, right, with yeah. their peers? So I I look at us, and I think we, we're fortunate that we're in the dawn that we are, having opportunities like this and, me, and mediums like this to be able to speak about it.
1: Yeah. It's fun to have this podcast because you and I talking are letting other people know what other people are thinking and feeling, and that's hopefully going to pull people out of sure. their loneliness or their shell or their isolation of and their thought process of, oh, well, that's just the world. That's just how people are. Sure. That's just how it is. Well, no, maybe not. Sure. You might be wrong because you and I are sitting here talking about it today. And I'll go back to that story real quick and close it about the kid on the playground. I'm going to make up a girl's name. This is not the person that I'm talking about. Let's say her name was Stacy. And Stacy has autism. St- Stacy's on the scale. She's somewhere, you know, on the scale of autism. And I, and I was she was the one getting boldy And I told my son, you know, step in, take care of it. And I told my son, I go... Listen, here's the deal, Michael. No one's allowed to pick on her because she has a hard enough time as it is. Her life is difficult enough as it is. And just to let you know, since people like you, love you and respect you and you're a leader and they'll listen to you, the rule is she cannot be picked on. That's not negotiable. That's not something that we can kind of think about. You know, you as a third, fourth and fifth grader, you need to step up on the playground as a leader and say she is off limits. She's not allowed to be picked on. Uh, she has a hard enough time. Everybody back off of her. And if you don't, I'll get my dad involved or I'll get the principal involved or I'll get the teacher involved or, or her parents involved. Something will happen. There'll be consequences. You're not allowed to to mess with her. It felt good for me to pour into him like that because my dad never told me that. No. My dad never. He would just open the door and be like, good luck, bro. You know, yeah. and then after school, he'd be like, what'd you have for lunch? I'd be like, yo, I got a knuckle sandwich for lunch. Dude, some kid punched me in the mouth. He'll be like, what do you want for dinner? Yeah. And I'll be like Bro, I just, what? Yeah, it was just so different back there. Different, 100%. It it was so different back there.
0: By the time I hit high school and that change happened to me, I was ready to leave, right?
1: Ready to leave where?
0: I was ready to leave. Buffalo? Where where I lived. That was the problem. Where were you going to go? Well, I was looking forward to going to college, right? That would okay. that was, was going to fix the situation. All right. And how and, was your drinking and drugging doing at that time? So, by the time I was a junior in high school and after that big growth spurt and all that and all that anger that I assumed with it, which was really just carried over, right? I mean, you grow that much in in 6 weeks, you know, my psyche didn't catch up with with the growth spurt. So, I needed some outlet, and that's when I started smoking pot regularly. Uh, that's when I started drinking as often as I can. Uh, pop was a big thing. Pain medication was a big thing. That was real big in the,
1: were you getting prescribed pain medication? The two
0: thousands. Well, it was just everywhere. You know, it was you like, just, you steal it from your, uh, uh yeah. steal it from your friend's mom's cabinet.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, can I use your mom's bathroom yeah. for a minute, bro? Your older <laughs> cousin, your older cousins has it. So all of a sudden it went from, you know, Oh, I may add a drink or two here or there. Or I, I remember these great times with drinking and became a regular deal. Are, are you an
1: alcoholic and a drug addict? Or are you? Yes. Okay. Yeah.
0: So, I mean, smoking pot really regularly happened.
1: Did your parents know? Did they catch on?
0: Uh, I, I think also at that point, definitely not so much. Maybe when I was a junior, I was busy. But as my senior year, it was like, like you're not doing this. I mean, they knew, but it was like, oh, well, he's just being a kid. And I think my dad had experiences with it you know that he's admitted to and we've talked about and i just think he's like oh well like i don't do it anymore it's just a phase he's going through uh, another important thing started happening where i didn't have to experience consequences to my drinking and drugging at that time i was so good at football so this thing happened where with this growth i got really good at football
1: what did like, you play uh, what position
0: uh well, i played at tackle offensive tackle and, and uh in high school so all of a sudden I hit the scroll spurt. I'm in all the newspapers. I'm a top prospect. And so when stuff would happen, like I'd come to school stinking like weed or uh, maybe run in with a police officer or something like that, it would be like, well, you got a big game Friday. <laughs> so, I mean, it was a lot of stuff like that. Or the, the coach would come and get you and, you know, here you could take a nap on my couch in, in his office.
1: Did the teachers oh, yeah. ever come to your coach? I don't know how you were doing academically, but did the teachers ever come to your coach and be like, "Yo, he's has he hasn't written the last three papers? No, what no. are you doing?" And then he's like, oh, oh.
0: <laughs> "I was a uh, I was like a B student." And okay, good. There was never any of that. Okay, it wasn't an option in my household. You got bad grades. It wasn't one thing. Is academics was so important, my father, and uh, That's so good. I still did the work, but it was just you know everyone the biggest the biggest description of Brad at mm-hmm. that age was he's got a lot of potential. Yeah. We got to watch him. It. He's got a lot of potential. <laughs> you probably did. Yeah, and I did. And I had great. So, a, a lot of stuff was I should have been in trouble. Like, let's, I, I look back on it now, like, it should have been like, hey, dude, we're, we're, put, we're going to nip this in the bud right now. But it was, it wasn't. I would keep getting out of trouble. So, it was always about getting out. I was always about getting out. Like, when I get out of here, everything's going to change. Right. Like I'm going to meet new people. I'm going to, I'm going to finally go be the star that I think I should be.
1: Right. I mean, that's, that's an exciting time.
0: It it was. And it was just like, I can't wait. And I get a division one scholarship to go play football. And I go, and then when I went to college, I changed positions. uh, I think just due to the, the massive amount of, of working out and I couldn't keep the weight up. So, I actually ended up changing to tight end um, okay. because of that, but it was start. It was part of that thinking. You know, I always tell people like don't identify. You know, there's very few people who go play Division One college football, right? So don't have, don't identify with that. And if you do, great. We're kindred spirits, but identify with the feelings. There was this geographic cure that I was looking for. I was looking for something to change the way I felt, just like drugs and alcohol were. If I go somewhere else, I can be someone else. don't know all of this baggage of people making fun of me and who I was and like living in my brother's shadow like I said I get to go be who I want and I went and it was just you know life life happens right like every nothing's giving you easy it's tough a lot of working out and a lot of the same stuff I was so ill-equipped for being like a young adult or and I was so I lacked so much maturity that instead of going just being a good soldier up there playing football and kind of fitting in and keeping my mouth shut, like I'm up there arrogantly talking trash to four-year starters being like, I'm going to take your spot. I'm a freshman. It was like first first week there on campus, you know, and I made a lot of enemies. People were like, I, I hate this guy. And, and I like just constantly did this crap to myself. Right. Cause I was like seeing some crap in a movie. I'm like, oh, this is how I'm going to get the respect. Right. I was, I was so convinced everyone's just not going to like me off the bat or, you know, i like, I need to do something profound, uh, gain everyone's respect or something. So it wasn't, that wasn't an easy time either, but that's where I, you know, started drinking heavily. And also doing heroin. So uh, outside issues. Yeah. So
1: no, not outside uh, issues in this podcast. Yeah. So
0: a lot of people, a lot of people don't really, I would do doubt and play college football what
1: and, kind of heroin. I don't, I don't know a lot about heroin. You can sniff it or shoot yeah, it. Yeah. Right? Yeah.
0: You can. So up there it was powder. Like, and you were sniffing it.
1: It's like a brown powder, right? Mm-hmm.
0: So, and it was pretty, it was popular. I mean, well, was, how
1: does it make you feel when you sniff heroin? What does it do to you? I never did it.
0: Oh, uh, it's, it's just like taking, have you ever taken an Oxycontin?
1: Yeah, it's similar to that. So it just mellows you out.
0: Yeah, you're you're numbed, you're mellowed out.
1: You know, you does get, it last very long? Uh, well, in the beginning, it does. Like how long? Fifteen minutes or fifteen hours? No,
0: I mean the stuff we were getting back then. I mean, it would last for a whole day.
1: Yeah. It really, just mellow you out the whole day. Yeah,
0: you're just nodding out, passing oh, out mean, all hey. day. Yeah, and then as your <laughs> tolerance gets, you know, builds up, it's it's a different deal. Um,
1: Did you know that that was you're being a bad boy? I mean, you're buying heroin and sniffing it. Where you're like, what am I doing? I mean, because that's a big. Big.
0: I think, I think I got up there and I thought that this experience was going to be what changed my life and propelled it. But I got up there and screwed it up. Okay. Because was just not prepared. Okay. And so I was once again, like wherever you go, that's where you're at. Right. And so I brought all my crap with me. Yeah. And I'm in the same crap. Now I'm miserable again. Mm-hmm.
1: And the heroin and did what for you? allowed you to just. It's just
0: the same thing. It took all that away. Just, just like, just like the night. White water rafting with my, with mm-hmm. my brother and his friends, it all went away.
1: Or did you get to turned onto it through other football players or people in the dorm or, or through other football players, other football players. Yeah,
0: There was actually a captain on our football team, um, that was selling drugs. I mean, he was yeah. big, like moved pretty decent weight for a 20 year old. Yeah. You know? Um, that was a corrupt place. And I will say that that experience, um, I look back on that experience. I wouldn't change it because it was definitely part of my story and what I needed, but, um, the geographical cure to not didn't work. Yeah. So I, I made it there as long as I did. I returned back to Buffalo just because I'm getting terrible grades and, uh, I ended up getting hurt. So the handful of seasons I did play, I had to move back home and, um, now I'm back to the place I was trying to run away from doing what? And I just, so one of the first uh, doctors that got in trouble for this um, overprescribing of the, the opiates. So there's a Hulu documentary or whatever dope sick. I think people have talked about Mm -hmm. Michael Keaton on it Yeah, they're talking about um, the Oxycontin deal. Well, I was one of the early people I was getting prescribed Okay, and I was on multiple 80 milligram Oxycontins a day Mm -hmm. and the doctor was prescribing him. was like, Oh, don't worry, big guy. Oh, it's not addictive. Don't worry about, I mean, they were pushing it. Now we knew on the street what it was, so I was happy to get it. But this guy, um, one day I come in because the feds were breathing down his neck. One day I come in, I went from multiple 80s a day to 310 hydrocodone a day. I instantly went into being dope sick. And this guy ended up getting arrested, was one of the first ring of doctors that got arrested and put in federal custody for the overprescribing and taking kickbacks, the sunshine rule. Um, So they, he, he was one of the, big ones and i happened to find this i was going to this guy up in buffalo at a you know pain clinic Mm -hmm. so you know i will say i don't like to talk too much about this this point in my story but i mean it got dark quick the drug use got worse and worse running the streets just doing dirt and those moments propel me into going into my first treatment center, right? Stuff started happening that scared me and I got caught and I went to my first treatment center. I'm
1: gonna ask you two questions before we get there. Um did you ever have blackouts?
0: Yeah. So the couple times that I've had blackouts have come really random, strange times, but it wasn't a regular occurrence for me. But the times I did have blackouts were very strange times.
1: You just said that that is a part of your story that you don't like to talk about there that much, which I totally respect and understand. But can you give us like a, an example of one thing you're talking about? Oh, sure.
0: There, sure. It's um. I think when I speak from the podium, I don't talk about it often just because it gets redundant. Finding schemes and thefts of you know robbing stores to go fence the stuff or robbing mom's purse and then running down in the hood to buy to buy dope, you know, just to stop being sick and and you know to that whole life or drinking 40s while you're taking the one shower you've taken in the last three or four days and the 40s hanging out the shower while you're watching yourself
1: Mm -hmm. just got
0: dark yeah just robbing places and just you know just held up and um, selling all your stuff you know robbing friends stuff to sell and just Mm -hmm.
1: did you ever take stuff to the pawn shop oh yeah did you really
0: yeah I, i just just a bunch of crap i remember one time I was walking by, I was like, oh
1: man, I, you know,
0: something's got to, I'm, I'm in the inner city in Buffalo like, something's got to come and I'm walking by and this convertible car pulled up, guy got out I just happened to be walking by, you know, and I'm like, oh, I'll just steal this dude's briefcase, you know, cool. or I, you know, it was kind of one of those things, there's computer in there and all this stuff and straight to pawn in it. I mean, it was that type of stuff. The reason why I find it to be irrelevant is, is like, yes, I know a lot of people can identify with that. But at the same time, it's just really redundant. It's just a black hole of existence where you're committing crimes and you're trying to buy dope, and it's just it's the cycle of that, which I don't really think um, benefits any of us in a way of.
1: I think it it does benefit some people, not all the people, because a lot of the people in recovery were um, soccer moms that drank wine every day. So if you've got soccer moms that drank wine every day and it got to be a problem and they developed alcohol addiction and they're listening to this, they might not be able to relate exactly to hanging out like you did. But there's definitely some people out there that are living on the fringes of society, we will say. Uh, at certain points due to their addiction, that we'll be able to identify sure. uh, completely. And that's the good point, because now we have uh, we, we know where you were living. And then later in the podcast, in a few minutes, we'll get to where you are now. Did you ever get to the point where you shot heroin, or was it only sniffing it?
0: No, it was intravenous use as well. Um, and that was due to a straight fiscal reason. What does that mean? It costs so, less to yeah, shoot? Yeah, so, I mean, you get to a point where uh, you're, you know, I was... After kind of sniffing heroin in college, I got away from it, and it was just back to, like, pain meds and, you know, trying to figure it out. But then that stuff, the street value shot up. So it was like, we couldn't afford it, right? Yeah. So, like, one you know, Oxycontin became, like, a dollar a milligram. And, you know, when you're unemployed and don't have much going on, sp- spending $80 for a pill was just became too much. So it's like, oh, you spend $80 on a pill, or you can get, you know, 10 bags of heroin for less than that, 60 bucks or whatever, And so you go, oh, well, I might as well get that. So then you've blown back the blowing heroin. And then all of a sudden you're like, well, for me to get to a point where you want to get in terms of the way you feel, now I'm doing the 10 bags of well, I got to do six at a time just to knock that edge off. So then all of a sudden when you're doing all of it and it's not getting you to where you want to go, then you're like, well, if you shoot it, it's only going to take one bag at a time, this stuff will last you longer. So it just became like a real fiscal decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, Were you
1: scared at that point oh, for yeah. yourself? Oh yeah. Uh, Cause not only copying it is scary, but
0: yeah, the whole deal is scary.
1: The whole thing is scary. The whole is
0: scary. And, and part True. of, part True. of, uh, part of the cycle is like, you get, you get used to that.
1: Yeah, well, I'm sure you would quickly within 14 days of getting on the smack. I mean, I'm sure you're living in that world and that becomes part of your psychosis. Let me ask you a question that I do not know the answer to. And this could just be something that I've seen on TV. The only experience I have with this question is the stuff I've seen on TV. I've always seen a lot. It seems like that people have to shoot heroin on the toilet and they sit on the (laughs) toilet to shoot up, I guess, in case they're going to go to the bathroom or they're going to fall asleep quickly and they call it nodding out. Did you ever? Is that a thing or is that fake? I
0: mean, I'm sure sure people enjoy. I'm sure people tend to shoot. I think it's because it's like a safe place you can go lock yourself in a room and do it. Okay. I think that has a lot to do with it. Okay. And I also think too a lot of people that do it, there's a they have a reaction. Sometimes they throw up right after. I mean, depending on where you're at in the stage of doing it. Uh huh. So sometimes there's actual just like a visceral physical reaction to doing it where you just like throw up. Uh huh. So maybe you're there. I don't know. I. I didn't. I just did it wherever I was. I didn't look okay. for a bathroom, but I think some people just lock themselves in a bathroom. It's, uh-huh. it's a real kind of. It's a almost paints the picture of where you are at spiritually in your life. Right, I'm gonna lock myself in this little room while I do this deal. I mean, it's a good representation of kind of where you're at. But uh, yeah, I mean, it just wasn't a pretty thing. And I think running the streets and doing that and acting that way you know, you start crossing a lot of lines that you knew you weren't raised. You knew you weren't raised. Your mom and
1: dad are not proud of you for the way that you're living and what you're doing, but you can't, but I've been there, man. I've been there with alcohol and drug addiction and it's not for me, intravenous heroin use or sniffing it or anything heavy cocaine use or anything like that. For me, it was more alcohol and marijuana, but the thing is I want to echo what you just said is, a lot of the things that I was doing on a daily basis to support my drinking and drugging habit at the frequency and quantity and quality that I wanted to operate at forced me into a position where I had to do a lot of sketchy things. Mm -hmm. I'll just use the term sketchy things. And I had to live on the fringes of uh, society and what's acceptable and not acceptable. And so what I found that I had to do since I, drinking stopping drinking and drugging was not on the table or negotiable. I had to lower my moral standards as fast as I could because I had to continue to do things that uh, would finance sure. fi- financial, I mean let's be honest, financial uh, you know, wherewithal is a big part of active alcoholism and drug addiction. What can you finance your habit with? Some it ain't usually ain't free. You no. know, <laughs> even for beautiful women it ain't free. No. you got to, you know, there's all kinds of trades going on here and there and all kinds of uh, things going on. I, I had to finance my, my drug and alcohol addiction. And so I had to start doing sketchy things and I had to lower my moral standards, but I found that I was having trouble lowering my moral standards as fast as my desire for alcohol drugs was accelerating and going vertically. Sure. Um, so I was trying as fast as I could to lower my moral standards. And I remember thinking when I was doing some things, uh, at the end of my drinking career, I was thinking, I was not raised like this, man. My mom and dad did not program me to be this dude. No, no. They would not be proud of me doing what I'm doing. I know they can't see what I'm doing right, right now, and they don't know what I'm doing right now, but I do, and I'm not that kid from that part of the country. From the, If they the, did the, see you, they'd be shocked Yeah, because they were living in their own world sure. about me, and they had a level of denial about me and who I was Absolutely. and what was going on with him. They didn't want to see it. They didn't want to deal with it. They didn't want to hear about it. And a good thing for me or a bad thing for me, I don't know if I should even be using the labels good and bad, is I hit my bottom in California. I hit my bottom in Southern California where my parents were in Texas and my sister was in Texas. So my sinking ship of alcoholism and drug addiction active ended in Carlsbad, California. And I did all my debauchery and um, just basically coming to terms with the fact that I was an alcoholic and a drug act and I was going to need help to stop In San Diego County, Ventura County, Los Angeles County, uh, the Angeles National Forest, places like that. And I just uh, got to a place where I wasn't super proud of what I was doing. Can you tell us about the last couple of years of your drinking and what led you into recovery? The
0: everyday thing started happening where it was, I would get caught, I'd get sent to a detox or treatment, I'd get out, redo it. I'd get caught. Now, mind you, all the times I get out of treatment, it was always, and this, this leads into, like, first step experience, uh, experience, but it was always some other fault. Oh, man, that w- if that cop wasn't sitting there, really what the problem was is she left, or, you know, the problem is I can't find a job, or whatever it was, right? Like, there was always someone else's fault.
1: Shouldn't have been hanging out with Tony.
0: Yeah, whatever. so whatever was going on. So I would get out of treatment. I would get sent to groups. Like I would get sent to AA and A groups, whatever.
1: Did you have to get your paper signed? Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, no, not yet. So I'd go to these groups, and it was like I was either always way worse or not as bad as everyone in these meetings. And I think that's a big reason why I don't like to talk about exactly what I did because it could turn people off. I sponsor a lot of guys that like there was real kind of high bottom and so when i sit there and go oh well you know this happened i'm not in an addict smoking crack holding a baby or something people go oh so you know i i I would go to meetings i would hear stuff like that and i would go oh well i'm not like look at that scumbag i'm not like that or man i'm so much worse than these people you know like i'm never gonna get this thing so i was in and out you know so finally i've i've just done things I'm not proud of. I get to this point. It's the beginning of winter in 2006. At this time, my mother had politely asked me to stay away from her house. You know, it was, I wasn't
1: allowed over anymore. Was it really politely? Uh, did she really ask you politely? No, not at all.
0: It was It was stay away.
1: Yeah with, your, uh, <laughs> yeah, with her lineage, I don't think she maybe was no, polite.
0: No, it was stay away. And so what I did was uh, beginning of December, I kicked the door into their house. I steal all the Christmas presents. I go pawn them one more time. And something happened this day. You know, it's just like every any other any other time I did crappy stuff. But the big book and the program talks about this moment of clarity. At this moment of clarity, so I sold all the stuff. I come home.
1: Were you still living at the house then? Uh, oh No, you you come on and off. Yeah, a little bit here, a little bit there. Yeah. Yeah. Were you just gonna try to act like somebody broke into the house and stole all the stuff? You don't know nothing about it. Well, that
0: was the first thing. Is like I I always used to have these stories and schemes. (laughs) This was the first time I just didn't care.
1: Okay. Yeah,
0: like every other time I would do it. So obviously I didn't care enough not to do it. But this is the first time I was like, yeah, like there's no. So I'm sitting there at my mother's kitchen table. I'd broken back in and I'd I'd had some drugs. And so I go, well, I couldn't picture life, living life like that anymore. But I couldn't picture not living life like that. It's the true jumping off place. Like I couldn't picture with it, with drugs and alcohol and without. I couldn't picture that life. Early December two thousand six. That it, was your moment of clarity. That was my moment of clarity. Were you
1: by yourself sitting at that table? At was, your mom's house? I
0: was. My father was at work. My brother lived out of state at the time. Were there tears? Um, yeah. I mean, I'm balling. I'm balling myself. I'm holding my head in my hands, and I, I just, I, I, I just can't do this anymore. I I, I, I can't explain. I can't explain the the black hole feeling that is. I don't know if there's any Harry Potter fans out there, but when those Dementors come along and they start sucking the soul out of them, and he said, uh, "I never thought there'd ever be happiness again," you know, like there was, there was no happiness in the world. I mean, that's how it felt to me. I mean, that's where I was at. True, just ending moment. And I don't speak of this lightly, but it is part of my story. That my next decision was, well, I'm gonna go ahead and I'm just gonna end it here. I've been to five treatment centers; nothing works i've been on several detoxes this cycle just going over and over and over the same crap it's just the same thing i would go i'd I'd do good for a few weeks or a month or so i'd be back on it and then go and like it's the same cycle i couldn't picture putting my family through it anymore and i knew i wasn't gonna make i i knew i was gonna die plus like some of the stuff i was doing was getting worse and worse i knew i wasn't gonna make it through that christmas like i just knew it i just knew it so i go you know i'm just gonna end it here and the my this is my best thinking is how sick I was. My best thinking was, I'm going to do it in my mother's kitchen. Because this way she'll find me. I'm going to end it in my mother's kitchen. She'll find me. If I do it at some dope house or somewhere, in there, they'll just roll my big body out into the alley. And, and there's like three feet of snow. So they won't find me till you know the plow comes or whatever. My mother will be worried about me. So I'll just do it here so she can find me. That was my best thinking. It was about 3 o'clock. And I took all every you know piece of drug that I had, and I went out. And I don't remember what happened, but I do remember waking up about four hours later, in my own vomit, throw up, feces. So, and I stand up, and I was, and I couldn't believe I wasn't dead. It's just the despair that hit me from that not even working, and I remember standing up, and I. I I could still picture what I was wearing. I had this black Sabbath t-shirt I was wearing. I had long, I had hair down past my shoulder. I this terrible mustache that I had. I don't even know what was going on. I thought I was rock and roll. And uh, I remember looking in this mirror. My mother had this little like mirror. And I remember when like painting on mirrors was a big thing, right? So there's this was, like mirror in my mother's uh, hallway. And uh, I remember there's like little flowers painted on the side of it. That mirror's no longer there, but i remember looking in that mirror and and it was the first time i didn't even know it was looking back at me it was like the skeleton pasty white skin you know just bad oily skin at the time and remember staring at it just going what i I didn't know what was what was looking at me it was like a character i was looking at. i couldn't believe it and i was so dead like i couldn't even cry i mean i was still i was very under the influence but i just i was so dead and empty um It was just a really dark place and my mother walks in from work and she looks at me and here's all the stuff I put this woman through. She looks at me and it's unfazed. She's like, what are you doing here? It wasn't, I mean, obviously there's pee on the floor, throw up on the floor. I'm high as hell, right? It wasn't, what are you doing? It was just, what are you doing here? No tears going on. Then she saw the Christmas presents gone and that's when she started crying. So my ma came to me and I said, ma, if you don't, and the, I said, if you don't give me help now, I'm not going to make it for you. I'll give you days. I'm going to make it days. I just knew it. There, it was un- undoubtable truth to me that I was going to die within the next few weeks. Like, that's just where I was at. You know, you always hear these stories, you know, you hear these people that were just strung out and you're like, oh, we knew he was heading there. Like last month it was dark. I mean, that's where I was at. And I told her, and it was the first time that I asked for help. Every other time. I'd gotten caught. Every other time, I'd run out of options, right? I mean, got no money, no job, dope man ain't giving me nothing free no more. It was like, all right, I'll go. This was the first time I said, Ma, if you don't do it, I'm not going to make it. And she looked at me and, and it shocked her because it was the first time I've ever reached out. And she sprung into action. She had a plan waiting, like they were waiting. They talked to a treatment center and they said, well, we can't force them. So just let's be ready. So next thing I know, I black out. I come to, we're in Target. My mom's handing me toiletries. Hold this. What the? I'm like, Ma, what are we doing? She's like, what? I mean, just blew her mind. I'm just like, what's going on? And and like, obviously we were just having these conversations and I've never, and then I go back out. I come back to, and I remember we're in my dad's car he's driving and it's snowing out it's december it's buffalo and i look outside and uh Ma, where are we going and it must have freaked her out because obviously we had been talking about where i was going i said where are we going and she goes "Uh, it's just the first thing that came to her mouth we're going to get ice cream it's december 5th 2006 we're oh, okay i mean that's how far gone i was i passed back out i come to in handcuffs in the airport and i and i come to and i look over and my mother's crying please let him on the plane and this was back so it's early 2000s post 9 11 that all the homeland security guards especially international airports buffalo's right on the border of canada so a lot of you know international flights coming in and out of there and you know those are guys with m16s standing there that was back then you know and so i remember that and so my mother's begging the guy he's going we're sending him the treatment please let him go and the guy looks at me and i'm snapping too i'm like wow it's in handcuffs this guy in army fatigues got me in handcuffs i'm like oh my god
1: well, what side of security were you on were you all, had you already gone through security were you trying to go through security i was trying were- to go through security yeah okay so
0: right. i got bit there and the reason was is i had this belt i, just, I told you i thought i was rock and roll mm. i had this belt that had fake bullets on it
1: okay okay and so even impersonating <laughs>
0: even impersonating a weapon at airports is a felony so um Wow. Right? and i'm like coming to and my mom was like well, just throw the belt out it's fake bullets and uh the guy looked at my mom, saw the severity in her eyes and uh that's how you know mothers are a little bit closer to god than anyone else right and that's my belief so my mother obviously channeled something there because this guy could have been like sorry lady like we're, we're sending this good." but he obviously seen what type of shape i was in he seen my mother and father and my mother's plead I think came straight from the angels to this guy's heart, right? Because it, it profoundly, I mean, he didn't have to let this happen. So is don't all this guy is. And I never saw him again, but he he was.
1: I wonder if you'll hear this podcast. I, I remember I mean, you. What
0: an amazing thing. If it so would. what
1: they do? they took the belt and threw it in the trash to say, go.
0: Took the belt, threw it in the trash, took the handcuffs off. And the guy escorted me in my plane. Do you remember, if he, did he say anything to you or no? He's not just thing, saying, okay. I think he said, you good? I was getting on. I said, I mean, he was a young guy. Okay. I mean, I'm, when I say young guy, I mean, it's probably like 30, you know, yeah. when it's pretty young. Yeah. So gets me to the plane. I go in, I black back out. God, that's how much drugs I did that. I kept going in and out of like, in and out of like being, and I, that that never happened to me at that point. Not on those drugs. Right. I mean, on booze. Yeah. So I guess on the plane, my mod stuck money in my pocket and I started drinking the, the small booze.
1: So I come, was she and your dad on the plane with you or you by yourself on the plane? Oh, by myself really they just say get on and go i had a thing i had a note <laughs> of where i was going <laughs> like a kid going to school on the first day mm-hmm.
0: so i come to in this cab oh my god and a strange thing about texas so where i grew up i mean you could be any it's it's, it's anywhere usa right like when you're driving through new york obviously you know it's um, new york's one of the most beautiful places actually in my opinion in america in terms of like the, the country the way it looks right um uh, beautiful mountains hills landscape the foliage right in the fall. there's a difference so it's december i come to i'm in a cab it's bright out
1: where did you go you came to dallas i'm in austin austin texas okay i didn't know where you were going so um, i come to it's bright okay that's first weird thing mm-hmm. right I'm, yeah there's I'm, the sun you're like oh, yeah, no, oh it's God, not it's gray a, <laughs> it's
0: sun it's bright and in Texas, does this funny thing, and and it's it, it makes me laugh because it's really only it's it's so prevalent here. But Texas puts their flag and awesome all over everything, right? So every underpass, every on the side of the road, every business, right? Like you just know you're in Texas. So I come to now, mind you, it's the early two thousands before. You know, internet's work, not working that well, early 2000s, right? You, you know, there's no smartphones. There's no way. I mean, you got to look stuff up in books or watch yeah. it on uh, Discovery Channel
1: or something. Or right? go to the library. Or go to the library, right? So, so the kids are listening. like, what? What's he uh, talking yeah. about?
0: <laughs> so I come to, and I'm in the back of this cab, and I'm like, where? What, I, I'm seeing all this stuff, and I'm like,
2: what is this?
0: And I have no idea where I was, and then it's bright, and it's sunny out, and, and I'm like, Where? Where are we? And the cab driver. I guess him and I had been talking. So when I asked him where we were, I guess it was out of the line of communication that we were just having because I kind of came to, and he was like, "What?" And I was like, "Where are we?" He's like, "Austin." And I'm thinking in my head, now this is before Austin was popping and the destination that it is today. I'm like, Austin, Austin, Austin. I'm like Texas, and I remember in a movie someone like went to Austin. That's the only reason I remembered Austin. I go Texas he's like, what the fuck? Like, yeah, bro, Texas, right? And I'm looking out the window. Now, you know Austin, right? So I'm looking out the window. And Austin's probably the most liberal place here, right? So I'm looking out the window. I'm like, well, where's all the horses? And the guy was like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, we're in Austin. And he didn't start arguing. I'm like, well, I'm in Austin. He's like, yeah, bro, you're in Austin. I'm like, well, where's the horses and the cowboys? And he was like, what are you t-? Like, I, I didn't understand what type of place that was. And I thought everyone just, like, rode horses around in Texas. A bunch of cowboys, right? I, I didn't know that that it was what it was. Like, mm-hmm. so you just get what you get on TV, right? Just like if I tell I tell people oh, I'm from New York, they're like, oh, the city's great. I'm like, well, it's a huge state. They're like, oh, you know, was the, the mafia everywhere? And you're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, New York's a big place, right? It's not all that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just doomed with stereotypes. But that started my treatment thing. This dude dropped me off at this... Um, detox and this detox it was real one flew over the cuckoo's nesty i get there and they just keep me sedated for like five days so i can get that stuff out i mean literally they would wake me up to drink and ensure they would help me to the bathroom i would you know get help back to the bed and then they'd give me some pills and i go back out so after five days of this i'm not quite knowing you know where i'm at or whatever it was i wake up it's nighttime. So the hall lights are off, and I'm just – I don't know where I'm at. I mean, just mind you, like all this stuff happened. I asked for help, blackout. I go into this detox, and then for five days. I mean, it was such a strange feeling. And I remember waking up, and I'm like assisting myself down the hall, and the lights are off, and um, and I go, and and people are like, oh, hey, glad you're up. I'm like, what day? I mean, I no clue where I was, what day it was, and there was a little – and and it was funny because the people at work there were unfazed. So I guess this was a regular thing that they saw. They're like they were laughing. They're like, take a seat. You haven't walked much in five days. We don't want you to fall down and hit your head. Take a seat. And they gave me some juice and stuff. And then they were like, uh, you know, they kept saying stuff like, welcome to the rest day, the first day of the rest of your life. I'm like what? You know, whoa. Like, you know, this is heavy stuff, and you're I'm trying to get my mental faculties. And all I wanted to do is smoke a cigarette. You smoke back then. And so there's a little smoke deck and I'm outside meeting the guys and they're all laughing too. They're like, welcome. It was like, it's like finding out about the matrix, right? It's like, welcome, dude. You're part of the clan now. Yeah, we know you. You're just waking up from it. So, so what happened? I'm in this little detox place and then everyone's kind of comparing notes about where they're going because everyone's leaving there to go to a treatment center, right? Some people, I'm going here. Oh, I'm going here. I'm going here. And I go, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to burning tree Ranch. And they're like, "What? You're going to Burning Tree? Like, good luck!" And everyone kept going, "Oh, shit, good luck!" I'm like, "What do you mean?" And they're like, "Yeah, good luck." So these, you know, couple. I finished my stay there. A couple people show up in this little van to come get me. Two guys walk in. They're like, "Hey, man!" All fired up. Like, "Where's your stuff?" And they were like, "Ultra service." It was like a real weird experience, right? I mean, this van pulls up. There's this old lady driving the van. Yeah. She pulls up. Hey, and the next thing I know, they're grabbing my stuff. And they're throwing it in this van. I mean, it was just, all right, get in. I'm like, well, where are we going? No one had any we're answers. We're going to
1: Burning Tree, man. No one had any
0: answers for me. So I get there
1: and. Um, not to be confused with Burning Man.
0: No, not. No, no, <laughs> no furthest thing from it. So this is the lodge and it's out and they got multiple facilities now, but this is out there. And so I get there and they check in and you're going through all this paperwork and they start saying stuff like we're going to do extensive big book study like we're going to do peer
1: evals, I don't know what that is. Right. I'm like, what? You are like, I don't know we're, either.
0: We're going to do Jahari windows.
1: I don't know what, what? that is. Yes, a computer program. I All
0: right. All right. So I'm like, what is going on here? And then they're like, oh, we're going to we're going to give you um, we're going to give you a, a pathway into doing 12 step work where where it is required that you get a sponsor and you work these steps. Meanwhile, meanwhile, this is a self-supporting place. You're going to do your own chores. You're going to cook here, and then we do a thing every morning called we have this morning group where we do confrontations in the morning, so you're going to be held accountable for your actions living in this community. And I'm looking going, wait a minute now my, i'm on, I'm on a cattle ranch, yeah, outside of Austin. Was it pretty? uh, uh no today today I look back and I see the the beauty in it but then you're
1: like <laughs> no mind you I
0: mean I grew up in northeast so here I am yeah flat land yeah just cattle ranch mesquite trees <laughs> I only grow 12 <laughs> feet high you know and I'm looking around going oh my god and and I I'm like this is where I'm gonna so then I start saying well how long am I gonna be here everyone goes well you know don't I know go, know, no, so I don't good. know. I don't know. What do you
1: mean? <laughs> you like, uh, like, you know. You're like, yeah. no, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, honestly, this is, this is
0: my uh, favorite. I think it's like a long-term place, Oh, right? it is. And that's why, I mean, this is my favorite part of my story and journey because um, it's so kind of, it sucked, but it's so beautiful in hindsight, you know, all totally. of it. But, uh, you know, I'm looking at it and I go, well, I mean. It was like a it was like some con man that would never give you a straight answer.
1: Exactly. You know? He's like, How long Where am I gonna be here? He's yeah. like, Don't worry about it, bro. Yeah, it's
0: like how long I gonna be here? Well, you know, depends on different things, but pretty much you'll you'll be here until you go. And you're like, Well, I know, I'll be here until I
1: go. If you press the <laughs> issue, they're <laughs> like, Don't you have some like potatoes to cut? Like go over there and cut some <laughs> potatoes, you're like yeah. All right, it, was
0: it, like, it was, and then it would be like, Well, it doesn't sound like you know, I'd be like, Hey man, well I, I really need no it doesn't sound like you're surrendered. Uh oh. And you're like, What? Surrendered to what? They're like to God's will, I start saying stuff to you like, this. really, and I'm like, "Yo, I just want to know how long I'm going to be here."
1: For sure, the rest of right? today,
0: <laughs> I know, right? So, I mean, I'm 22 years old. <laughs> I'm 22 and a half, I think, at the time, and so you know the 22. the the years are still very long at, when you're that age, right? So now the years are they they fly by, right? And so. Um, but then it's still very much when someone says three months, that seems like an eternity, right? So I'm walking around, I'm asking guys, because you're you know you're meeting the guys and stuff. I think there's probably about 25, 30 people there.
1: Mm-hmm. Is it all dudes? In there. No, go ahead. Okay.
0: So you're walking around, you're meeting guys. Hey, buddy, how long you been here? Oh, I've been here four and a half months. She's like, oh. You're like, oh. All right, I can do about, I can do that. I can do four and a half. You meet the next guy walking by. Oh, I've been here seven. You're like, whoa. One guy's like, oh, I've been here eight and a half. And you're just like, throwing your hands up you're like i'm not gonna be here anymore. Let's months get out of here you're crazy but i'd run out of options there was nowhere to go i was about to say what do you got going on nothing not a thing but when you're that age you yeah. think you got to get to getting right like oh, i gotta get the life i got so much stuff up you got nothing going on this treatment center that i went to is a long-term treatment center for what they call the multiple offender chronic relapser right like they like to take people that have been to multiple treatment centers and it didn't work before That was my case, right? I've been to several treatment centers, nothing works. So here I was. And the the whole concept behind it is it's long-term and what the vision was for this place. And it's obviously changed over the last 25 years. It's been open or whatever. One of the visions for the place was, we'll hold them long enough. We can cut through the acting. Some of us do a really good job. Oh, I'm good. Like I could pretend I'm good for about 30, 60 days, right? But then the stuff bubbles up. And they said, once the stuff bubbles up, we'll let them sit in a little bit. Then they'll be willing to take some action. And they're in a safe place to kind of go through this process. And that was the whole idea of this treatment center. Now, I know a lot of people just come in and go straight to 12-step groups or, you know, kind of get sober in different avenues. I don't have any experience with that. So my experience is going to this treatment center. So I was the group that was there where it was like six to eight months. Then all of a sudden it went from eight months to a year while i was there so i like four months so like yeah we're not letting people out at six months anymore and you're like wait a minute so like you're you know you're kind of like x in the your calendar i'm gonna be out of here in four six seven months and now all of a sudden it's like oh it's a year now
2: you're like wait what
0: and then there was they had a halfway house to transition to afterwards and it and before it was optional and then all of a sudden i'm there about five months and it was like well now you have to go to this or you don't graduate you're like wait what and then it was like, oh, we're going to do this new thing called phase two where you like leave during the day and
1: then come back. Like yeah, that'd be frustrating if you don't know what you're getting into. And then they keep changing they the kept goal. They changing out. it.
0: Yeah. So, and, and I, in hindsight, so when it's happening to me, I was obviously combative to it. Totally. But in hindsight, I see as an adult, and I, I know the owner now, and he's a good man and he does care. Um, and I know the people that work there. And they're just us. So they were truly doing what they thought was best. And in their head is, well, how is it bad to keep them longer? They're not out there dying. So it was it was done with like correct motive. It was like, well, they're struggling transitioning. So we should add a piece where they leave and try to get a job. Or, you know, they go back and they go back home and they struggle like going back into their parents' house or, their, or living with their wife. But we find we have better success when they go to the to a halfway house but then there's some real bad halfway houses out there so like we can kind of control that. so i could see it was all done in good motive right but the reality was they weren't taking into consideration how it was affecting the people that they were changing it with. there was just a lot of discord there i will say the whole experience of it was gnarly i mean you're waking up with the chickens and you do chores for hour and a half two hours i'm talking mowing the lawn i'm talking deep cleans i called it gi clean every day you're deep cleaning you're, you're pulling everything out of the fridge you're cleaning the fridge every day i mean it's like a bizarre deal right i mean you're just deep cleaning the whole place every day for you know two hours in the morning whatever and everyone you got your own chore responsibility for the week or two weeks or however long they did it right so they would be like oh for the next couple of weeks you're gonna mow the lawn so you're out there mowing the lawn or you're on the leaf blower so i'll tell you what the place looked immaculate you know so you did that and then you would shower And then you would come in and you would do this thing called community. Community was everyone sat around in a circle and then the program director and a counselor Mm -hmm. would join. And every day they had those, you know, those uh, Upon Awakening books. So they would pass it out. They would just pick. And sometimes they would pick based off of uh, the text notes from the night before so-and-so was acting up. Make sure that person got the book and someone else would just be whoever they pick to jam up, you know, so you would get the book and then you would read the passage and then you would give two examples how you're doing what it's talking about and two examples how you're not. And if you're not being truthful or honest, they open it up to the community and they're like, is Brad telling the truth? Like, is this real? And then the, let me tell you, we'll talk about who could be petty. Right, a group of alcoholics. that don't want to look at their own stuff. They're real good at knowing what you're doing and not doing, yeah. and they'll start hammering you. Right? Some of some of the it was almost like that experience was so helpful and changed a lot. But it, there was a couple of times it was almost traumatic. I mean, really, how it gets? People can get real petty and they start attacking you for you know for whatever reasons, their own stuff. So I think one of the having that experience of being held accountable by your peers, although sometimes was way off the mark and not done in the spirit that it was intended for but the overall lesson of it was beautiful it was allowing some people in your life to tell you the truth and also understanding that the way i'm showing up i don't i'm not always aligned with what i think and how i'm showing up isn't always the same thing sometimes i think i'm showing up real great and i'm not Mm -hmm. sometimes i'm showing up pretty good and i think i'm crappy right What a great experience
1: that was. That's kind of cool also because you get to work on your communication skills. You get to work on listening and receiving information from your fellow critiquers and the people that love you too. And you also get to critique others. And it's just more about, or it seems like I wasn't there, but it seems like you get to work on communication. Uh, One of the skills that I've picked up in sobriety is listening. And the reason I've picked up a listening skill in sobriety is because I've had to go to some of these meetings for an hour in AA and they don't call on me. So that means I have to sit there for an hour and listen to everybody else talk and then get up at the end and be like, okay, like bye. See you later. I sure. never used to sit there and listen for an hour. I always wanted to talk. I always thought I had something to say when I was younger. And now I've developed a skill to listen to people and read people's body language. Just kind of be a little bit more adult than I used to be. Sure. And that's cool that you're able to learn that there. Cause I was raised in a household, where communication was not a big thing, you know, a lot of times as a child or even as an adult or whatever, I would be hurting and we just wouldn't talk about that. We would talk about, well, the Cowboys are eight and eight and they suck, you know, and uh, are we going to have Italian tonight or are we have a Mexican or who's going to go out in the backyard and clean up the dog poop or, you know, the hot tub's not working right. We need to call the plumber. You know, we would just, we would talk about things. But it was not always about real things that were going on with me. And I figured out, and I'm not mad about that. That was just my childhood because my parents were raised, you know, in the 50s. And my parents were born in the 40s and raised in the 50s and 60s. And they were raised by parents that were even older than them. So they come in from old school technology and old school ways of communicating. So I've been able to develop some new tools.
0: Yeah, and that was a big purpose of it was those tools. You would sit there, uh, you would do confrontations when you, I feel. So you would say, uh, Michael, when you don't make your bed in the morning, I feel anger. Maybe we're bunk mates or whatever. I feel anger. And then one of the things was I'm not allowed to respond for twenty-four hours to that person. <laughs> About that subject. Of course you're gonna have run it. But like we I cannot and if you start responding, they'll be like, ah. up, <laughs> like sit up. Put your hands down. You know, it's kind of one of those things. So, yeah, it was uh, tw- you know, twenty four hours. So a lot of when you I feel, yeah, and that was really good. I've and, never heard that before. Yeah,
1: so it's like they can't argue with that.
0: No, and honestly, too, I've actually I've pulled that out in relationships. You know, as much as like, I, man, I had a, such a deep resentment towards this place for so long. It Also taught me some skills, right? So mm-hmm. I've been in a situation where it's getting heated. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe with your gal or whatever, mm-hmm. and and communication is just. Beating each other's heads, right? And I go back to that circle and community and go, okay, when you, I feel, or also I've used the 24 hour things. So, you know, there was one with uh, my gal, and I obviously felt that she was upset. Like she was holding on to some stuff. So I was a bigger person. I said, I'm going to give you the opportunity, get it all out. What is it? She starts talking. And then, and then, and and so it starts off with anger, and she's like, and then, and then, and then all of a sudden it turns to the tears. Uh, And then she's crying and then she's like, gets it all out. And I just did what I did in that circle. I didn't respond. I just kept eye contact, listen. In the end I go, I want to sit with this and we'll discuss it tomorrow after we eat breakfast. And she, I mean, blew her mind. She's like, are you mad? Are you, I go, I just want to process this so I can discuss it tomorrow. And I'll tell you what, that skyrocketed our relationship. That was a pivoting point in our relationship because it wasn't so much two people trying to be heard or understood and you start clashing well you need to see what i'm talking about no you're wrong here's what i'm talking about you're both trying to just prove your point and you're not communicating what i did was allow her to like if she brought up 10 things five of them six of them were true and relevant and four weren't i didn't need to argue the four that weren't all that didn't happen i just listened and then the next day we came back and talked and said i heard what you said I didn't even need to bring any of it up because I was secure enough to know what I'm doing, what I'm not doing. But the big thing I wanted to do was like own and amend the stuff that I was doing, you know, and then just like talk about that. Like I didn't need, there was nothing I needed to express, right? Like it was such a cool thing to take that beat and allow God to come into my heart and life and go, you're all right, dude. Like you have this vehicle. She doesn't. Yeah. You, you, I have all this training. That's one thing. I have this extensive amount of training. And I think back to those times sitting in that circle no one got confronted more than me because i was incapable of following rules so i have a lot of i have a lot of practice of being of being confronted anyone i went to treatment with and there's still some guys around they'll say they're like oh man sully i don't know how he did it he just get beat on every day i was an easy target i'm a big guy so yeah i'm in that treatment I'm, I'm, i'm learning great stuff and um they keep saying you gotta get a sponsor and we're going to process groups there's um uh, what do you call it there's a gender group there's process groups all this other stuff small group you have a counselor you have one-on-ones all this jargon but they kept pushing gotta get, a sponsor. gotta get a sponsor gotta get a sponsor so i'm looking for a sponsor now god's got jokes right he knows me so he knows i'm vain as well especially at that time so we knew i was going to choose someone off the way they look basically right so in comes this guy craig He's got this impeccable tan of the well to do, right? Just a great tan. He worked at the time, um, he was like the head guy maintaining a golf course. You know, so he's out playing golf, great dude, pulls up in this brand new pickup truck. He's like 6'5", he's like my size, handsome guy, got a, you know, got a pretty gal because there was some uh, reunion thing he brought his gal to. I seen him, oh, he's got a pretty gal, good looking guy, you know, got great tan, brand new pickup truck. He was wearing these Prada sunglasses, and I was like, this is my guy. i got to ask this guy to be my, I knew nothing about his spirit. (laughs) But God's got jokes, and he knows that about me, so I asked this guy, and he ended up being the perfect, God sent an angel to me, and, and this has happened many times in my life where these people have been sent to me, that perfect people in the right time, and he was one of them. Uh, although I picked him on very superficial ways, he was a very deep spiritual man that had worked the program and he had had a spiritual experience and he was willing to take me through the book and walk me hand in hand. It was the best decision one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life was asking him to be my sponsor because he was the one that was able to get through to me so mind you, I'm sitting in this treatment center, everything's the same, yeah, 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 you know I keep thinking the problem is is like I just did too much or I didn't have direction or I was going through stuff or you know, I said this the other day, you know, some people are born on third base and I'm I'm just, I'm, I'm competing from the dugout, you know, and I'm, I'm just, there was always this feeling of that. And the first thing that happened to me, which is which is near and dear to my heart, and this this was the beginning of me being willing. There was this gal, Bethany, she used to do these big book studies and she was really good. And she did this thing called Stickman. I don't know if you ever heard of Stickman, but it's a visual representation of the first step. The reason it's so cool Is it literally puts a visual representation of what's saying in the big book? You need a easel or a big, you know, whiteboard or whatever, and you draw, and it starts with a stick man in the middle, you know, make them look all raggedy. And then what you do is you visually draw the representation of the cycle of addiction and the stick man. So here I am. Now, people have told me what the first step is. We read it out of the book, but my brain was still healing, bro. I could not understand. I wasn't getting it. I didn't have that moment yet. So here's old Bethany. And she's jamming me up. What does this mean? Brad, what's important about this step? Because really, I took this step with her, not my sponsor. Although I did end up taking it with my sponsor. But like my first step moment happened with Bethany in a big book study in Kaufman, Texas, on a cattle ranch. Here I am. She's drawing it up. And she goes, Brad, there's two parts to the first step. Can you see that? And I'm looking up at it on the board. And I go, ah. I don't know. She's like, do you see there's a dash? She's like, is that normal? Uh, I don't know, Bethany. I don't read much. You know what I mean? I'm like, I've coasted through life. I haven't read much. She goes, well, there's a dash, which means there's two separate ideas that have been jammed together to create one concept. I'm like, oh, okay. She's like, so there's two parts to the first step. She's like, as you see here, there's powerless. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol. So powerless is one part. And then the manageability is the second part. We got to look at this, Brad. Do you know what this means? I'm like, well, I can't stop. She's like, well, you don't know nothing. She's like, that's why you need to shut up and listen. I'm like, oh, my God, right? So I'm sitting there. Now, she's a cool chick, too. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to listen to what she has to say. She's just draw the stick man up. And she's like, let's talk about the body first, right? It's threefold illness. We need to talk about the body. She's like, your body's different. You need to understand this. Because without this piece, I don't know if you're going to move on with the rest of it. What does that mean? She's like, well, you're never going to get well unless you understand this. She, she would say stuff to me like, Brad, that's the only step you got to take 100%. The rest of them you can muck up the whole way. You take this one 100% you understand it, you're you're starting from a good spot. you got a shot. And she started putting this, this Alcoholics Anonymous big book to me in a whole new light. She started saying stuff like, this big book is your textbook. And she would say stuff like, Brad, if I told you that if you did what it said in this book, you'd be a millionaire... And get the, get the woman of your dreams, sleep with all these beautiful women. You'd have it memorized. You'd been doing it yesterday. I'm telling you, this is going to save your life. And I got to beg you to open it up. What's the deal? She would just jam me up. What would you say when she say that to you? I would just be like, Well, I mean, uh, I mean, I looked at it. She'd be like, No, you didn't. You don't know what she's talking about. So then she'd tell me, Shut up again.
1: <laughs> yeah. you know, and then she would do it. And I like, like this chick. So I never she, met her yet.
0: She'd like put her hand on on my shoulder, and then she'd just be like, But I love you. You're like. So she goes, all right, let's talk about this. So she's drawing it up. She draws up the stick man into the right side of the stick man's face. She wrote body. And she's like, let's talk about the body, the body piece of this illness you have. And I'm like, all right. So she goes, we have an allergy to drinking and drugging. She's like, you know what the definition of an allergy is? And I'm like, well, yeah, you know, I, I get the itchy and I can't breathe. And she's like, God, you don't know what you're talking about. She'd be like, get up, go get a dictionary, look it up. I was like, who does this lady think she, so I'd shuffle on over there. I'd get the dictionary I'd sit back down. No money. We're in a group, right? And it was just this day. She chose me like God channeled through her. Like we're going to get Brad today. So I sit there and I look it up allergy and I find a definition that says abnormal reaction. I said, okay, abnormal reaction. She's like, great. So you have an abnormal, didn't say you get red and itchy. It says you have an allergy of abnormal reaction to drinking and drugging. You react abnormally from the rest of society. You react differently than your friends and some of your peers. I'm like, oh, yeah. And she's like, you know what that different reaction is? We call it the phenomenon of craving. Then she goes, Brad, are you allergic to anything? I said, well, yeah, I'm allergic to bee stings. What happens when you get stung by a bee? I'm like, oh, I swell up. I can't breathe. I need to get an EpiPen. Sometimes I you bring me to the hospital. I'm having an anaphylactic reaction. So that's the allergy I have to bee stings, anaphylactic reaction. So my reaction to drinking and drugging is the phenomenon of craving so said so brad when you're stung by a bee you have that reaction you know what happens when i'm stung by a bee i'm like no she's like i put a little aloe on it i'm good to go hurts a little bit but i'm fine she's like you react abnormally from the rest of society than the, than the rest of us with bee stings she's like same thing with drugs and alcohol and then she goes hey when you're stung by a bee let's say you're stung on your forearm can you stare at it and go okay throat don't swell up don't swell up don't swell up. is your brain strong enough from stopping the chemical reaction that's happening in your body i go no duh and she's like same thing with drugs and alcohol she's like you put drugs and alcohol on your body chemical reactions happening it's called the phenomenon of craving and what that is you need more over a period of time i'm not talking about in a day she goes brad there's only so much you can drink before you pass out on the floor so we're not measuring drinks because that's stupid i don't care if you had five or 50 it's irrelevant She's like, and we're not measuring how much dope you did. Irrelevant. I'm just talking about over a period of time. You need more. So from, from 4th of July to Thanksgiving, you need more. And, and more keeps going up. I'm like, oh. She's like, let's talk about the truth. And I go, okay. And she's like, we need to understand what it means because at some point we've crossed the line where we can no longer differentiate the truth from the false. She's like, do you know what that means? I'm like, I have no idea. Now I'm like now she's hitting me right so i go oh, I, don't, I don't know you know like, all right let's learn what's the truth of your life what happens every time you drink and do drugs see i thought my consequences was my unmanageability and it's not and it's and it states that in the doctor's opinion in the big book of alcoholics anonymous the consequences aren't my unmanageability the consequences are just consequences of my action this old timer up in new york you say well if the pope drove drunk he Get a DWI too. You know, something like that. He goes, it's just like, it doesn't mean he's an alcoholic. It's me, you made a bad decision. So she's sitting there. She goes, let's look at the consequences of your life. So she said, Brad, what's the truth? What happens to you when you start drinking and drugging? So it's funny, guys like me, I like the sugar coated. It's like, well, you know, I don't really tell the truth. She's like, so you're a liar. I'm like, whoa. I mean, I don't tell the truth from time to time. She's like, you're a liar. You know, oh, well, I take some stuff that's not mine. Oh, you're a thief. She goes, Brad, you got to get, you got to dial in on what this is, what this problem is. You want to be fluffy, you're going to die. She would say stuff like this. You'll die in the streets. You want to go get fluffy, go get fluffy. But you need to dial in on what your issue is. You're a liar, cheating a thief. She's like, deny it. And if I'm wrong, I'll own it. And I was like, yeah, you're right. Because I was. I mean, <laughs> isn't it funny how addicts and alcoholics like to do that? Well, you know, bro, I don't really, <laughs> I take some stuff that's not mine. You're a thief. I've done that with, I've done the same thing. It's how I sponsor guys. So I take them to the first step. I, I I do the same thing she did with me, right? So I draw it out and stuff and I'll say it. I'll be like, oh, so you're a thief. No, like, well, hold on, big guy. Mm-hmm. Like, no, like, did you take stuff that's not yours? Well, yeah. Okay, you're a thief. Then I'll go, uh, how good of a parent are you? Well, you know, from, I wasn't around a lot and didn't listen to my
1: drug, kid. Drove a couple of times. Yeah, a couple of times. Kids in the car. So
0: I'm like, you're a shitty dad. And I've had, guy, I've had guys be like, fist up. And I've been like, bro, this is, I'm not knocking you. But every time we don't accept truly what we are, we're giving ourselves permission to keep doing what we're doing. We got to dial in and we got to get rid of the delusion and dishonesty. Because guys like me and you, we're steeped in it when we get here. We're bogged in it. And that's that's a survival technique. right? I can't like living that truth every I'll, I'll, I'll short circuit so i tell myself like you're not as bad as you think after i took money out of my mom's purse said, you're not a shitty son like this was just a momentary that you're going to put it back you're going to replace the money but the, the i'm a thief and i'm a shitty son because good sons and, and guess what yeah you can do the whole good and bad thing shouldn't say but let's look at the reality a loving caring son's not stealing money from mom's purse And it's not like, oh, you're a piece of shit. It's just look at the truth. Stop running from it. Stop blaming. So I blamed everyone else. I never took responsibility for my stuff. It was important for me to take responsibility for the stuff. And yes, I've told you some stuff about my past where I was a victim. And there's even some more stuff that I didn't get into. But the reality of the situation is somewhere along the line, you've got to take responsibility for it and move on in this life. I've been abused, molested, all this stuff. And the reality of the situation is without just... Owning what it is there and moving on. Is there some sad stuff? You bet. Was I a victim? You bet. So we're still talking about the truths here. We're still in in this phenomenon of craving, right? So I put the drinks and drugs in my body. The phenomenon of craving sends me on these sprees, runs, binge, whatever you want to call it, right? Some people are just weekend warriors. Some people are just like nighttime drinkers. It doesn't matter. Whatever it is, you don't have to be like me. You just have to not be in a good place emotionally, and spiritually about this stuff. Here you are. So I'm a liar. I'm a cheat. I'm a thief, right? I'm, I'm a shitty son. I'm a shitty lover. I'm a shitty brother. Fucking no money. I'm unemployable, right? Like here's just my truth. When Brad puts booze and dope into his body, this is what happens. Like every time. And this is my information. Mike's not your information. It's not what you're putting into it. Like when you're doing this, when she was doing it with me, I'm using all my answers, Like okay, so I can't look up and go. Well, that ain't me. Well, it is you. Those are your answers. So right. So then she would say stuff like, "Okay, you're here. You on your running binge. Guys like you, Brad, and gals like me, we don't stop on our own. We get stopped." I go, "What?" She's like, "To be a real, the real addict alcoholic, like it talks about in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, we're unable to stop on our own. We get stopped." I go, "What? What do you mean?" She's like, here's ways I'm sure you've gotten stopped before. Handcuffs. Interventions. Coming to treatment. Going to detox. Taking medications. I don't know if you've ever had an intervention done. I I like to, uh, an analogy I have, it's like the first time I ever like had love feelings for a gal, right? And you walk into a house, and my mom lied to me. This is one of the right before one of the treatment centers I went to. My mom said, come over. I made lasagna i'm like oh my mom lasagna hit. so i'm like oh yeah mom, i'm coming so i walk in i should have known something was wrong off the bat because there was no smell in the air my mom so the whole neighborhood will smell like lasagna when my mom's cooking it's delicious so i'm like oh that's odd all right well maybe she made it yesterday and she has got to heat it up it's, sometimes it's better the next day so i walk down the hall or thing and i walk into the room and then there's all these people sitting in a circle and just like the first loving feel, you know, first like sexual feeling you had for a woman or guy, whatever your thing is, or the first time you've fallen in love, like you don't know what's going on, but you know, something big's happening and you know, it's never going to be the same after this. Right. So I sit down, I look in the circle. It's my ma, my brother, the gal I was dating at the time, her mom, some guy wearing Birkenstocks and a ponytail. Right. And they're all holding sheets of paper, shaking. When you,
1: I feel ruined mother's day. Oh, no. How long I, did it take you to figure it out?
0: Well, I mean, obviously, I, when I see the dude in Berkenside, I know something I, you know, I, I don't know this guy. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, why are they all sitting in a That's circle? That's lasagna, room. man. I know. So I am sit down, and they're like, we're, Brad, this is a safe. The guy starts out, this is a safe. Bless the guy's heart. This guy's name was Rick. And he ended up being um, one of the big saviors in my life. Like, he helped my parents through a lot of stuff. But bless his heart. you know. So it was like one of those moments. That's how we get stopped, right? So we're on this thing. She goes, Brad, so can you relate? Do you have this body piece that you have this allergy that you act abnormally when you put drugs and alcohol in your body that you act differently from your other fellows? And it sends you on these runs, binges, and sprees where you're not controlling what's going on and you're experiencing some consequence you don't want to experience and then you have to get stopped. She's like, and are you able to when you put it in your body Like stop the reaction that's about to happen in your life. I go, no. She's like, all right, that's part one. She's like, there's two parts to the to the beginning of powerlessness. So she's like, you just qualified one. Let's talk about the mind. And she says, Brad, you have the great mental obsession that someday you will control and enjoy your drinking and using, like you see your friends and other people on TV and whatever else, right? She's like, that's your great mental such that you will control and enjoy. She's like, I'm sure you were able to do one or the other. And I go, yeah. yeah, I was. And she's like, so if you're controlling, all bets are off, huh? I'm like, oh, you know it. You know, when I'm controlling, I'm singing uh, karaoke songs in a, uh, in a bar in Hoboken, New Jersey, singing Doobie Brothers or whatever on karaoke. I'm at a Vera Wang Christmas party that I'm not supposed to be at. And then I wake up the next morning in secaucus in new jersey and some dominican chick's house not knowing how i got there and that's a fun one right that's me that's me enjoying controlling i'm miserable i've gone out and had a few drinks and gone home but i hated it. it didn't do anything for me and i was miserable and then i was resentful for whatever i had to go home for so she's like is that true in your life you have this great mental obsession you will control and enjoy your drinking. She says, let's look at the falses of it, right? She said, remember, to be powerless, you can no longer differentiate the truth from the false. So we know the truth of your life. Every time you drink and use drugs, this is what happens. What's the false? I go, what do you mean? She said, what are the lies you tell yourself that's going to be different this time? Here's how. And so some of the lies I would use was like, well, I'm only hurting myself. It's not that bad. It's not that bad. No one will know or my favorite which was you know excuse my language but my, my favorite was just fuck it
1: or i'm not doing that good now but i'm gonna make a comeback and i'll do better in 2022 or 2023
0: yeah yeah some people say stuff like well it was the brown liquor i'm gonna go to clear i heard one lady tell me one time it was the box wine brand because it's extra sugary it really jacked me up so i, I started getting the good stuff and i'm like ma'am That's an interesting one. I've never heard that, right? I mean, it was just funny. Like we have, we come up with these solutions. I've heard drug addicts say, well, I'm going to smoke it, not shoot it. Or I'm going to like, whatever, right? Like we all come up like, I'm only going to do it on Wednesday nights. I'm only going to do it when it's the sun's down or whatever. Like everyone has this way that they're going to control to have a good time of what they're
1: doing. The first one I came up with is, okay, well, I will forfeit and admit to you that I am a drug addict. Okay. I'm powerless over illegal street drugs, but I'm not alcoholic. That's what I told myself. And that happened in a treatment center in Dallas, Texas called Timberlawn. I went to a, a, a treatment center in Dallas called Timberlawn. Oh, yeah. And when I got out of there, they served me well. They they set the foundation and built something for me to be able to get in the rooms of alcoholics and get a foundation started and get going. And what they served me and gave me in the treatment center was the disease concept one. They served me the disease concept that I wasn't a bad guy trying to get good. I was a sick guy trying to get better. And it wasn't a case of the fact that I had just a bad set of morals and I was just a bad dude. It wasn't about that. It's like, you are bodily and mentally different than your fellows. So that gave me the disease concept. And then as far as the powerless um, part, I just, um, and life being unmanageable, they told me that that delusion needed to be smashed. You know, and you were just addressing that, knowing the difference between the false and the real, the truth and the non-truth.
0: Yeah yeah and it was it was so important it was that was the first moment that the light came like whoa i mean when she said to him, these are the lies you tell yourself and she goes these lies that it's going to be different this time here's how or like oh i can always go to treatment later right or whatever the lie is you tell yourself this lie outweighs the truth she's like look at your truth and look at the flimsy lie i'm only going to get a 20 or i'm all right, whatever it is right like look at the lie that outweighs She's like, that's insane, right? I'm like, yeah. She's like, well, if you can't differentiate the truth from the false, like we need to get you back being able to differentiate the truth from the false. She's like, so, you know, do you have the mind piece and the body piece? I go, yes. She's like, can you no longer differentiate the truth from the false? Are you buying the lie? It's going to be different this time, knowing how it's going to go. I go, yep. And she's like, all right, so you're powerless. I go, oh. She's like, you see, that's what it means. That's all in the doctor's opinion.
1: What a great service that she did for you that day. Oh my God. And that was like what? Probably a one hour gig? How long did that last for her to drill Mm -hmm. that into your soul? 30 minutes. So that 30 minutes was a fork in the road of your life. Changed my life forever. Thank you. Yeah. Oh. It's just completely different, new set of knowledge, new way of looking at yourself, new way of looking at the disease, new way of looking at the world, and new way of looking at recovery. And it took 30 minutes.
0: Oh, yeah. And she did it. For, I mean, I'm one of many that she's yeah, done it for. Yeah. sounds
1: and like with that skill set, with that verbal skill set, oh, I think well, she could hammer a lot of people. And, and,
0: and honestly, I've thanked her for it too. Like, totally. I've, and, and since I've run into her and- you know, you've changed my life. And she's like, Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you know, yeah, like what and I was like, what do you mean? And uh, you know, and she'll she'll wink and stuff and she's she's great. So, you know, once once I knew what powerless meant and she goes, you know, let's talk about the unmanageability and there's the questions on fifty-two, there's eight questions, and it's like, you know, you're restless. So you know, and so she's drawing out this cycle. We're at the point where we get stopped and we're past this dash, and our lives have become unmanageable. So she's like, I know your life sucks while you're drinking and drugging. Let's talk about when you stopped. After you get stopped, what happens? She's like, guys like you, Brad, when you stop drinking and drugging, like your life gets worse on the inside. And I go, what? Now, I mean, dude, it's revolutionary, right? So now we're talking about the spiritual condition. And I know other people talked about this. I just I wasn't hip to it. I just wasn't hearing it. Now I hear it when she starts saying stuff like what happens when you're not drinking and doing drugs? How do you feel? I'm like, not good. Yeah. She's, raw. Like, <laughs> she's like, how about restless here? And I'm moment discontent. And yeah. I'm like what? And she's like, you know what restless says, right? I don't know if you've ever been to a treatment center, see a newcomer and the leg yeah. tap and, you know, and they're jittery and stuff and I'm like, I know that.
1: They're wearing their paper pants and their paper shirt and oh their paper God. slippers. You know,
0: and and I see it a lot like in our home group, right? You see it you see the people that are new and they're just fit they're up and down, nine cups of coffee, they're shaking, all that stuff. And Sitting I, on
1: the back row. Yeah, and
0: God bless them and, and I mean and we were all there, right? So when she goes, Do you know what so I I'm not putting drinks and drugs in my body. That's what happens. Are you restless? I go, Yep. She's like irritable. I'm like, Oh, you oh. know I mean god forbid right you and someone else and this happens to me when i'm not spiritually well right i get irritable again i'll walk into a room and let's say you're talking to somebody off in the corner just like happens right when you walk into the meeting and just like being polite you guys stop to address me oh hey brad how you doing
2: i'll be like these motherfuckers are talking about me
0: <laughs> i mean that's how irritable i get i'll have imaginary fights with people when i go like if i'm irritable i'm holding down to resentments and stuff I'll have imaginary fights with people in my head when I'm going to a part of town. You know what I mean? So I'll be like, uh, like like right now we're in a different part of town than I live in, right? So you call me the farmer's branch. I know like two people up here and in the past when I'm not spiritually well, I'll be like, let me run into that guy at the gas station. I'll say that. And I'll, I'll be having I'll be like three moves deep in, a, in an argument with these people, right? So, uh, you know, she's like, yeah, you know, you're gonna go, yeah. And she's like, what about discontent? There was times I'd be trying to get you know, money for the day or whatever. And I'd be asking people for money. Times are tough. Right. So I'd be like, man, let me get some. Someone gave me five bucks. Right. They put it in my hand. I go, I mean, five's good, but 10, like nothing's ever good enough. One, one time I bought this car an Audi and I pull up to the stoplight. And then I go, "Damn!" I mean, just this first stoplight out of the place up here in Plano. I get this stoplight. I probably, I don't know, five, five years sober. I was going through some rough stuff. I'll get to here shortly. And I go, oh man, I should have got the black one." I mean, nothing's good enough. When I'm discontented, I'm nothing. I mean, good stuff that happens should have happened last week. Good stuff that happens, well, it should have been more. I mean, it's just never enough. So she goes, you know, do you feel this? So I go, oh, yeah. And she's like, um, she asked the eight questions on 52, you know, like, are you full of fear? you it be, seem to be a real help to other people? I'm like, no, no, no. I mean, I want eight for eight. So in the grapevine, for those who don't know, so in Alcoholics Anonymous, there's a uh, kind of monthly newsletter pamphlet that comes out looks like a reader's digest those old timey read i don't know people even still get that but looks for those who know it looks like a reader's digest and it's called the grapevine and really it's just a publication and they pick different topics they interview different people just relevant stuff to sobriety and aa as a whole and it gives some history one of the things they were talking about was these eight questions right so these eight questions on page 52 on we agnostics and they said what we found over the years the the qualifying so we're trying to qualify if I have the spiritual malady, right? The inner sickness. So they said, if you go three of eight, this wasn't written in the grapevine. If you go three of eight, you probably got it. You should move on with the steps. Yeah. If you got two of eight, maybe you're just going through a rough time. You got three, okay. I went eight for eight. Oh, no. And I needed to go eight for eight because I don't need wiggle room. If I went about seven for eight, six for eight, I'd be like, well, I could turn it around. Eight for eight, I go, okay, I got it. So she goes, let's look at this. You get stopped, right? You're restless. You're irritable and discontent. You're not putting anything in your body. You're full of fear. Can't seem to be a real help to other people. Pray to misery and depression, right? When I look in the mirror, I don't like what's looking back. I, I, should, be, I should be funnier. I should be better looking. My hair should be thicker. Whatever, right? I, I'm looking back. No one likes me. And, and all of a sudden, my head starts spinning. And It feels like a tornado. I feel like I can't breathe, right? I hear people all the time. I don't know how it happened. Here's how it happened. Your head's spinning. All of a sudden, you go... Right, you fight it off. You go, Whoa. the anxious feelings hitting, and you gotta, and wherever you're at, you gotta be somewhere else. Like, I should be somewhere else, right? Like, and, and then, like, you're just nothing's good enough, and, and all of a sudden, this little voice comes in and says, Hey, big guy, I know last time this is what happened, but just take a little bit, and then we'll be back at dealing with our problems tomorrow. And I fight that off. I go, No, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. But, like, so many do, we succumb to the urge again. And that voice comes back in and says, Brad, I know last time you, you became a liar, cheat, and thief, but it's not going to happen this time. Here's why. Because you're not going to do the hard stuff. You're just going to drink a couple beers tonight. You'll be back at the problem. That's how I know I'm an alcoholic. That's why I qualify for Alcoholics Anonymous was because that was always my baseline. I'd go back to having a couple of beers and I would always end up somewhere, right? So what happens is I buy the lie. And when I buy the lie, I put it in my body. I set that allergy off again. That chemical reaction happens. I have to have more. Same part of my brain that asks for water, air, sleep, food, right? It's releasing that chemical. I got to have more. Got to have more to be okay. So I got to have more. And I go on these runs. More bad stuff happens. I get stopped. I'm never doing it again. I don't take care of my spirit. Restless cerebral discontent. Buy the lie again. I put it in. This goes on and on and on and on. And she tells me this. And I look at her I go, I I literally hopped up out of my seat and I go,
2: Oh
0: I go, I'm I'm screwed. She goes, Welcome. Welcome. From here you you got a shot. I'm like, this isn't good news right and she looked i go oh, this is not good news and she goes it kind of is she goes it's it's the worst best news you're ever gonna get <laughs> and i go what do you mean she goes she goes it is crappy
1: news is it, that, it, on it's, the face value it doesn't sound yeah right.
0: she goes but welcome because from this point you can get somewhere she's like if you are if no. i told you you're powerless right you need to get some power in your life i go oh so meanwhile, I asked this guy to sponsor me. We start, I mean, from that point, we start going through the stuff. That's my first step experience.
1: Mm-hmm. Now you got a shot. Now I got a shot. Now you're in the game because you know the rules and you know the parameters. Yes. Yeah.
0: And so when it was put to me like that and I put my own information and in, I have my own first step experience, I right. go, oh, man. See, now, like, I have awakened now. I can't go back to... To the blissfulness of not knowing. The blissfulness
1: of ignorance. But now I,
0: I know. And now there's nowhere to go except for, oh, man. This is my truth.
1: You know what's tripping me out is I'm wondering if anybody out there in the world is going to be hearing this podcast and is going to have their own first step experience based off of the last 25 minutes of what you just laid down like a scientist. And I'm wondering if people are going to hear this and just be able to be like, oh my God, he's right. And what you just said is so true. You once you know something, you can't unknow it. Yeah. And so once you're led to the truth or led to the light or shown something, you know, almost in a scientific type situation or or an academic or a scholastic type environment, which is kind of sounds like a college class that she just taught you on addiction. Once you see that or know that it's hard to unknow that. And that's what I received at treatment. And you know, at Timberlawn, I didn't want to know what they were teaching me. I didn't want to go to those classes. I didn't want to talk about feelings. I didn't want to get their little chips for every 30 days. And, it said Timberlawn Psychiatric Hospital on it. I didn't want any of that stuff, but that's where I was and that's what I got. And they what they gifted me with, which ended up being money well spent by my mother, uh, at a thousand dollars a day times thirty days. My mom spent thirty thousand dollars. And what she got for that thirty thousand dollars was me getting it drilled down into my consciousness, psyche, and soul that alcoholism is a disease. That's what they told me. And that's what I believed. And that's what I received. I received the, the disease concepts about Alcoholics Anonymous and that I was also powerless over alcohol. And then they started to work on steps two and three with me. Oh yeah. And then at the end, days 27, 28, 29, and 30, when they let me go, they said, we've really enjoyed knowing you. Thank you for the $30,000. We really like you. Here's a big book. Here's a 12 and 12. Good luck. We highly suggest that you find a group of Alcoholics Anonymous and go. Because if you don't, there is a extremely high possibility and percentage-wise chance that you are not going to make it. And they would talk to me you know, straight like that, difficult like that. They would say, you're not going to make it. You're yeah. not going to make it. And so they scared me enough and taught me enough to where when I left Timberline, I begrudgingly went to the Aquarius group of Al- Alcoholics Anonymous. I begrudgingly went to AA. Yeah, And once I got there, I discovered that I liked it and I liked the people and I liked the signage and I liked, um, some of the things I did not like was the cigarette smoke. Oh yeah. Cause there was a lot of cigarette smoke at the time. It's not like that anymore, nope. Nope. but I did not like the cigarette smoke. I didn't like all the coffee drinking. Um, I didn't like the gossip, but I did like the people. I did like the message. I liked the signage. I liked the chairs. I thought there was a lot of pretty girls there at the time. I was a little bit shallow at first, but I was really liking some of the pretty girls there and all the guys, a lot of the guys seemed cool. And it seemed like I could learn something there about life. And I was interested in not drinking and drugging anymore. And they seemed to be experts at that, or at least close to experts at that. And uh, I grabbed a sponsor and we started working the steps. All right. I want to read a couple of announcements and then let's get you back to your story and get you out of that treatment center and into back into, sure. you know, real life and, and what, what you did next. I want to let everybody know that SoberShares.com is ready for you to explore and enjoy. Here's a list of the things that you can do on our website. You can listen to all of our episodes, read our show reviews, or leave a show review. Email me directly with your comments and suggestions. My email address is mike at SoberShares.com. You can record a message in your own voice by clicking the blue microphone icon in the bottom right-hand corner on your iPhone or on your computer. You'll see a little microphone icon. Click that. You can leave me a voicemail, and we'll play that back on our next episode. You can access our social media platforms on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search Sober Shares Podcast, and you'll find those. You can support us financially with a donation by clicking the PayPal donate button on SoberShares.com. That'll take you directly to PayPal and you can leave a donation there. This donation process will take less than one minute and your generosity will allow us to continue to create content for you at the highest level. Think of it like passing the basket at a meeting to help keep SoberShares open and operating smoothly. Your donation will be used to help us cover our monthly operating expenses as well as our initial startup expenses. I want to mention to our listeners by name who have made a financial gift to move this project over the last two weeks, David R., Stacey P., Veronica C., and Nancy L. And I want to assure you that I value your time and attention as a listener, and our sole focus at SoberShares Podcast is to help people, and that guides everything that we do here. Now let's get back to our guest and let's get you finished up at the treatment center and back out in the real world. So what happened next?
0: So after my first step experience, I was just rocked. And from there, getting a sponsor, sponsor, we started reading the big book and every line and looking up words and everything. And so we got to the second step and he started doing stuff like, let's talk about your prejudices towards God, you know. So we went we went through the steps. And, and I started looking at things that were working and didn't work. And so uh, part of my beliefs in God that weren't working was that, you know, that there was a punishing God and that, I, like, God would always make me pay my dues. And if I made mistakes, like, I owed him, you know, there was just a real transactional deal with God. And he would say stuff like, I don't think that's going to serve you, you know, in sobriety. And he goes, you know, this is of our own. Conception. So, you, maybe put some thought into it, what you wanted it to be. And I was like, uh well, can we do that? You know, I'm like, you know, it was such a radical thought that I just start small just because it was so radical to me. Like, I felt like I was doing something wrong going against like this God I grew up with, right? So, you know, as much as I just wrote a little list, right? So, I'm like, just like, okay, what, what are some, some of the things you would like in this God? Oh, wow. So I did this. He's like, are you willing to believe? But there's this power out there that's greater than us that can restore us to sanity. And part of the sanity we want to be restored to is that when someone goes here, would you like this drink or this drug? that I go, no. And here's why. There's not enough. Here's where I'll end up, right? Like we can make that, that sane decision. And I go, well, I believe that it's worked for you. So I'm willing to believe there's got to be something out there. I've said this experience. So I'm, I'm like, I'm willing. All right, great. So we moved on. And that's as much as we put into it at that time. Uh, I think it's behooved me to go back since and kind of dive deeper in it. But at the moment, that's the best I can do. And it was good enough. And then the next thing we went into is the third step, right? So we, we read the whole third step and talks about in the big book, talks about the actor and all that stuff. And I mean, that was really, again, profound. I ask a lot of questions. I'm not easy. So I'm like, well, why am I like this? Right? Like, why? Why did I end up here? Like, why? And then they started saying stuff like, Drugs and alcohol aren't the problem.
1: They're a symptom of the problem. You're the problem. Yeah. That blew my mind the first time I was in an AA meeting, and they said, alcohol and drugs are not the problem. They're a symptom of the problem. we got a real living problem. We don't have the tools to live life on life's terms without drinking and drugging. We are missing some spiritually-based tools. (laughs) And I was like, my mind was like... Exploding, yeah,
0: exploding. It was, you know, Brad, you, your your problem is you the way you think,
1: yeah. Everywhere you go, there you are.
0: I'm like, oh man, he was like, Man, you take those drug and alcohol away, like you're, you're still there, right?
1: Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh man, with the sorry set of life skills,
0: yeah, yeah. So he's, you know, I'm like, oh, okay. And he was like, Really, what the deal is, he's like, Have you ever worked at a place where like you and another guy had the same position? Like that guy's bossing you around who's not your boss. <laughs> so I worked at this, uh, I was a cook at this nursing home and there was two people that uh, washed the dishes. So everyone had a number. It was one through eight. So uh, position seven and eight was the same thing. You mop the floor and you wash the dishes. It's just, you did it from different angles. And so we've got paid the same, same thing. And he would boss me around and be like, you're doing it wrong. I'll be like, I not. Yeah. And get, And he was like that with everybody. Trying to run the show, control the show, and do you think that people invited him out after work to hang out? No, he was not liked, which is not a uh, you know. So he was like, "Brad, you're like that guy. Like your job is an actor. What's the actor's job on a, on, a, on a set? Say his lines, do his part, go home. Well, you're like the actor, you know. And you hear about these actors in Hollywood all the time. And there's you know, you hear these famous actors that are hard to work with because they'll be acting a scene. So you and I are acting a scene, and I'm like, cut. Yeah. Mike, that was no good.
1: Yeah. Or change the lights. Move that light over here. (laughs) Move that over here.
0: Right. So it's like, that's not your job. My job is to deliver the line, receive the line. That's it. Right. And I'm telling you, you're not doing it right. I'm telling the light guy to move. And that's not my job. And that's how I live life. Right. Uh, I think it's funny in meetings a lot. You hear people, that be like, I was the most selfish scumbag in the world. You're like, relax, dude. Like, you're not. But I understand what you're saying. Like, I understand people got to go to that extreme to like accept it and understand it but it's not like the book isn't talking as violent as that right the book is talking about stuff like isn't it that we're just more concerned with our own resentments our own feelings our own wants like like isn't that our basic problem so it tells us like we're selfish self-centered then it goes into like we're like the retired businessman, right you know lowland in the sun that type of thing but then it goes it says at the end of that it says whatever our protestations is our really our problem. It's like, we're just m- mostly concerned about our own resentments, our feelings, yeah,
1: selfishness, self-centeredness, yeah.
0: the root of all the of problems. So I, I look at that and I go, okay, it's not saying like if somebody's broke down on the side of the road and be like, ah, screw you. I mean, like we're not saying you're like that type of person. What we are saying is like when things that you're mostly concerned about yourself, you're mostly concerned about your own feelings, your own resentments, your own self pity. So you're sitting in a room, someone gets good news, and you're like, well, how does this affect me? And then you start getting in fear about how it's going to affect you and affect your life, and you can't even... Like, that's the type of stuff it's talking about, right? So it says, self centeredness it's the root of our problems. The root, not the pretty branches and surface leaves, right? The root, what's underground. And it says we are driven by a hundred forms of fear. So... Let me just kind of like show how this is my problem. So I'm driven by a hundred forms of fear. What fears do I have? I'm not good enough. I'm not lovable. Nothing's ever going to work out for me. That I'm going to die alone, broke, sad, blah, 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 right? That like, I'm just tragic. That's my self-pity talking. Aren't I most concerned with my self-pity? So someone comes in the room and goes, hey, Mike, this podcast just blew up and blah, blah, blah. Look, like, how's this going to affect me? Instead of me just being happy for you, I get start getting driven by fear. Well, how am I going to get what I want?
1: Why don't I get what I want?
0: Like that's my problem. Do you see what I'm saying? I'm driven. I'm driven by those fears, and then I step on your toes,
1: and then they retaliate. So then I go, why? Instead
0: of instead of like hugging you and be like, man, that's so awesome. You've worked so hard on this, and you have. Yeah, yeah. I've never. You are so organized, and, and you know, <laughs> right? Like uberly. So, and um, so instead of hopping up and being like, like man, you're killing it. You've been organized. It's it's a great thing. You've worked so hard for. It. I go. Oh, that's cool. And then I leave. And now I stepped on your toes. You, what the, (laughs) this guy, you're supposed to, you know what? You couldn't even be happy for me, right? So then all of a sudden next time, like I need, you know, you're in a position to help me out or do something. You're like, fuck, I'm not going to help this guy out. And then I go, can you believe,
1: Mike? Snubby, right? So, like, I and I like to use that blew less... my mind when I got to that part of yeah. the book. Yeah, it like... just says it right there. Yeah, it was written in the '30s before you and I were born, <laughs> and it just says it right there. And I was like, oh my god! It starts talking about selfishness, self-centeredness. It talks about how we're so selfish and self-centered, we step on the toes of our fellows, and they retaliate, and we don't know why. Yeah, but wasn't it always because we paced ourselves in a position to be harmed based on selfish th- decisions that we? made you know chicks that we date jobs that we take cars that we drive things that we say and the longer that you go into long-term sobriety you can kind of get a a track record uh, and you realize i want to be less selfish sure and uh that line i
0: told you how that first week of football at college football, I walked in and told the captain I was going to take his job. Right. So driven by a hundred forms of fear that no one's going to like me. Mm-hmm. I stepped on his toes. Yeah. And how did he retaliate? Well, they made my life miserable. Right. Like yeah. they, they I didn't me stuff. Right? Yep. right. So, so this was me. And when we read this, I'm like, Oh my God. So, um, I took the third step actually with a guy named bear. Mm-hmm. He was an ex bandidos biker and forcer. And he'd say stuff like, oh, I've killed a few people. You know, he was just a real country guy. Right? I mean, he was probably like 350 pounds. Mm-hmm. Big bear. And he'd hug you, and he, oh, he'd put the spirit in you. He'd give you these hugs. And he'd been sober like 20 years at this point, you know. So he'd been on some real stuff. Mm-hmm. And he'd be like, Brad, I feel bad about that, but there ain't nothing I can do now except do good. You know, he was real <laughs> simple. But So this man pulls me down. He's holding my hand. and He's like, we're going to say this prayer. No if any other man besides a 6'6", 350-pound ex-biker enforcer of the bandinos was pulling me down, holding my hand to say a prayer, at that time I wouldn't have done it because I'm like, oh, you know, that was a little. And uh, he was, and then he got up and he'd be like, well, you are going to be thrust forth into the wind of God, he said to me. And I'm like, oh, man, what is this guy? I mean, it was just like <laughs> such a surreal experience. You know, I'm on the streaming center, so – Next thing I know, I get a notebook shoved in my hand, and it was like, well, you need to write your four step. And I'm like, oh. Now, I did something that I advise my guys not to do, is I took about three months to do my four step. I sat on it. I'm in this treatment center. I had nowhere to go. So I started doing stuff in this treatment center, like I shaved my head into a mohawk. Uh, and the reason I'm still in this treatment center, because I was there for 10 and a half months. So it's a big chunk of my the beginning of my sobriety so i shaved my head into a mohawk i started breaking all these rules you know and uh and it was i was acting out so I'm writing this four step and stuff's coming out and I could speak two hours on the four step. It was this great thing. But one thing it did do for me is since I was in a safe place, I did an extended third and fourth column, which you write a little bit more. And for those who know about the four step, it just was a great experience. But it was the first time that I could own all this stuff that I always felt guilt and shame over. I never wanted other men to know. I can own it to another man and have him look at me and go, yeah. Right. So where I grew up. You know, I told you about all that stuff where the, you know, adults would call me fat or I'd get beat up or, you know, uh, a guy beat me up in the middle of the road for smashing the pumpkin. He would look at me and go, man, that's, I'm sorry that happened to you, dude. That's real sad. Like, you didn't deserve that. And I would say stuff like, well, it affected the way I felt because it affected my self-esteem this way. And he'd be like, yeah, I bet it did, dude. I'm sorry, man, that sucks just some compassion from another man. I never had that opportunity. There was no one to talk to about that stuff. And you just didn't, you know, like imagine grabbing right. your father, Michael and saying, Hey, let me talk, let me tell you all this made me feel. I'm not saying my dad wouldn't have listened. but it's
1: just how do you work that in the conversation at Subway yeah with (laughs) one of your home you're you're at the Subway eating number 12 and how do you work that in the conversation right and chips and a drink yeah (laughs) oh by the way by the way check this out let me talk to you about my sex inventory yeah they talk about my fears and resentments and what it affected on my part
0: how's that spicy Italian by the way right?
1: I've heard a lot of fist steps and the fist step comes after the four step and I've had a lot of men come to me and tell me a lot of things that are tragic and many of them illegal and many of them horrific things that they've done to other people and things that have happened to them. And I just, you know, at the end of it, I just say, you know, thank you for sharing that with me. I love you. God cares. You cares about you, forgives you for all that. You're going to be all right. Let's keep going. Yeah. Let's keep going. And they're like, what do I do next? I'm like, I'm glad you asked. You need to go, you need to go home and you need to find a place to be quiet for an hour and review the first five proposals and think about what, have you done the first five steps correctly? And take an hour to really think about that and meditate on that. Cause we're building an arch through which you're going to pass a triumphant man. And, uh, God loves you and I love you too. And I care about you and I'm sorry that a lot of those things happened to you and, uh, let's keep going.
0: Yeah. And, and so I, you know, going through that experience was such a beautiful thing and obviously there's great detail to it and you learn a lot. Um, mm-hmm. you know, you learn about how you've played a role in, in, And the one thing I found profound and I would complain about, like, can you, I was, I'm big into this story. i like you to feel bad for me. So I always live in the story, right? Because that's how I can get worth from you, by feeling bad for me, right? So I'll say stuff like, can you believe? And, you know, I could tell stories. So I go, Mike, let me tell you about this girl that cheated on me, right? Mm -hmm. Because by the end, I want you to go, yeah, she sucks, man. She's terrible, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I want you to be on my side. So I'm telling you this story, right? And then when you look at it from the fourth step, in, the, in, in your fifth step and you're in, you're in your fourth column and your fourth step and you're looking at it and then all of a sudden it reads different. The story tells different, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And now the story tells all of a sudden because all I told you was the first three columns. So and so cheated on me and it hurt. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, well, let's look at it. It's like, well, you were you flirted with all her friends. You stole money from her wallet. You kicked her out of your car, right? You would ignore you her for three days, her sister. yeah, right? And, now, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, and then she cheated on you, and then you go, oh, yeah. Not that anyone deserves that stuff. Not that cheating's okay. But the reality of the story is, I set the ball in motion.
1: And how so, did you conduct yourself prior mm-hmm. to the events that you have a resentment yeah. about? Or and you can use all that stuff. You can scoop all that experience up and dig- digest that in your store in your soul and be like. You know what Mike, moving forward I'm not going to be like that no more. I'm going to pray to God to remove those character defects from yep. me and we're going to get there when we get to 6 and 7 and I'm going to try not to be that guy anymore and and see if I can grow up a little bit. A lot of a lot of this a lot of this recovery thing from alcohol alcoholism and drug addiction is kind of just growing up, man. Sure is. And growing up in acquiring life skills at an advanced age for a bunch of us that we should have maybe acquired 10, 15, 20, 30 years earlier However, we were real busy drinking and drugging then. And when you're real busy drinking and drugging, then you don't have time for character development, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, uh, developing and refining a great set of morals. I mean, you're so busy living in the rock crusher of addiction that you miss out on a lot of programming that your parents are teaching you or society's teaching you or the church is teaching you or the media is teaching you. You just tune it all out because you're so busy living in that rock crusher of alcohol and drug addiction that you don't develop those skills so you have to do it later and later for a lot of us is in the rooms of recovery and we have to learn how to be an adult uh and and act as if you know and a lot of times I just act as if I'm an adult and one way that I um have been able to gain a lot of life skills in the recovery community is by observation that I see other men in alcoholics anonymous behave and I'm like oh okay that guy's been married 31 years. Oh, that guy has two kids. Oh, that guy has two businesses. Oh, that guy has a mortgage and a house and a car. How does he do it? So sure. I watch him, and I watch him, and I listen to him, and I ask him questions, and I'm like, how do you be a good husband? How do you pay your taxes? How do you be a good dad? How do you be a business owner? How do you make amends to someone? How do you get closer to God? How do you get more God in your life and less you? How do you stay of service in alcoholics? How do you do more? The longer you're sober, not less, you know, talk to me about those things. And there's many men in the rooms that I have discovered that are willing to talk to you about those things, you know, and I feel like it's important, even if you've been sober decade, decade, decade to have accountability and service, you know, for me, two of the key uh, proponents to me is I need to have accountability with another group of men and also learn how to get into and stay in service to others. This podcast is part of it. It's not all of it. But it is part of it. I'm trying to provide a service and a, a vehicle uh, to document stories of people that have recovered just like yourself and that's why I'm super excited that you're here today. We got a lot of ground left to cover because we've got to get into your adult sure, years yeah, and I, all that so let's I'm let's speed it up yeah let's go go a little faster towards so, getting out of there and what happened next
0: yeah so um, you know the experience of working the steps doing the fourth and fifth was really the first accomplishment that I truly had. In my life, I've done a lot of cool things. Who'd you do your fifth with? With my sponsor, Craig. And um,
1: this was the good looking guy with the tan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So
0: when we got out, I don't know, he just he just you know, he just congratulated me. He said, Dude, you did something that a lot of people need to do with their life, but never will. And he goes, I, I hope you know this is an accomplishment. And people around me started saying, Brad, you look different. And I'd be like, oh, I don't know, I don't really, I, I don't know, it was a lot to process. I didn't like particularly feel different, but could people get well, oh, you're different. And so, uh, It propelled me into kind of really diving in. My attitude changed at that time. I was really going against the grain, and now all of a sudden, like, I was all in. Like, after doing that, I had this profound spiritual experience where, like, doing this work and kind of being about this life, like, profoundly changed. Uh, Before, it was like, I don't know, maybe. And I was doing what was asked, but I was, like, begrudgingly doing it. And now I'm like, oh, this works. Like, something changed inside of me. I started having realizations like, oh, I haven't thought about using it in a while. Right. And, and, and I always tell people how I could tell a a spiritual experience that you're having the complete psychic change is like that you react differently to stuff, you know, and so I was reacting differently. It was really cool. Uh, I got propelled into, you know, making some amends and I had this unbelievable amends experience right as I was getting out of treatment about 10 and a half months. Uh, so I, I actually didn't graduate that treatment center. They asked me to leave because, um, I did not want to. Like, all of a sudden, I couldn't graduate. I to go to their halfway house. And, like, they were forcing me to do the service that they wanted to do. Uh, they actually kind of, they ended up getting brought up on charges about it because of, like, how militant they got. They were really bad. They used to have these things called growth opportunities where you would get put on contract. And I was on a no-speaking contract for several weeks, and the state says that that's not okay. Anyway, so I get out, and one of the bad things was is, since I didn't graduate from there, like all the support system, they weren't allowed to speak to me. That was another thing that they got in trouble for. It was like, they would get in trouble if they spoke to me. So I didn't have any any friends. I had nowhere to go. Like literally, I'm in Kaufman, Texas. I was supposed to graduate like a, a week before I got kicked out. And I was supposed to go to their halfway house. And now all of a sudden, like they, I had my car sent in from New York. And they just like asked me to leave. I had nowhere to go. That first night after being in treatment for 10 and a half months, I'd found some guys that had graduated from the treatment center. I'd stayed on their couch for several days. I found myself the first night out at a mixed master mic concert at the Granada. And I was like an alien. And I go, oh God. Well the first time I was really in a social setting, I didn't know what to do. And I, I like I couldn't talk to people. I, I, I mean, talk I mean, I changed smoking cigarettes. I was so nervous. And I started freaking out. And then this thing came in and was like, you need to go pray, dude. So I go into the bathroom at the Granada. I hit my knees and I'm praying. Someone thought I was throwing up. I was in the stall, this bathroom stall. I'm praying. It's dirty in there, but I didn't care. I needed God. And so I'm praying. And then I get up and I walk back out. And one of the guys that I was with um, that went to treatment, they'd gotten out. One was staying with his girlfriend. The other one had already relapsed and I didn't know it. And I'm staying on his couch. And he was like, oh, you look uncomfortable. We should go. I mean, I said that prayer, I go out... And part of my experience with God is like, I, I want that light switch God, right? Like I want to have that faith that when I walk in a room, flip a light switch, I don't like stare at the light and go, I don't know, maybe it's going to turn on, maybe it's not. And then question how the electricity works when it turns on. I walk in a room, flip the light, keep going. That's how I want my faith to be. And those experiences have led me to having that light switch faith, right? And so, you know, I say that prayer and it's easy to walk out and go, I don't know, maybe that's not God. I hundred percent believe it is right. I mean, I said a prayer and I got taken care of right after I got to go home. And, um, but I knew after a few days, it didn't feel right there. And I had to move into a place. So I moved into this, um, sober living apartment that used to be in Dallas off of Fitzhugh. And
1: How'd that, you end up in Dallas from Austin?
0: Oh, sure. I got sent up to this treatment center. The one in Kaufman from the one in Austin, to the one in Kaufman, cause I wasn't following the rules. I got kicked out and sent to this one.
1: Okay. Um, uh, so you were up here in North Texas. I'm up
0: here in North Texas. I'm moving this place off. Fitzhugh. It's like the Wild West there. There's supposed to be rules, but it's everyone. I mean, it's supposed to be a sober place. Everyone's using. Everyone's sleeping with each other. It's gnarly. And all I can do is like start going to meetings. I got a job folding T-shirts at this clothing store in Lovers Lane, and here in Dallas. And uh, all I can do is just like go to meetings. Dude, I went to a ton of meetings. I used to go up to the old Preston Group. And I tell this so people know in early sobriety, you got to do what it takes. It's not easy. So yes, I was sober 10 and a half months. And yes, I'd got the word steps. But I'd been on a cattle ranch for 10 and a half months of this sobriety. So the first couple months of being out, I was as good as a new you know newcomer. Yeah,
1: totally.
0: So I would go sit up at the group. At Preston. All day. Yeah, so, uh, Days I would have off from the t-shirt shop, I'd go sit up there all day.
1: And guess what? That's all right. And that was all
0: right. And the old timers there would say stuff like, what are you doing? I'd be like, oh, I don't know what to do. They'd be like, go do all those dishes. I'd be scrubbing those ashtrays. Scrubbing them. And they were not nice guys. Those old timers not up nice there.
1: ashtrays either. No. And they'd be like, you That's missed disgusting. that one
0: over there. <laughs> right? And they'd be like, oh, you missed that one. And then I would be like sitting there and uh, they'd walk out and be like, why don't you mop the floor? like this ass. Awesome. and i would just do it. They were like old timers like grandpas, you know. Oh, yeah. Mop the floor. Then they'd say stuff like you eat lunch. These guys were not kind of like <laughs> looking back they were kind of loving but outwardly they weren't but they didn't say, feel like. If they would say stuff like you eat lunch,
2: i'd be like, "Uh, you
1: know? I don't. money."
0: And they wouldn't say anything but they'd come back and they they'd hand you a little sack of double cheesies or something from McDonald's. Yeah. yeah there you go. Not very nice guys again, but they would do these beautiful things. Looking back, I'm like, oh, what beautiful men these were. And they would say stuff like, man, you got to start doing some service. So I knew profoundly that if I didn't keep busy in AA, that I was, wasn't going to last for me. So I had this experience, I had this spiritual experience. I was placed in a position of neutrality, but I knew I could lose it. Early sobriety was nuts, you know, in my early 20s. There was no um, like kind of youth group, you know, like uh, no young people's meetings at the time. Me and a couple of people, we started the first young people's meeting here in North Texas, Um, still going today, whiskey and milk. And that was a cool experience of starting that. But we just see this need. All of us were going to Preston, you know, and it was just like, we were all these young kids and this old timer was like, why don't you guys start your own meeting? Because we were just like too wild for him, you know? And so we did. I went for the first year or so, and then my sponsor was like, you need to stop going. Because why? I was taking ownership
1: of it. Oh, no.
0: <laughs> I was getting mad and people weren't doing what I wanted them to do, you know. Okay. Or, or like, a vote went against me. And uh, uh, When was coaches. the last time you
1: went? Has it been
0: years? Yeah. Probably okay. 2017, no.
1: 2016.
0: Okay. I've had some sponsors go recently. You
1: think you'll ever go back for a guest appearance? Yeah, I mean, it's not yeah. – it's just – I, you know, i'm not
0: moved to do it but if, yeah. if i went i mean i'm not opposed to going okay. it's just i needed to stop going at that time because it was just more of like a pride and ego thing. it was kind of the next layer of the onion that my, my sponsor wanted me to work on but he was just like dude you know if we find things troubling because it be, started to become troubling for me if we find things troubling like leave it alone like go go do something else okay and like let that settle so i did and it was just kind of and i've gone back since after mm-hmm. that but it's just in terms of like regularly being my home group you know, so, um, I got real heavy in the service, mm-hmm. I got real heavy in the service. I went to Timberlawn. I brought a meeting to Timberlawn uh-huh. Wednesday nights for, uh, the, the detox in Timberlawn. Mm-hmm. I brought a meeting there for two years. I love that place.
1: Yeah. Um, which campus, the original campus sent off a of 30. Yep. Yeah. Me too. Yep.
0: So I went all the way out there, uh, every Wednesday night for two years, man. And I, that it was, I was famous for scooping. I would bite people out to dinner. Yeah. And they'd be like, where are we going? I'm like, oh, we got to go do this thing for. Like, they were in the program with me, right? Yeah. So I'd be like, Mike, what are you doing tonight? Oh, I got nothing. Cool. I'm coming to pick you up.
1: Oh, no. And you'd be like, well, where
0: are we going? Oh, I'll get you some food. And, uh, you yeah. know, we got to go do some
1: service. Yeah, do something. Yeah.
0: And I would drive you. would be like, where are we going? Drive <laughs> down 30. We'd go, we go through the meeting there. Yeah. And everyone would be pissed at me. We'd be walking in. Yeah. And then when we would be driving, they'd they'd thank be, you. They'd be like, bro, that was dope. Can I come next week? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I started doing stuff where uh, I started getting a lot of sponsors and, and um, started trying to save them with capes. You know, <laughs> I was living in 10, 11, and 12 has been the biggest trip. I want to talk about a trip. Tell me, talk about 10, 11, 12. That's one of my questions. So, I mean, any of those, pick one, of, any one of those that's, three. That's the biggest trip in the game, living, living <laughs> in that. I, I, All this other stuff is stuff that happens, right? But this journey of 10, 11, and 12, it's gnarly. Yeah. I mean, it's beautiful, but it's gnarly.
1: It sounds cliche, but guess what? I feel like one through nine gets us to 10, 11, and 12, and we live in 10, 11, 12. You can go back and revisit the other steps, but... 10, 11, 12 is like, can you remain sober? Can you remain in a good emotional balance? And can you live to good purpose under all conditions? Sure. And that's where 10, 11 and 12 are.
0: Yeah. And like in, in a lot of 10, 11 and 12, one through nine is kind of built into a lot of it. Right. Like we're continually watching for arms, resentment, selfishness. Right. And then uh, we're promptly admitting when we're wrong. So uh-huh. it's basically telling us like, all right, bro, we cleaned up the past. Yeah. Now, when you start screwing it up again, like let's deal with it when <laughs> it's it happens. Drain the right?
1: swamp a little bit on day, on the day of the offense. Right. So, uh, <laughs>
0: I will say, like I said, man, this 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 journey, it's the greatest deal in town. Yeah. Now, I'm going to say this because I believe it in all my heart. Alcoholics Anonymous is the most significant spiritual movement since the dawn of Christianity. Alcoholics Anonymous has done more to better society than, than any other movement and group, in my opinion. In my opinion, it's worth what it's worth. But we take some of the worst people you've ever met. And we turn them in, like, in terms of acting-wise, right? Like, I was out committing felonies on a daily basis, like, putting people's lives in harms, drinking and drugging, driving and stuff, and all this other stuff. And now, all of a sudden, like, I'm a, I'm a, you know... A good dude. Good dude. And I and I contribute to society, to right? Like, like what more radical change do you see? I know a lot of friends are like, oh, I started going to church, I do a men's Bible study, and, like, that's it. They can't be bothered with anything, and that's fine. Mm. But I'm just saying, like, wow, look at the good... We're taking... We're taking people that no one even wants to. Do you realize that addicts and alcoholics are the last people that people want to deal with? I mean, it's a problem no one wants to deal with. They're like, I don't know, man. Mm-hmm. Right. We take some low bottom people and we and we tend to them because they're still part of the flock. You know what I mean? And we, we give to them. We love them. So this thing is a trip. And uh, once I cleaned up the past, I made some amends. I had some unbelievable amends experiences where I've, I felt like I did when I did drugs. Like, I've, I've made some amends and left and felt high. Like, like wow, like, what an experience. But living in 10, 11, and 12 is a different deal, right? Because I've I, I referenced earlier that sometimes I don't, like, how I think I'm showing up and how I'm showing up is not the same. And I don't, I'm not unique that way. So we need to be able to spot check ourselves throughout the day. And the one thing with 10 is a lot of people mess up. You know, they say, oh, I, you know, 10 my nightly review or whatever. But the nightly review is an 11. So 10 is just about during the day, in the moment, in the action. For example, I'm at work, boss comes in, critiques me on something, I start to spiral. All right, it says, so when resentment, selfishness, dishonesty, fear crop up, when it does, because my boss just walked in, just cropped up. We talk about it, pray about it, and resolutely turn our thoughts over where we can be of service. That's all the 10 steps really tell us to do. And if, and if we've caused harm, brought this upon ourselves then we need to promptly make amends sometimes promptly is you know whatever your sponsor tells you to but sometimes it's then sometimes it's a few hours later sometimes it's the next morning but that is what it's trying to do it's just trying to it's trying to get us through the day right mm-hmm. and then in the morning and at night we have a way to reflect upon our day which is 11 but 10 is just to get us through the day and what i found is when i do that when i take it for like the face value and do that my life goes so much better so when I go, oh, this just cropped up, I, I, I just like I did the Granada, I go into the bathroom, hit my knees, I pray about it. God, please take this away. I come out and I, talk, I try to talk about it, resolutely turn where I can be of service. I, I, I do pretty good.
2: Yeah.
0: And uh, so when a 10 step, I can really like get into it, get into it. But the reality of the situation is about being diligent throughout the day to watch for that stuff and not spiral. And I don't. I can't tell you how many days over the last fifteen years I start out thinking I was going to have a good day, and then stuff happens. I am like, ah, oh, and then I am you know I am just off to the races, being selfish, grumpy, or whatever. So, this is a great way to do it. And so, ten is really just about it's like my weapon during the day, right? So it it allows me to look at resentment, and selfishness, dishonesty, and make amends. But eleven is where, in my experience, 11's the magic, and that's the journey, right? So the whole thing about this program is. We need to look at your character defects, which is blocking you off from God. And we need to get you connected to God. And you could choose whatever that God is you want it to be. But that's what this program is. Sorry. That's what we have to offer, right, in AA. So all of a sudden, we find out what our character defects are. You know, we allow God in to work on those. Now we're getting connected to God. And part of it's that spiritual journey. And it's such a beautiful thing. I've gone crazy with it. I've done all sorts of things. I've gone to retreats. I've, uh, I've, you know, sage burning, I've done, I've burned incense, had prayer rugs, I've read all these books, you know, doing all this crazy stuff. And what I found, the best sobriety that I've had is uh, when I apply the KISS theory, keep it simple, stupid, right? So, I literally know what what it says in the 11th step and it's just been magic. And I've committed to that like the last... I kind of hit a low point a few years ago in sobriety, and then every night since, I kind of had another experience where I kind of got away from just going to meetings, sponsorship, and just you know that stuff, and I and I hit hit an emotional rut.
1: Where what year around twelve
0: or something? Uh, this was twenty nineteen and twenty nineteen, so you know three years ago. Yeah. yeah, twelve around
1: twelve years. Yeah,
0: so I hit this
1: rut. That was right before the pandemic hit. Correct. And so you were pulling back from what meetings?
0: Uh, So, yeah, I mean, I hadn't been to a meeting. I hadn't been really praying and meditating. Been how long? I hadn't been in service. Mm, I don't know, about four or five months.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean,
0: I was coached at college football, so the season started in August and come December. So August, September, October, November, December. Yeah, so about four four months and some change uh-huh. that I hadn't into a meeting
1: were you concerned at all about yourself or your meeting frequency? no because I was so busy with football that okay. when the season ended okay.
0: so I was working 18 hour days yeah. you going home you're yeah. so tired you okay. pass out you wake up uh,
1: so you almost didn't notice that you hadn't been going I didn't
0: notice it until I thought out oh. from you know I was working seventy yeah. eight hours a week so yeah. all of a sudden I come to and I'm like whoa I mean the day hit. I just thought I was tired at first and then one day it was the darkness return <sighs> And then I started thinking that something else must be the problem.
1: Like what? Like emotional, whatever. Uh, I depression.: got some, I got
0: some new form of mental illness going on. Yeah. There's got to be some meds out there to fix me.
1: Mm-hmm. So that was uh, my next question. Have you ever experienced depression or anxiety since you've been sober? and what did you do about it?
0: 100 percent. 100 percent. So the biggest thing at this point was I started thinking I needed some sort of medication. My brother, I mentioned, was an addiction doctor. He looked uh-huh. at me and he was like, "Yo." What's your program been looking like? uh Oh, and I was like, well, um. so I do. I started over. I was living in Providence, Rhode Island. No one knew me there from anybody, and um, I wasn't. hadn't really gone to meetings. wasn't plugged in, and I was going, volunteering, to shake hands, walking in the door, like they called on people there. I never got called on to speak because they was like, "Who is this guy? We don't know." They'd be like, "Why don't you just make the coffee?" Oh, I'm like, I've been sober twelve years. Like, all right. Guy. Yeah, you know, I was just kind of like, who's this guy? All right, guy. And so I was making coffee. I was shaking hands. You know, no one was asking me to sponsor. I was just showing up, mm-hmm. just doing the deal. I started praying and meditating again. And the scary part was that it didn't flip right away. It wasn't like I started taking action in like within a week, within five days. I'm like, oh, okay, God's back. It took some obedience. It took 30 days or so to like, to like come out from that. And it was a really weird experience, but it showed me it was an important experience because it showed me not to take it for granted. Because sometimes I think, like, oh, I can get off track, but I'll just hit meetings again, calm my spot, and say some prayers. It's like, nah, 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 like, don't play with this thing. Don't think you can just hop back in and start praying again and be okay. Like, it takes some work, and it takes some dedication to thaw out again, to knock the stuff off. Um, so, I mean, in my journey of doing 10, 11, and 12, I, I will say in sobriety I've experienced some strange some you know it hasn't always been rainbows you know so uh, I got sober in 2006 so uh, in 2009 I was boating at a lake there was a boating accident this lady died in my arms and another person had this face ripped off and on the same day um, this two year this relationship I'd gotten in had ended that day this lady died in my arms and then my mom had a stroke that day on the same day and that experience shocked me into a deep depression. So a couple of years sober, boom, shocked it. I'm like, oh, I was suicidal. Like I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to process. I'm like, I thought I was getting sober and life was going to be good. How, how can I have a 30 hour period where this stuff, all these three things happen? I couldn't, I couldn't process it. I couldn't fathom. Um, so a year later I start pulling myself out, right? I started doing something and like, you know, a lot of meetings, a lot of sponsorship. Start pulling myself out. At the same lake, I'm in an explosion, firework explosion. I take a firework to the back of the head I almost die. I'm in the ICU. And so I have this crazy experience. They're trying to give me pain meds. I'm trying to fight them off. I mean, it's just a gnarly deal. I have to have all this surgery, I almost die. You know, some of our friends from the group were there with me, and they got burned up pretty good. I mean, just a real gnarly thing we almost died so i had this terrible uh traumatic brain injury so i had to like learn how to talk again I it was just a really gnarly deal that happened so i you know year one i lose a girl the thing blah, blah i'm like wow that's heavy and then the next year i get blown up i have to learn how to talk again just real thing and then the following year this girl i was dating she had gotten pregnant and then our son was born and then passed away the following year so three years in a row bang 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 just hits and I started questioning God I started questioning this deal I'm like what the heck what did I do like why is this happening I thought I was supposed to get sober and everything was supposed to be great and the reality is no that doesn't say that it says God wants to be happy joyous and free and the obsession to drink and drug will be removed and we just really have a shot and life's still going to happen so one of the things after the we lost the baby, and, and it was just a tough deal, dude. You know, I had to buy a small casket, and you got to do the burial, and thank God for people in AA and the program. They never left me alone. But um, I had to go meet God again because I was really mad at God. And so I this was like unbelievable. And that kind of ties into the 11th step is I've just had this journey with God because then I hated him again. Everyone would be like, oh, God needed a new angel. And I'm like, what? I don't want to hear that. If he needed a new angel, he could have taken me. I take the baby, right? Like take me. I'm good, and so um, that wasn't sufficient for me. So like my belief in God was tested again. You know, I'm five and a half years sober at the time or whatever, and it's tested again. So the last ten years has been this journey of like I had, I got to re meet God, and so that's why I like to keep my eleven step real simple. So I do what it says, you know. So when we retire at night, I, I literally pull out a. I can't tell you how many times I'm in bed and I go tell my girl oh shit I get up I run and I answer those questions on a piece of paper right because it's just about doing it and sometimes I get to some really good stuff and sometimes it's just surface because I'm tired but I'm still doing it right and then on awakening I literally do what it says like God please you know, direct my thinking please remove selfish dishonest and then I think about my day and then I end with God please show me what my next step is to be Please give me whatever I need to take care of self problems. Please self self well.
1: Do you yeah. feel like you said at the end of that rough rough patch in your first five and a half years? At the end of that, you said you needed to go re meet God again. Do you feel like you've done that? Yeah. Or are you still in the process? No. I, I,
0: I one of the beautiful things was uh, I was really depressed. Um, I was really depressed, and someone from the program lied to me and said they knew I wasn't leaving the house. Everyone was concerned. So they said, uh, hey, big guy, I'm coming to get you, I'm bringing you to lunch. I said, okay. And he picked me up and he brought me, we pull into this business complex and he's like, room 113, 10 minutes. I paid for your first session. And Brad, I don't have a lot of money, so please don't waste my money, but there's a man up there I think you should speak with. He's a counselor. And he's a spiritually based counselor and I think you need to go speak with him. I was like, You mother I was so mad, you know. Like I it took everything just to get out of the house. So um he really I started there to re meet God. And he would say stuff like, Well, why why do you think God did this to you? Right. I mean, we would just challenge my beliefs and I got to go on a new journey. And that man was another angel that was sent to save my life. His name was Mike. What a beautiful man. He looked like a little accountant, but he really he got up in me and he really shook me to the core. But him shaking me showed me that he loved me. So you know, um, I got to meet God again. It was some through some beautiful experiences. But my eleven step just kind of shot off, and twelve. I just got to be of service, and and um, you know, I used to be a crazy big book number. I've lightened up a lot, and um, you know, I know I kind of I got a, I get a little preachy when talking about this stuff. But the reality is, like today, I just I just want to be of service. Like, I want to have a good life, right? I want to have a good time with my gal. I want to to live a good life. and I want to be happy, joyous, and free. But I also want to help.
1: Yeah. And
0: my track record over a decade and a half has shown that the only thing I've done consistently, right, is show up when people ask me to. Like, that's it.
1: Except for that period of few months where you didn't go to meetings because you got busy coaching football. Can you talk a little bit about why going to meetings is important?
0: Yeah, so... I heard someone say not too long ago, and I think you were there, and said uh, a lot of people um get get detached from the program over real noble reasons like,
1: like what give us an example like like being a
0: being a husband, being a father,
1: being a business owner, being a business owner being a dater, yeah just <laughs>
0: It's a noble thing if you came to me and you're like, I got three kids, we're super busy, and I'm a hockey dad or something, right? Like, right. It's really noble. Or what
1: if some dude rolled up on you and said, "Listen, I've been called to go to the seminary. I'm going to go become a priest and go to the seminary. I'm not going to go to AA anymore." I mean, it's tough. It's. A noble. I've actually,
0: I've actually been. It's a noble. Yeah, I've been around that. Yeah. I've, I have friends who become reverends and stuff and stuff. So, I've been around that. And so, what I've found is there was a noble reason I got away from it which was working and I was helping those kids. That's yeah. one thing when I coach, I, I do a lot for those guys. And so now what I found was what was it, why it was important was because A, it put me around like-minded people. And we are, you already told me my problem centers in my, my mind, the way I think and, and how I process stuff. So what it does is when I go to meetings and I'm around y'all, it reminds me that that's my problem. And it reminds me of the work that I need to do. The meetings aren't going to keep me sober, but all it is is a great reminder. Like, Brad, you got to take some inventory. Brad, you got some amends to make. Brad, you got to get back on your prayer and meditation. Mm-hmm. Brad, you got to get back on service, right? Like, those are the tools yeah. that keep me connected to God. And we forget
1: sober. a lot.
2: <laughs> I don't <laughs> know why we forget that asinine. all the time.
0: <laughs> I tell people all the time, I uh, I did a 11-step meeting the other day, and we were talking about prayer and meditation Everybody's share goes, Well, when I do it, I feel so much better, but I don't always do it.
2: <laughs> I'm like, What is
0: that? Like, it's the most insane thing. All of us are the same way, is like, Oh, it's the best when
1: I do it, but then I don't do it and
0: I feel bad. I'm like, what? Why do we do that? Right. So I,
1: I found something early in sobriety and it was a colloquialism that I just kept hearing people say all the time. And they would just always say, Hey, Mike, do you know what the definition of insanity is? And I'd be like, no, that's a definition of insanity. They'd be like, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. So I heard that over and over and over again. You know, and I was like, oh, okay, definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, ex- you know, expecting different results. I was like, that's pretty good, that's nice, whatever. And then somewhere between like nine and fifteen years sober, I heard this guy in a meeting one day. He said, Hey man, you know what the definition of insanity is? And I go, I go, Yeah, I think so. He goes, no, no, no. This kind of just applies to us as alcoholics and addicts. It's like finding something that works in our life, like the 12 steps, which lead us to sobriety. So finding something that works and then choosing to stop doing it or choosing to not do it anymore. That's the definition of insanity. You find something that works, you know that it works, you have experience that it works, and then you choose to not do it. Yeah. That's the definition of insanity. And when he said that, I was like, wow. Yeah, it is gnarly. I know a lot of alcoholics that do that. I know a lot of friends that drift away. And I don't have, I don't know, I'm making a comment now and I I don't know how I'm going to end this comment. I don't know where this is going to go, but I want to say that I do have a bunch of friends that I've made in recovering in the program since I've been sober over a couple of decades now that have drifted away. They're gone, they're still sober but they're gone, man. They've drifted away from meetings and they've drifted away and I don't really know where I'm going or what I want to say, except that I know how it makes me feel. It makes me feel sad and it makes me feel like I hope they're going to be okay. And um, I know that, I don't know if I know this, I feel like I know this, that, Alcoholics Anonymous is not the only solution to alcoholism. There are other ways to get sober and stay sober. It just makes me sad that uh, we don't have a monopoly on this deal. It just makes me sad that some of my friends are gone and they don't go to meetings anymore. Yeah. And they're not around me anymore. I don't see them anymore. It makes me sad. Yeah. And a lot of them have relapsed. And and a, lot a lot of them have, dead, Yeah. Yeah. A lot of them are dead. And a lot of them have lives that I don't envy. And then I really wouldn't want to get involved you know, from my observation. And I'm just like, oh, man, I wish you would have stayed in the pocket or stayed in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's one thing that I've been able to do is stay in the center of Alcoholics Anonymous except for uh, about a two- or three-month period in my first few years of sobriety where I got distracted with work. And when I got distracted with work, I found – that i hadn't been to a meeting in about four months and after about four months i noticed that you know i was like oh my god i got two or three months or two or three years sober i haven't been to a meeting in three or four months and so i remember noticing that and thinking okay this is dangerous this is not good for me i need to make myself go back to meetings i need to force myself and put it back on my schedule make it a you know something that i really need to do and then i found out that that didn't work i continued a few more weeks not to go to meetings and i was like i guess i'm gonna have to pray about it dude (laughs) I guess I'm gonna have to pray about it. So I started praying to God. I was like, "Please, God, I've been I haven't been to a meeting in a long time. I've been working, 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 and I'm tired. When I'm not working, I'm tired, and, and that's all I'm doing is working and sleeping and working and sleeping and I haven't. And I was like, "Please, God, I, I, I please get me back in those meetings. Please get me back to those meetings because I think that if I you know continue down this pathway, I'm headed for trouble, and I'll drink again. And if I drink again, I'll die." or things will go horribly, horribly wrong for me. So I started praying and then I was able to get back into meetings and I haven't left. Do you have any life situations that you're currently struggling with that the 12 steps have been able to help you navigate?
0: The coaching profession can be real fickle. So Mm -hmm. I took another position. I was director of a nonprofit and, um, I resigned from that and one trying to get back into coaching. And I have not been getting the results that I wanted, which is a new job and being hired somewhere. Mm -hmm. A lot of no's and a lot of just handling, you know, getting down to the final interview not getting the job. So there's been a lot of rejection. And it had gotten to a spot a few months ago where the rejection, I was getting so much rejection from applying all these jobs that, like, I came into a meeting. uh, I remember talking to Nancy about it and some other people. It, it rocked my self esteem so much. I didn't realize it, but just the constant no, 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 like you're, like you're not. How I was hearing it was like, well, you're not good enough to work here, whatever. You know, instead of just being like, it's not the right fit. So, one of the things was, I was just applying like crazy. So I was putting a lot of hours in to apply, and and I, I was like getting obsessed with it. And someone from our group said, "Hey, dude." Like, is it working for you? I'm like, no. He's like, are you getting results that are undesirable that is getting the way between like you, your sanity and God and helping others? I'm like, yeah. He's like, well, why are you still doing it? Why are you spending eight hours a day applying for jobs, getting these rejections when it's crushing you? Like, I understand you need to put effort in, but when your house is on fire, go mow the lawn, you know, stuff like that. So, and when something's troublesome to you, leave it alone, give it time and see how it shakes out. And I did. So I started following those like kind of simple directions and they were really worked. And so yeah, it's like okay, I've been sober this long, but stuff's still gonna bother me. Like I'm still gonna go through life and have stuff that I don't that I'm like, oh this ain't okay. And it's just my job not to stick in that very long. And I was and you know, I was stuck in that for about three weeks or so, a month. And I was like, oh, all right, I can't do this no more. So I mean I made this shift. I talked about it, prayed about it, left it alone, kind of came back to it. I've had some some good prospects, you know, the last few weeks but it's been like just making that shift was huge
1: would you be willing to move and relocate i mean you would almost have to right yeah so you'd go anywhere in the country or the world to to be a high level football coach yeah what do you what what position do you like to try to coach i'm an offensive guy offensive line guy
0: uh yeah so i do offensive coordinator work and offensive line yeah so um but really just about the right fit and I would like to go.
1: It seems like in that thing, it's very cliquish and fraternity like. It seems like the head coach always comes in and always brings his guys or his team with him. So you got to get underneath one of those pyramids, yeah. and as those pyramids move around the country, you just got to go with, go with the flow and yeah. be able to do that. So you teach a lot of handwork and a lot of footwork yep. and a lot of cadence yep. and
0: and, I, and that was part of the problem, which was happening. I would get down to the final interview, and then I wouldn't get the job, and you would see who did get the job, and you're like, oh, it's this boy.
1: Oh, totally 100%. Like, come on bro
0: like you know and then you kind of don't want to be the guy
1: you just gotta get hooked up to the right right locomotive the right, right, and locomotive, and, and the and right the, lead train i'd
0: be like dude you could have just been like
1: listen <laughs> made and, me fly up here
0: or yeah i just like i what really i just expect people and then i started seeing like i've expected it's just this is recovery right so yeah. part of its reflection it's like oh what's my character defect oh i have expectations yeah totally for people to treat me and respond to me a certain way and when they don't I get mad so that is a real life situation that I've been working on now that the program
2: has
1: I want to talk a little bit about the promises and then I want to talk a little bit about your music I know that you're into music so let's hit the promises first you've got a I think you've got a list of them there in front of you if you can talk about or select or give us an example of any of those coming true in your life that would be fantastic
0: yes so the promises are great And um, I've definitely known a new freedom and happiness. So if you drink and use drugs like, like we have, there's no freedom to that. You're bound. Slavery. You are bound to that. So that's the new freedom that I've known is I haven't had to live in that world. And a new happiness, not every day has been happy, but I know a new happiness. Like I know it's out there. So it's not telling me I'm supposed to have it every day, but that's cool. I will not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. There's nothing I've done in this world I'm not willing to talk about, own, or don't see as an asset. Some things, I, you know, there's times you go, oh, I probably could have done that better, but I can see how everything comes into position to help me. Um, I will comprehend the word serenity and will know peace. That to me is, that's the magic. That's the magic. Happiness comes and goes, stuff comes and goes. But knowing serenity, it's not all the time I'm at perfect peace. No. Serenity, so you get little glimpses of it though, right? Oh, and that's
1: the best. Yeah, right? That's the best. A little um, taste, a little taste of the nectar. Yep.
0: Yeah, and here's another good one. No matter how far down the scale we've gone, we will see how our experiences can benefit others. Right? Yeah. So there's been some stuff, even just like losing the baby. I can't tell you how many people that have sponsored that that's happened to. Mm-hmm. So as I'm going through it, you yeah. know, I'm holding my dead child, and I'm like, this is the worst thing. And, and it's a crappy thing. No parents should go through that. But I'm sitting there going, why, why, why? And then all of a sudden, one day, I'm like, actually in a position where someone's crying to me about it. And mm-hmm. I look them square in the eye and go, I understand. I know right, right where you're at. And like they know it. I know it. And, and like for them, I make it a little bit more okay. Yeah. You know? And, that, and that's a, that's that's what this is, is about, right? So that feeling of uselessness and self pity will disappear. Uh, we will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Like that's big. Self seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook on life will change. Fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. You know, as long as I pay my bills and pay my debts, right? I mean, I don't think a lot of people understand that. But if you owe people money, you're not you're never going to have it you're always going to have economic insecurity,
1: right? Yeah. So. Learn to live within your means. That takes some of us yeah. decades and decades yeah. and decades. And uh, some of us never get there, but some of us yeah.
0: do. So we will intuitively know how to handle situations that used to baffle us. So before, when stuff would go on, what would I do? I would run, blame others. Now, now I have a different set of tools to, to work from. So these extravagant promises, I don't think so, because I've experienced them all. And it's a beautiful thing.
1: I want to go back to step one for just a minute and ask you a question I've never asked on this podcast. And you were talking about the cycle of addiction, which I'm very familiar with the cycle of addiction. Did you ever find yourself at any point drinking against your will? And if you did ever notice that, what were you, what were your thoughts about that particular time in your using career?
0: Sure. Um, I always say this. There was a, one part of my drinking where I would wake up to, to think about how am I going to get? Mm-hmm. I used to go, how am I going to get? How am I going to get my booze? How am I going to get the money to buy it? Whatever. Then it changed. and This is the scary part, was how am I not going to get? I used to wake up going, I don't want to get high today. I don't want to drink today. Or like, I got to make it to work, right? You know, like this thing. Okay,
1: other things I have to do today. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, I got to do this thing today. And uh, here's how I'm not going to do it. Wow. So I used to plan ways on how I was not going to do it. I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do this, and then, I'm to, and then I'm going to go here, and then I'm going to be around these people so they won't let me drink, right? And so I, I would have all these ways of how I wasn't going to do it, and somehow, you know, by dinner time, I, you know, by lunchtime, dinner time, I'm I'm drunk, you know, on high again. So, yeah, yeah I mean, th- that was, you could call that drinking against my will. Totally. I didn't want to do it, and somehow at the end of the day, there came a point where I just said, ah, screw it.
1: I know music's a big part of your life and one of your passions. I saw you brought your guitar with you today. I asked you to do that, and I was super excited to see you walking up to the studios with it today. Could you play something for us and let the listeners hear a little bit of your uh, musicality? Sure can.
0: So this one is off the last album i did and did real good charted in in england it was like top 50 deal there and it was just kind of it's um kind of recovery based but also just around uh, a lot of a struggle with relationships and stuff like that a lot of people do just in general but specifically in recovery so it's about that
2: girl like you Would never go For a guy like me My mom's son Be patient There's a girl out there Just for you All the nights I stared away Laying in bed, waiting for you. Thought I must have done something bad, cause love has passed me by. I used to smoke it, and then I drank it. Don't you know that you're the drug I'm looking for? I used to smoke it, then I drank it. Don't you know that you're the drug I'm looking for? All the parties had the mates, but I had. Around the room, I see love in their eyes, but there was none for me. You smoke it. Found the switch for my heart. You turned it on, and it lit up with love. Then I drank it And don't you know that you're the drug I'm looking for I used to smoke it Then I drank it And don't you know that you're the drug I'm looking for I used to smoke it
1: Yeah. Love it, love it, love it. You're one of my friends and I've known you a long time and I know that you play music but I've never heard you play music and that was awesome. So, so cool. You wrote that? I did, yes. Wow. So, wow. I am so excited that you brought that guitar and I'm so excited that you played that. That was so cool. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about how they can find you? I know that you've Said that you're on Spotify, so tell our listeners how they can find
0: Yeah, so the whole Apple Music Spotify deal. Um actually look for the band name Kettlewell, K E T T L E W E L L All One Word. Kettlewell is a full album there. Um I was playing a bunch in the northeast, kinda of touring around there playing uh during the pandemic, I got to write a bunch of stuff and I've been down here and so I was supposed to go out to the UK for uh tour there and it was all kind of hitting but with the uh, coronavirus that got put to a halt and uh you know since i'm not a big artist you know there's no uh you know back fame to the call on to go do a con you know a little tour now but so that was kind of a bummer but you know at the end of the day it's it's fun to do and i'm the people in my band were all like-minded individuals in recovery so it's really cool to get together and play and and just have the experience uh, what I find is we all got to have outlets. So if you're uh, in recovery, I don't care if you go to AA, celebrate recovery, smart, whatever it is, right? You can do these different things. But you better have an outlet. But if yeah. something you can go do to, to get get some emotion, feeling out
1: totally whatever it is gardening music for me ice hockey other people are into uh working out knitting yeah Yeah. working out some people like mike mccoy our last guest was into cooking you know that that's what speaks to him sure so if there's any uh musicians out there that ever want to get in touch with him uh just reach out to me and i'll get you in touch with him uh reach me at mike at dot com if you want to fly uh, Brad out to do a concert for you or you guys want to come here and work with him in Dallas and collaborate, put something together. I know there's a lot of people in recovery that are into music, so... Maybe this could lead to something cool. I was so, so blessed by that. You know what? I, one thing I really liked about it is I could understand you, dude. I could hear your words. You were enunciating clearly. The cadence was right. The volume was right. Everything was clean. Uh, a lot of these musics I hear today, I'm like, I don't know what the guy just said. Sure. I don't know what he said, but I, I got the message. You were sending a message, and I received the message because I could understand you, and I could hear the words. So thank you for that. So excited. Anything else you want to say about music?
0: One thing I want to say about music really has nothing to do with sobriety, but it's just an important thing on my my heart is um, in the spirit of music, like collab, work with people. I think the the awesomeness and coolness of usable technology that's user-friendly has led a lot of people just making music alone in their room. And I think we lose part of the magic doing that. And I think the best part of making music is working with other people. Right. So people always just say to me, hey, you know what the best part about being a band is? And it's like, what? It's like working with other people. You know what the worst part is? Like what? <laughs> working with other people, right? So I mean, yeah, there is, you know, we can argue back and forth, but something magical happens when two minds just like this, right? Or just like recovery. Yeah. Two or more like minds get together, right? Magic, that's a meeting. Magic happens. God's present, right? Totally. That's how I feel with music. There's a moment when it's hitting and it's not always. Like I can mm-hmm. run through a whole no. song with the band and it's like, whatever. But then there's a moment yeah, yeah. where you look and you get a little side eye and the bass player's like, oh yeah. Like yeah. a little nod. Yeah. See our bass player, she'll start jumping.
1: Yeah. Like when she gets excited. <laughs> and and <laughs> that's how I know
0: she's feeling it. Yeah, yeah. She starts popping. Yeah. And then the drummer will close her eyes. Yeah. Yeah. So when when we're there, I go, okay, we're there. Yeah. I don't know where there is. Yeah. It's spiritual though.
1: Yeah, and it doesn't happen all the time.
0: Uh, I wish it did.
1: And I know that. Okay, totally. (laughs) And I respect that and love what you're saying from the performer side, but now let me give you some feedback and some my real-life experience from an audience member side, because that's all I've ever done. I've never been on a stage singer. My experience from an audience side is, I can tell when they're kind of just going rote through the motions. This is their fifty-six stop on a seventy-two city tour, and it's a Tuesday night, and they're in Dallas. But then, I'm, and it's still fine. There's nothing wrong with that. They're sure. ma- they're making money. They've signed a contract. They have to be there on this particular date and do this particular particular thing. But there's other times where it feels like the performer via the music, whether it's an instrument or their vocal acumen and them singing, it fe- feels like as an audience member sometimes they reach out and they just grab me by my soul and they pull me closer to them and they're like, listen to me, listen to me. I'm trying to tell you something. And they pour that into me. That's happened to me at a Lenny Kravitz concert. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dude, that's happened to me at a Lenny Kravitz concert. And it's happened to me at a Rolling Stones concert. And it's happened to me at a Justin Timberlake concert. And it's happened to me at a Celine Dion concert. And a lot of times I'll go in with low expectations and it will happen, sure. Like you said, magic. And the same thing with athletics, and just everything. It's just every once in a while, God wants to show up and show out, and you know it what? happens a lot through music.
0: Yeah, uh, Hendrix used to call it electric church.
2: <laughs>
1: so he said
0: when people come see me, he wants some He wants it, he, it's electric church. He wants yeah. it's like them going to church. Mm-hmm. He's going to give them a spiritual experience. That's right. what he used to say when he performed. Yeah. And I always liked that. I thought that was real clever because that's how I feel. I've, I've been connected to. Uh, I think the first spiritual experience I had was at a Paul McCartney concert. Yeah.
1: Oh, you, yeah, yeah. T- you told me about that. Yeah, and it
0: was such a wonderful experience that I was like, oh, there's got to be a God. That was the first time I go, there, I think there's a God.
1: You want to tell that story quick? Yeah, but you sure. told me before. Tell me about so, that. Um,
0: so I'm at this, I'm in the middle of my addiction, struggling real bad. My family goes to see Paul McCartney in Detroit. It was a two-night stop. We took, we rented a Winnebago. Nice. And my, my uncle drove it. And so we all, we, Packed in, there was like eight of us. And this went back when we drove to Detroit from Buffalo. We see Paul McCartney.
1: Was it indoors or
0: outdoors? It was indoors at the palace where the Pistons play. So we're sitting there and he comes out. And it was an extra long show because he got presented a guitar or whatever. So he was really, he was spiritually in it. You know what I mean? I think it was because it was a celebration night for him. It wasn't just another stop. He's doing um, Hey Jude at the end and that na 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 na. So the whole. He comes up from his piano and he's standing at the front of the stage. And, you know, the 25,000 people are all doing it at once.
1: Wow.
0: Right. So I look to the right of me and there's this biker. And he's just, and mine is July. So it's like middle of the summer. He's just got a leather vest on, no shirt, tattoos on his face. And so, you know, just looking like a hardened biker. Mm -hmm. I got my dad to the left. I look at my dad. He's got tears coming down. I look to my right, the biker, he's got tears coming down. Me and the biker's eyes lock, and he throws his arm around me, pulls me in tight. I don't know this guy. His sweat from his, you know, rubbing on my face. I look at my dad. My dad throws his arm around me, and we're swaying back and forth to this song. I don't know how long it lasted. It felt like 30 minutes of bliss. It was probably like three minutes, right? But the whole crowd's chanting. So in this one moment for that three minutes, everyone's on the same page. No one's worrying about bills that are due being stuck in addiction the girl that left him, heartache loss whatever right no one's worried about that everyone in that one moment was having a good time and having this this beautiful experience comes from this guy this biker to one side my dad the other and i'm seeing the whole crowd do it and there was such an energy a connecting energy like i felt connected to every person and and i was the only one that thought that like i was walking out of room was like "Whoa, my god right it was just people's minds were blown and i said there's got to be a god like i mean paul mccartney's a genius and all that stuff and you know but there was there's something bigger than all of us that were there and i think he would admit that too he's humble enough to know like yeah i wrote the song it's a great song but like there's something about like that, those moments where you're all connected. It was such a beautiful thing, you know.
1: In my experience, I've had experiences similar to that uh, surfing in the lineup. In the surfing lineups in, in Hawaii and California, there's been times where it's been so good for so many hours in a row that it seems like it's fake. I mean, it just the waves seem fake. They're just coming in so perfectly. And you just hear people laughing. I can hear people cackling and laughing as they're riding the waves past me to go, all the way down to the beach, and then they kick out, and then they're paddling back out, and I can hear them screaming and yelling at their friends, did you see that one? Yeah. And the sun is just perfect, and the water is 72 degrees, and the air is 72 degrees, and the wind is out of the south, and the, the barrels are just staying open and wide, and you can just see the fish and the stingrays and the barracudas under the water, and you're just like, this is like a video game, dude. Yep. And what it is, it, I, I have taken those opportunities to be like, this is love. This is God. This is life. This is reality, and it's so much better. And yes, you can experience those things, drunk and high. And I don't. I'm not. I'm not mad at you if you experience those experiences, drunk or high. But in my experience, they're so much better for me when I'm sober. Hundred percent. When I'm clear. When I'm able to really connect with my higher power and allow him to shower love and grace and compassion down on me, and for me to be cognizant of it in the moment and grateful for it at the time that it's going down. That's one skill set I do have and I've always had is when good things are happening to me, I say to myself, I never really say it out loud. Maybe I should start saying it out loud, but I do I do say it to myself. I say, Mike, this is really good right now. Don't take this for granted. This is a gift right now. Things are good right now. They may never be this good again. Please enjoy this day. Please enjoy this vehicle that you're riding in. Please enjoy this 72 degree day, sunny Please enjoy this golden retriever puppy that you're petting right now. Please enjoy your beautiful wife. Please enjoy your son playing ice hockey. Please enjoy this meal that's before you. I have the ability, and I don't know where it came from, but I have the ability to stay in the moment, be in the moment, and be appreciative at the moment. And that has only become more and more acute and keen as my years of sobriety have gone on because I know that time is a uh, quantity that is not unlimited for me. I have a limited time here. And so I need to really make sure that I'm present and develop the skill set to be appreciative and present in the moment when great, great things are happening to me. And don't take them for granted and be like, oh, well, it'll be just as good tomorrow. Or, oh, that was no big deal. Or, oh, that was a coincidence. No, it's grace. It's an unearned gift. And it's God winking at me and saying, enjoy your time here. You're not going to be here forever. Yeah. Please enjoy this.
0: And it's important to have people around to help you see that, too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. like even my gal helps me a lot with that. We were just on a little trip. She's like, "How come you seem unimpressed?" For you know, like, it was like <laughs> you're at this <laughs>
1: the Grand Canyon. She's like, "What are
0: you?" <laughs> you know, it was, it was a there was a just a sunset and the moon uh-huh. was coming up, and we were in this we yeah, were in hell country. Tell me about that. Well, oh, it was just gorgeous. Yeah, we stayed at this place in a glam yurt.
1: Ever? It was a yurt. <laughs> and a, there was a
0: king size bed. And there was a really just <laughs> unbelievable experience, but. She was like, Come look at the stars with me and I went out and yeah. looked at the stars and about She wants to sit out there for two hours, right? And so like about fifteen minutes later, I'm like, All right, well, I'm good. And she's just like, well, this is the most beautiful thing, you know. And I'm I'm like, Well, wow, I appreciate it. What it did is it allowed me to stop and do what you said. Mm-hmm. Just that reminder from her was like,
2: Oh Yeah.
0: I need to appreciate this, you know? And I and I also forget that I, uh, you know, I have a different set of experiences that she has. So um, you know, to allow her to have her experience, allow me to have mine, but also kind of stop and smell the roses type deal. You know, like, oh, this is awesome.
1: That is so cool. One thing I like about being sober is I've learned how to be open-minded that maybe I don't know everything and maybe I need to stay open and teachable and allow others to guide me and help me and to see things about myself that I do not see or I do not understand or I'm not even acquainted with. Uh, is a potential issue. I'm going to say something real quick that I've never told anybody, actually. I, uh, I'm a big supporter of going outside the uh, program of Alcoholics Anonymous and getting extra help if you need it and wherever you can find it. And so one thing that I've had to do is I've had to go and talk to a counselor before outside issues. Sure. You know, let, me go, let me go pay this lady anywhere between 125 and $150 an hour to hear me talk. And so uh, to unpack stuff from childhood or unpack whatever it is, it doesn't matter why I went to therapy, but I have been to therapy in sobriety and I do support it. And so what I want, the reason I'm telling you that is to tell you this. One day I was, in sobri- I was early in sobriety, I'm going to say less than five years, and I was in a therapy and I was talking to her. And this is like the, maybe the fifth or sixth time I had seen this woman. And any time that we got close to something that was painful or real, I would laugh. I would audibly laugh. And at some point in the fifth or sixth session, we got close to something that was painful, and I started laughing. And she said, Hey, hey, Mike. And I go, Yeah. She goes, Let me ask you something. Why, 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 when we are talking and stuff and you get close to talking about something that's painful, why do you laugh? It's not funny. Everything that you say right after you laugh is horrific. So why do you do that? And I wasn't aware that I did that I didn't I wasn't aware that my mouth and my body and my lungs and my diaphragm were reacting that way but I wanted to mention that real quick because I, that's part of being open to others and letting them teach us and lead us and I don't do that anymore now when I'm talking about feelings and we get to adult type discussions about adult type subjects I don't laugh anymore when we get close to that painful stuff because oh, I allowed her to teach me that
0: I've seen you actually cry <laughs> yeah
1: right. yeah a few times right I've definitely cried a few times within the confines of no that. and, and that's an g-
0: awesome thing I think it's it. yeah uh, you know it's one of the things I want to commend you for actually is that you do do that you you open up to that yeah and you allow it to be a safe place
1: <laughs> I can't stop it dude. no but it's you know
0: but yeah. if you're you telling me that I go oh that's a moment he, he would have laughed at at year five
1: yeah or just kept my mouth mm-hmm. shut or or yeah not or change the, the subject point. Point. dude I used to be good at that yeah. I used to be good at that whenever I'd be talking to something, and uh, whether it was a girlfriend or a counselor or my mom or dad, any times that we were getting close to, to, to some real work, I'd, I'd, I'd be like, How about them Mavericks? How yeah. about them? Why the Cowboys suck so much? You know, I would try to change the subject, you, but I don't do that anymore.
0: Twofold question Do you feel that, uh, that stuff like counseling, outside help, has been necessary and added to your experience in recovery?
1: hundred percent, but it doesn't mean I have to like it. I don't like it for a bunch of reasons. The two main reasons I don't like it is because it's expensive. It's anywhere between $125 and $150 an hour in my experience, and I'm cheap, and I don't like that. And the other reason I don't like it is because it's painful a lot of times. And uh, a lot of times I'm forced into it by other people, you know, like... I'm married. And we had to go to marriage counseling. And the reason we had to go to marriage counseling is because we were not communicating well within our marriage. So we had to go pay this lady all this money to talk to my wife and I. And we had to learn that we were not receiving the signals that we were sending each other. And we were missing each other. And so we had to learn that A, that's a real thing. And we have problems in that area. And B, how do we attempt to communicate uh, better? And then my wife bought that Book. I don't know what it's called. I think it's called the Five Love Love Languages or something like that. I think it's called the Five Love Languages. And we had, and I'm like, oh my god, what am I doing? What are we talking about? What are we doing? We're going to counseling or reading the Five Love Languages. Well, I learned a lot from that book, and I learned a lot from counseling. So I'm a big supporter of going outside of the four walls of Alcoholics Anonymous to get additional help. It's been a big part of my recovery. And it was shocking to me that all my problems could not be solved within the confines of the big book and the Alcoholics Anonymous program. That was my, that's been my experience for me. But I also think... There's a lot of answers there within the literature and the fellowship, but there's not a lot of trained psychologists and psychiatrists within the program that are going to be willing to talk to you for free.
0: Yes. And also though, I think the program suggests that we be open to it. My daily prayer is it's like... You know, God, you lead me throughout my day. Show me what my next step is to be. Give me whatever I need to take care of such problems. Relieve me of this self-will, a.k.a. my character defects, right? So you're struggling with a character defect with your
1: wife, which is
0: not communicating, trying to prove your point, whatever it is,
1: right? So Or her not hearing my point.
0: Or her not hearing your point. And the reality of the situation is... Or
1: misinterpreting it.
0: You're praying on it. Then this opportunity comes. Like I I believe I believe God is everything or nothing. So therefore, like I believe God created that counselor I want to see for me. Yeah, right. You know, so I the reason I bring that up is because there's a lot of people like, oh, you know, the program will I know. solve That's why I feel a
1: little sketch about saying it, and
0: and it's like I get it. I think there's a lot of old timers like they didn't have a lot of other stuff available for them, mm-hmm. so that was how they had to do it, right? So it's like you mm-hmm. talk to those guys, I got sober in '75. They didn't have a lot of resources. We can get counseling on our phone now. I know. <laughs> you know. So like my my my, I say that because if you talk to a lot of the old timers, they're like, you don't need all that. It's because that wasn't available for
1: him. Yeah, take advantage of all the resources that are available to you. Exactly. There could be many, and that could take many forms. Here's a few of them. You can get yourself a yogi and learn about yoga. You can get yourself a dietitian and learn about food that sure. you're putting in your body. You could get somebody, you can get a chiropractor. You can get somebody that helps you with stretching if you have physical issues with your body stretching. Uh, there's so many ways that you can lean into uh, having a better life, and I recommend, and so does our big book and our program, that you – research and be open to the great resources of humanity. Cause it's not just all contained specifically within the the 12 steps. And we're really good at helping you not drink and introducing you to a power greater than yourself with which you can solve all your problems. That's kind of our main deal. Yeah. We're really good at that, but we, we definitely are not going to shield you from going and seeking outside help. We're getting close to the end of the podcast. I want to ask you if you have any final parting thoughts for our audience but before i do that i wanted to circle back around and talk a little bit more about your personal life is there anything that you want to say in conjunctions with you and your wife being married in sobriety or you and your relationship with your mom and dad
0: when i was a kid i smashed this pumpkin and this guy beat me up in the street my mom sent me to bed and i just wanted something to be done and i never felt protected or, or served so i'm going to this counselor so speaking of counselor, i go to this counselor i tell him this story he says you need to confront your father about that. I go, guy, get out of here.
1: I think you, to, you should. I
0: go, you're crazy, right? And he goes, you need you need to tell your father how much that hurt, and uh-huh. tell him what it was like to be his son. I go, you don't know, Bill.
1: Yeah. You don't talk to Bill like that, right? You know. Yeah, yeah. There could be more so, of the story that you don't know, right? Though. So he goes, Brad,
0: mm-hmm. let's pray about it. Him and I prayed <laughs> about it
1: just to bring the willingness. Okay. okay.
0: So the next day, my phone rings. It's my dad. Oh my god. So he goes, hey, son, what's going on? I go Oh, no. And he goes, hey, I want to bring something up. Nuh-uh. So remember this time we were saying, and I, and like, I did this, yeah, it was raw. I didn't even know who I was talking to. I literally, so at this time when my dad would call, like, I could be having whatever feeling I was having, I'd answer the phone, I'd go blank. I would just completely shut down. Like, I didn't, and it would be like, you know, paying your bills, how's your car running? You know, it's the stuff we did. Yeah, how
1: about them bills? Yeah, so. <laughs> the, the Buffalo bills, not the utility yeah. bills. <laughs> so he
0: goes, uh, you, you know. All right, man. Well, just wanted to let you know, like that was the right of me to do. So I go.
1: Well, what was he talking about specifically? Not the pumpkin deal, right? Uh, no, it was. Uh, this was um, something else. Yeah, we were just a time that I uh, got
0: yelled at. We were on a, like a family trip, and just like time. some,
1: but something from your childhood. Yes. What? Like
0: I was just thinking about it. This came up, so now I go. This son, th- th- my counselor must be talking to my dad, right?
1: He <laughs> totally. So I go, and, he, I like go he, and I tell him,
0: and he looks at me, goes, "Brad, first off." I don't even have your dad's number, so I don't know where I would have got it, or how he would have got a hold of me. Right? And he goes, "I would never do that."
1: Yeah, exactly. He's not allowed to he do that. Yeah, he's not
0: allowed to do that, But He's like, "I would never do that." And he goes, "And second, we prayed for it. God's working." I go, "I'm not doing it, right?" <laughs> so then he goes, "You need to talk to your dad about." It. We prayed about it again the next session. I go, "I'm not doing it." So I leave. My phone rings again. My dad again apologized about something else that happened in my childhood. So I go, "What is going on, right?" So I ask him, I go, "Why are you calling, doing this?" He was just like, "Well." you're my son i love you and i didn't have a father growing up and uh, i don't know how to do this but i do know i miss you and i want you in my life more than just talking about this stuff and i was like all right well i gotta go i mean it was like so uncomfortable i couldn't fathom it right i go and i tell him he was like brad you gotta do it you know i used to go every thursday to see mike so you gotta do it so the next day is a friday i wake up i used to have this little corgi dog at the time she passed away peanut So I go to the dog park, my phone rings, I answer it to my dad. And just without thinking, I just go and go, dad, I got to tell you something. So I tell him, I said, you know, and this guy beat me up and I came home and I got sent to my room. You guys never talked about it and you, and you, and you never stuck up for me. And he was like, what? And I go, yeah, I "I felt unloved. I felt unsafe. And I go, after that, I spiraled, man. I, you know, I didn't cry for 11 years. You know, I, I told him all this stuff and he goes, Brad. Do you want to know what really happened that night? And I was like, what? Okay. And he goes, well, your mother got a hold of me, told me what happened, and I went over there. And he goes, me mean, the guy had words. And I got physical. And the cops came. And I got arrested. And the cops were like, listen, buddy, like we understand, but you can't put your hands on people. So they brought, and they didn't end up pressing charges, but they brought my dad in the police car to the police station. My mom had to go get him. But I'd fallen asleep at the time. So on the way home, my mother said to my dad, Bill, how dare you? Is this a lesson you want to teach our son? That every time something bad happens, you have to deal with it by putting your hands on somebody. That's not the type of man I want our son to be. So let's not tell him about this. So they didn't tell me about it. And And I'm not saying they should have. I mean, I was 11 years old, right? I mean, I don't know how you have that conversation, 11, 12 years old. But they didn't. And I based the next, 11 years off my life, off that moment that I was unlovable. So I tell my dad this. My dad's bawling. He's like, I didn't know. He couldn't believe it. Wow. It's like, Brad, I thought about every day. I drove by that guy. Matter of fact, after that, he was so afraid of my dad. He ended up. The guy ended up moving. My dad went up there heated. So the only thing I wanted to feel okay at that time, my dad actually did. I just never got that piece of information. Wow. I don't care that I didn't get it then, right? Like, all that's fine. I tell this story because the blessing of staying sober long enough and doing the work, even sometimes begrudgingly, allowing God to come in your life, and allowing people to help you with this stuff, I was able to have that conversation with my dad. And I got a piece of information that people wait a whole lifetime to get.
1: Or People don't
0: get, get closure. Yeah. I did.
1: Because you were willing to open up and ask him about it. And he gave you the rest of the information. Right.
0: right. And even if it just went away, like, oh, I screwed up. I'm sorry. It was important enough to have my feelings heard. Where? and I did and and the outcome of it was something beyond my wildest dreams, but in that moment, like I was like shaking
1: mm-hmm.
0: on the phone, you know, I was like, "Oh my God, you know, and it was just a cool moment, and uh, something personal that started the the bonding between me and my dad. We talk often now, mm-hmm. and now we're super close, but we weren't until that moment, and wow. that started the moment of us getting close again few months later, I was in that accident where I was in that explosion. And my dad came and spent the month with me to help me get back on my feet. And mm. just a beautiful deal. Um, so if you're sitting on stuff, have the conversation, no matter how uncomfortable. Because I didn't want to do it. Yeah. Just in a weird moment. I kept praying about it and the willingness came. So such a cool moment. I think since I've been able to bond with my family tremendously, we're super close.
1: Um, it's crazy. It took years for you to get there and then to uncover that. You know, how, how long were you sober when you had that with your dad?
0: Mm, that was 2010. Okay. So I got sober. I was about four and a half years sober.
1: Yeah. You had to stay sober for multiple Christmases or Hanukkahs yep. or whatever New Year's in a row. I even made amends to him about that or no about just what? in general oh you'd already, yeah. you'd already yeah, done so all I've that you'd already done all
0: that i've had these moments so i think yeah i think the moral of that story is like don't give up keep plugging away yeah the right people will be in your life so my, my family's good for me so they're in my life mm-hmm. which i know sadly some people it's not the case yeah and i feel terrible for that so i'm blessed very humbled to know that I got good parents. They were more married. They got together at 14. They're still
1: together. Oh, Special yeah. shout out yeah. to your dog that passed away, Peanut. Oh. I like that name. Oh. That's he, a good name for a dog.
0: Peanut. <laughs> Cor- she's a corgi. Uh, I, I, I couldn't get a dog for a few years. I actually just rescued a dog because of the ice storm. Uh huh. A 90 pound Great Pyrenees named Marshmallow. Whoa. She's the sweetest girl i have ever met. Oh, my God. Recovery's brought my family back. My brother, we talk every day. My gal is she's blown away how close my brother and I are. Yeah, um, and it's become such a regular thing that uh-huh. I don't think about it. Yeah. So when I tell people like, "Oh, I talk to my
1: brother every day," for,
0: sometimes for an hour or so, you know. Yeah.
1: Like, what my wife and her sister do that all the time.
0: Yeah, and so I'm I'm very fortunate. My gal, she's such she's such a. She's such a sweetheart.
1: Speaking of meeting frequency, we were talking about why it's important to go to meetings earlier. I want to ask you a question, see, on meeting frequency. Do you have a certain number of meetings that you're trying to make per week or per month now at this long-term sobriety that you're at? Minimum of twice a week. Okay. And do you have set days or do you start off Monday morning and be like, I got to get there twice at some point?
0: Well, I chair the Thursday. Okay. So I'm, I'm there every Thursday and then I just try to hit one more a week. Okay. I, I think like eight, eight's a good number a month to me. Now, if I can go more, go more. Like there's no, mm-hmm. but like one of my, um, sober companions up in Buffalo, one of my good friends, he's, he's a beast. Mm-hmm. He says, uh, I have some non-negotiables when it comes to my, when it comes to my recovery. And one of them is like the number of meetings I hit a week. It's a non-negotiable. Like there's,
1: you can't, what's his number? Do you remember?
0: Well, he's been sober a long time. I think he was like six times a month. Okay. And that works for him, whatever else he's got going on. I know he's got kids and stuff, but it's a non-negotiable. Yeah. Like he hits his home group meeting like he hasn't missed in 12 years. That's good. And part of the thing is it's a non-negotiable for me to do that. And I think about what are non-negotiables for me? Mm -hmm. And so obviously I went that period I told you about, but since Mm
2: -hmm.
0: non-negotiable, I mean, that's one of them. You know, and obviously there's some actions that are Mm non-negotiable. Even just, you know, how you treat your gal. Like there's some non-negotiables, like never okay and not okay. Like obviously one's cheating. Yeah. But another one is like, um, like I do not, and I have not in years. I don't say hurtful stuff, purposely hurtful stuff to my gal. Sometimes I'm like a caveman and just like, respond. but, but um, past relationships, I've been like, like you're being crazy right now. And that's hurtful, right?
1: You can't unsay something. No. You cannot unsay something. Am,
0: yeah. She'll it, remember it, you know.
1: Yeah. It's nice to be able to develop the uh, skill of self-restraint of pen and tongue and mouse. Yep. To just be like, yeah, I don't want to make an amends. Let okay. me just cool off here and back off for a minute. All right. We're coming down to the very last question. And that would be, do you have any final parting thoughts for our audience? Anything you want to say?
0: Yeah. Um, well, first, I appreciate this opportunity. And I'm very passionate about recovery and I'm very passionate about my journey and others journeys I've been able to be a part of and such a blessing I'm very humbled although I have a lot of hours built in on this thing um, I don't know it all I just know what I've done and what works for me so if you listen to this deal and you're like well I haven't had to do that and look at me I'm good then I'm you know we all have our own path I've been fortunate enough that I meet people that I've been able to share similar paths or need what I need. And that's the blessing of this deal. There's different flavors for everybody. Only thing I suggest is, you know, getting a sponsor, working the steps, getting connected to a higher power. Those things are a non-negotiable for me. When If you want to be sober and Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and the last thing is this is the best show on earth. <laughs> Thank you. Um, this show and, and, and shows like it give an opportunity for people to just kind of um have a moment. I didn't even really think about people listening to this. I felt like I was just talking to you the whole time, which is really cool yeah and um recovery's been the best ride in the world and and i'm I'm so grateful to be an alcoholic today.
1: Me too. I'm super grateful to be an alcoholic as well. I just think about all the some of the best things that ever happened in my life, and they're things I didn't want. I didn't want to come to AA. I didn't want to be an alcoholic, but in hindsight, it's the best thing that ever happened to me because it allowed me to get in touch with the power greater than myself and have a profound personality change and a spiritual experience and be able to meet people that are talented and nice and friendly like you. Are you perfect? No. Am I perfect? No. Do we make mistakes? Yes. We're still flawed, but we have a really a huge... Arsenal of spiritual tools that we can use to acquiesce our way and dance our way through life now whereas before all we really had or at least all I really had was a can of Coors Light and a marijuana cigarette and some (laughs) bad intentions. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I used to have, dude. And uh, it's just nice to be happy, joyous, and free now. And I appreciate you sharing your story with us. And I hope some people reach out to you. Reach out to me at mike at sobershares.com if you want to get in touch. And talk to him about music or anything like that. That would be really cool.
0: Yeah, you can reach out to Kettlewell's on Facebook so you can find all ads.
1: Spell that one more time in the name of your band
0: Um, Kettlewell, K E T T L E W E L L. You can reach out on that plenty of time. And And you're
1: on Apple Music too. You just search there or you search on Spotify. Yep. You guys got anything on YouTube?
0: Yep. Apple, Google, YouTube, all of it. So you can find it everywhere we play in shows around North Texas and all that good stuff. So it's a, it's a, bl- like that's a blessing. But also, uh, what I hope is I hope to see a listener in a meeting one day. Hope, yeah. Now that's cool.
1: That would be cool. That's the coolest. So that would be cool. And I'm just thinking back to a couple hours ago when you broke it down so heavy on step one with the stick <laughs> man. If anybody's going to be somewhere and, and able to have a first step experience via your story and your experience, I, I think about all the people over the world that are going to be listening to this podcast. I think 76% of our listeners are in the United States, the other 24 are all over the world. And I think about people that are isolated and maybe only have one meeting per week where they are. And the same two or three people show up every day, or not every day, but once a week or once a month whenever they have their meetings. And they're just thirsty for more recovery and more information and new stories and new new um new context and new vision. And that's what I feel like we provide for them. I feel like I've been to a lot of meetings and a lot of, small uh, Caribbean islands where they've only got two or three meetings a week and only two or three people show up and they rely on tourists to come in and try to tell their story, yeah. but we're providing content for them. We're providing people content. And I think about the people that work in warehouses that are allowed to wear earphones mm-hmm. and the people that commute on trains in and out of New York city and all across the great world uh, that are listening to the show. I also think about truck drivers a lot because I know there's a lot of long haul truckers that listen to podcasts and, we might have just gotten somebody from uh, Dallas all the way down to New Orleans with this uh, marathon oh my session. Oh yeah. we got a marathon session Jeez. working here. It's been fantastic. It's been fun. I want to read something from page 164 of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. This is called The Vision for You. I want to close with this. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask Him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. May God bless you and keep you until then. Thank you, Brad, for joining us today on Sober Shares. Please go to our website, SoberShares.com, where you can support us with a financial donation. You can email me at Mike at SoberShares.com. You can leave a review or leave us a voicemail, and we'll see you guys on the next episode.